Patricia, my darling Patricia I can see all my dreams in your eyes Your smile is as gay as a bright summer day You're much fairer than Aaron's blue skies Oh, Patricia, my lovely Patricia You could make all my dreaming come true My heart is just drooling, Patricia, no fooling I'm falling in love with you Patricia, my darling, Patricia, I can see all my dreams in your eyes. Your smile is as gay as a bright summer day. You're much fairer than Aaron's blue skies. Oh, Patricia, my lovely Patricia, You could make all my dreaming come true My heart is just drooling Patricia, no fooling I'm falling in love with you Patricia, my lovely Patricia, you could make all my dreaming come true. My heart is just drooling, Patricia, no fooling. I'm falling in love. I'm falling in love. I'm falling in love. Hello everybody, it is Saturday night, February 11th, here 2017. I'm Warren Hughes over here in Costa Mesa, California. Hello, cold. So I have the little heater by me. You really know what wonderful person in my life sent me a little heater two Christmases ago. And here she is. The only person I know in radio today that her theme song goes with her everywhere she makes guest shots on other people's show. That's true. That's I, true. Wow. And she 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 did bonus coverage yesterday. She had, she was on with us for two and a half hours yesterday. She was she she had a new awful show, but here she is in her normal stable time. <laughs> East Coast, West Coast, whatever she may be. And we've already booked her next guest appearance on Dave King, April 22nd. Put that on your calendar. Here she is. And he, called and, he called and confirmed it today. Uh, I said, yes, Walden gave me away. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> well, I'm going to be away on the road that day. Here oh, she is. Patricia. Yes. Hello, Patricia. The mouse the Hello. 
didn't know the mouth of the south you know earlier before we got on the air i said oh wow turn yourself down i had everything turned up it wasn't you it was me i know that why i have monkey to anything was that i figured it was, yeah, i didn't well, you know you i turn it I just yeah. didn't. I you just, can turn it up a little bit if you want. <laughs> I didn't want to. I mean, you know, really I, I, you I, if, you know, I treat the females in my life with tender, loving care. So whatever they say, I can attest I, to that. I listen to them. I can attest to that. Okay. Hi, mm-hmm. Patricia. Hello, Walden. Hello. We have a guest. We well, do. not really a guest. We have we a family have member. A- we have a family member who hasn't been in here with us for a long time, for any space of time. <gasps> Tell people who is, who is here. Well, he's the man that hit, he's been in more states and more ho- location in his lifetime. And he can, he can recite the roadmap of the United States backwards and forwards. But he is the brain trust. He knows more about old time radio. Than John Larry and Walden combined, because <laughs> he gives dates and facts, and he's our family member. Jim, you should be formerly of Pittsburgh, California, of now of Antioch. Hello, Jim. How are you? Hello, Walden. Hello, Patricia. Pleasure to be Hello, with you Jim. and U.S. at rest of the USA listeners tonight. I am so glad you are with us tonight. This is such a special treat. Thank you for doing this. Well, it's worth it because Yesterday USA is a wonderful radio site. You you people do wonderful programming. You you keep classic radio alive. Not only that, but your your conversations covering just about every subject under the sun. Where on terrestrial radio can you ever get a discussion about Tootsie Rolls? <laughs> well, we... Um- and we, toilet paper. We had toilet paper. Toilet paper. Right. I remember that. And, 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 about. and tonight, in a few hours, we're going to let Jim and the family get have time with us. But tonight, we're going to talk to an English butler for two hours. So, I mean, who else? Who else in old-time radio land can talk about Tootsie Rolls, toilet paper, and an English, bus, English butler all in the same night? Right. <laughs> and, and everyone feels at home. Uh. It reminded me, yes, by the way, when you mentioned the butler, it reminded me of an old McDonald's commercial in the 70s, I guess it was, where the lady ordered her egg McMuffin, and I, someone, I guess, impertinating a, a butler said to her, Madam, your muffin. <laughs> <laughs> well, ours was a surprise. Uh, Walden arranged this, that um, we would have an opportunity to talk with him, and we kept saying our English butler hour, and we had no idea what to expect. And it turned out to be such a fun time with him, and we've asked if he would please come back, and he said yes. So sometime down the line we'll figure out how to do that. But I think it will be fun for everyone, and if it's not, right. I'll take it. Now, now. And also it reminds me of the radio show that ran in the summer of 1951 on NBC, the mm-hmm. replacement for Bob Hope, it's Higgins, sir. Yes, yes, I remember that. I do have that. He, question and our, he played an English butler for an American family, the Roberts mm-hmm. family. Yes, yes. And they got into all kinds of adventures. <laughs> they did. They did. I listened to a few of them, and it was kind of fun. So, but that's what are you going be... to do for us tonight? Well, i got a book review for Hooray! you. Excellent. And this is a book 
It's by Stefan Cantor, I think is how you pronounce his name. It's RZ57093, and it may be DB as well. Ball of Fire, The Tumultuous Life and Comic Art of Lucille Ball. Oh. It's 361 pages. Mm. Um, it's a long book, considering the subject. I mean, when I say that, I, I went in, admittedly, and I, I, never, I don't question her talent or her art, but I Love Lucy, I always thought was overrated, in my opinion, as a television show. Um, I did, too. I, I mean, I went in with a, a with a little prejudice in that regard, and it had mm-hmm. nothing to do with her. You know, the, the stories, yeah. just looking back on them, the stories, and I admit I watched the, the reruns as a teenager and child. Um, first of all, nobody that I know ever has a social relationship with their landlord. Correct. <laughs> you pay them their bill. And it's kind of like in Fiddler on the Roof when Tabia is pray and the people of Anatepka are praying mm-hmm. and they say, God bless the czar and keep him far away. <laughs> <laughs> I had forgotten that line. That was a great musical. Oh, gosh, it was super. But, so, but Yes, but I understand. But, but Lucy had quite a life. She was born in Jamestown, New York in... I almost said 2000, I meant 1911. Mm-hmm. Boy, if it was 2011, that would be revolutionary news. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she, she accomplished a lot in a couple of years. But she, uh, her family moved to Michigan, and at the age of three or so, her father, uh, her father died of typhoid. Ooh. Uh, he ate some, there had been a typhoid epidemic in the town where they were living, he had ice cream, and I guess the ice cream may have been contaminated or something. Oh, how awful. So they were quarantined. Lucy had to experience that. They went back to New York State where her mother remarried, and she lived in a number of homes with relatives while their marriage was going through some things. There was another neighborhood tragedy a few years later in 1927, uh, the family of Lucy, one of the one of the people were one of the kids was playing with a gun on July 4th, and a neighborhood child was paralyzed as a result of the shot being fired and died, and they lost everything in a lawsuit. Her family, mm. which was tragic. It talked about Lucy's dancing and acting and working mm-hmm. her way up, eventually going to California. Her meeting with De- her meetings with Desi, how they met. Uh, Desi, of course, was a band lead, would eventually be a band leader uh, with drums. He, uh, they were married in 1940, uh, and all through the war, she did tours and things. And Desi succeeded with his band. Eventually, of course, Desi played on the Bob Hope Show. It chronicles, <coughs> excuse me, her radio career briefly in 1940. Eight, she got the role of Liz Cougat, later Liz Cooper, on My Favorite Husband. She wanted to play with Desi, but CBS said, <coughs> excuse me, folks, absolutely no. And they got Richard, <coughs> excuse me, Denning, to play the part. <coughs> the show was successful. Hang on, folks. Sure. <coughs> I think it's yesterday, USA. 
And yeah. uh, why, we we got a call. So we're with Jim Kick a Breath here. Hello, Carl. You're on with Patricia and Walden. Hello. Hello there. Jim. Patricia Walden and Jim, it's so great to hear you. Oh man. Yeah, I agree, Paul. That's why I thought Hello, I thought Hello, Paul. I thought there'd be hi. I thought there'd be people people that would like to say hi to Jim, so that's why we put Jim on Skype for a while. And Jim's gonna be wasted for a half hour, forty five minutes or so. How have Jenny Jim energy level holds up? But I thought people might want to say hi to Jim. Yeah. So. Hello, I'll let go over now. I'm doing pretty good. I, I'm coughing too, but for different reasons. Yeah, those coughs can be a challenge Pardon sometimes. Me. Actually, I imagine it can get, if you cough all day, it can almost wear the body out. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, it does wear you out. You get My brother's had coughing too as a result of his kidney transplant and some pneumonia last year and he still has a cough and when we had conversations on the phone we both kind of almost cough in unison and it, it does wear you out some, I mean well when it's I know a you had a strenuous exercise I'll put it that way because you use so many muscles and interrupt your breathing so sure it's a challenge when you had the flu last year Jim did, were you coughing more because of the food? I know that's why they yeah, took you back Yeah, and you know there. what's weird is, I'm, I think I mentioned this to you, Yeah, I got a flu shot in October, but apparently it wasn't for that strain of flu that I got. Wow. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if those shots are really even effective. It's a guess. They, they are, and sometimes what you get from them is a, a lesser, um, what am I trying to say? A lesser episode of the flu that without the shot it really would have been many times. I had worse. no fever. I had no fever during yeah. the flu. So maybe you did get some really good benefit from it after all. Yeah, I had to take Theraflu and other medicines, and mm-hmm. on top of that, they discovered that I had some fluid in my heart. Apparently, oh. some I'm sure some of that was related to the fire, the lungs, and yeah. all of that. It must yeah. have been. So they had to do some quick surgery. It wasn't major heart surgery. It was very minor. But I had that done, and uh, I was in the ho- that hospital stay was about eight days. I liked the second hospital I was in better than the first one, um, and they both beat the rehabilitation center. We, we, Patricia and I have talked about that. Uh, very happy to get out of the rehab center. Mm, not the most pleasant places in the world to be, but gosh, you graduated, and we're so happy for that. Oh well, it's great to be home. Yeah. Uh, we're getting, we're getting, we're working on the computer. We're doing some tests to see what needs to be done. Um, uh-huh. I'm getting one of my one of my friends on the other station is getting me a replacement for the Wi-Fi, so I'll be able to get the Wi-Fi radio. Wow. And I'll be able that to hear you, so hear you cool. live again. Yeah. R- red and cool. blue and uh, very station. Yeah. Well, Paul, thank you for calling and saying hi to Jim and all that. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, you're welcome, and I hope uh, the cough continues to lessen over time and goes away. Amen. Well, let's hope so. Thank you very much. Oh. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Do you want Bye-bye. to talk to Jim? You know the number. So, 714? So, uh, the show was a success. She had a miscarriage in the late 40s, and she got lots of 
letters from from listeners. Uh, she did the Jello commercials at the end. He pointed that out, and then they decided to do a show in 1951 on television. They wanted, didn't want Desi on the show. They just the CBS executives just didn't think it would work. You know, a Latino and Lucy, mm-hmm. or a Cuban and Lucy. But she insisted. He insisted. They did it. They added the Mertzes as extra characters, Fred and Ethel. And uh, you probably know this, Vivian Vance and William Frawley couldn't stand each other. Yes. They did a marvelous job of covering For people it. who didn't like each other. Yeah. Um, and it, it didn't go into a lot of details about This wasn't in the book, but from another person said, Vivian at one point said, what's he supposed to play, my father? Um, <laughs> that does not warm you up, does it? But uh, but and then it goes into the pregnancy, how they use that as a story element, which mm-hmm. was revolutionary for that time because at that time, you couldn't even say pregnant on television. That's right. Um, and Ricky, little Ricky's birth, or Desi Arnaz Jr. came on January nineteenth, nineteen fifty-three, and the episode revolving around it aired that same night, and. It got higher ratings than President Eisenhower's inaugural the next day. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, they had a White House reception later, and Ike actually congratulated Lucy and Desi. He said, you got me off the front page. <laughs> and they were kind of amused by that. There was controversy. Lucy's, one of Lucy's relatives had voted for a communist candidate in the 1930s, and she just went along. When she was young, and of course the House Committee on Un-American Activities found out about it, and she had to appear before the committee, and she denied communist affiliation, and J. Edgar Hoover cleared her. Desi knew J. Edgar Hoover, so his investigation cleared her. Someone said the only thing read about Lucy is her hair. <laughs> um, they experienced a lot of turbulence in their marriage. Ricky, or Desi, was a philanderer. He did go around with other women. He gambled a lot, and uh, that caused some friction. They eventually gave up the half-hour show in 1957 and did the Lucy Desi Comedy Hour for three seasons, which were hour-long stories once a month. Uh, Some of them were good. Some of them were not, according to the author. One that was very well-received was one with Ernie Kovacs, one that was not well received was one with Ida Lupino and Howard Duff. Mm. I guess it was considered a bad script. But that ended. They divorced in 1959. Uh, she would later marry a man named Gary Morton. After I after Lucy left television, she did a Broadway show in late '60 and early '61 called Wildcat. And for health reasons, she eventually had to give that up. The big song from Wildcat was kind of a big, a modest hit in 1961 by various artists called Hey, Look Me Over. I'm sure you've heard that song. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the featured song in the movie. That I mean, in the play. That was later used as a advertising song for a number of products, including Ford, the candy Turkish taffy, 
and Lone Star Beer, a beer that was popular in Texas and Louisiana and Oklahoma, used Hey Look Me Over <coughs> as as a uh, melody as for their advertising. She <coughs> she played in a movie, several movies of Bob Hope. One was Fancy Pants, and uh-huh. one called Critics' Choice. Critics' Choice was not well received by the critics or the public. I think he was also in Charlotte for Jones, too. Oh, hang on. Well, let you, we'll, we'll, get, we'll, talk, we'll talk to the caller. Hold on, Jim. Give you a second to take a breath there. Hello, caller. You're on with Patricia and Walden. Yes, this is Marilyn Ebert from Converse. Hi, Marilyn. Uh, I'm glad to see, see you. I just, I'm just kind of getting used to uh, I I now have to use the CPAP machine, so I had to kind of get used to that, you know, uh, so we we working your sweeping powders a little bit, huh? Yeah. I know what yeah. you mean. I have to use it too. We're going to get mine replaced. Oh, well, Jim, I'm I'm sure glad to see you back on Yesterday USA because uh, I missed you a lot. You know. Great to be back. It's it's just um it's just this um and I've I've said it to people on the other, on some of the other stations. I'm so grateful to everybody whose prayers and support both through the fund and just their good wishes and prayers got me through this thing in the fall, and I'm, I appreciate all of you for, for what you did. And, uh, Walt, I am listening to you on uh, uh, an app or on a deal called Amazon.echo. It's, uh, you can ask it to listen to Yesterday USA and, you know. So... It, how did you find it, Mel? Was it in the Was it in the App Store? Or was it in no? I, Amazon? Oh, actually, Donald bought it for Christmas off of Amazon. It's called Amazon dot Echo. And so is it? Huh? And so is yesterday USA listed on it? No, you had to put it on there actually, but ah. It, but once you do, you can speak it. You can speak yeah. yesterday USA, and it'll find it for you. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So is it is it pretty simple to work, Melon? Is it pretty? Is it? No, it's just you work it by your voice. Nice. And you have, you can get red and blue. You just say yesterday USA red or blue or both. Wow. Right. That's really nice. I, I I'm de- going to have to start catching up here. <laughs> Thank you for telling us, Marilyn. That's new. That's new information. I I know <laughs> I know. Here in a few months, we're going to be going on Facebook. Um, everybody. Oh. Uh, because yesterday USA the. Facebook is going to start streaming radio stations for $6.99 a month. That, that's what it'll cost us the station to put our, ourselves on. It'll be free to people. Yeah. So we figured there's so many people out there on Facebook, almost 2 billion people. Yes, 2 B S and B everybody. Oh. And I figured yeah. I figured for for the investment for the station, we might be finding new listeners. And uh, so we do have a Yesterday USA Facebook page that John Lurie help put together and uh we'll go once the radio station facebook is opening up we'll go ahead and put it together and that'd be another place for people to find us so one thing i wanted to ask uh, uh, larry and john is is facebook actually easy to use for a blind person because i've never used it you know i'm not i have an iphone and everything we if you you what john larry and i are really using for facebook everybody is the one the mobile version. It's a yeah. lot easier to manage. 
and the full Facebook page on the uh, website, there's a lot of bells and whistles, and it takes a while to go through it all. So, the last year or so, I've been using the mobile version, and that's really easy to manage. So, if you do Facebook, you know, and that's the one I would choose. It's the, it's the mobile version of Facebook. Yeah, see, I, well, I have, I can probably have my husband set that up yep. on, on yep. my iPhone, you know. Uh, yep. That would be good, because that's where you see John already post, like, the, like, John standing in the rain at four in the morning, and he'll post it, I'm standing in here, waiting for my ride, or, you know, all the crazy things, or all, oh. all, all the all the little things I say, hey, Rich. Now, what do, you, uh, what do you do, ask Siri to help you find Facebook, or help you? Uh, you yep, you can do it by voice. I, I'm uh, I'm using my jaw, but Siri can, do, can find it for you. So oh. it's just another it's another wonderful outlet, and there's so many yeah. groups out there, <clears throat> Marilyn. So I think it'd be worthwhile for your husband to check it out for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Marilyn, I'm so glad that you called in to say hi to Jim. Yes, Marilyn. Nice. I'm I'm glad to. I'm blind, and I live in Converse, Texas, and I used to go to school in the for the uh, Kansas City School for the Blind, like I told Walden and Patricia. And when I got out of the School for the Blind, I went to the center. And uh, then I started working in this blind shop at, in Topeka. And uh, I started stringing tennis rackets, so I learned to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, that's great. Maybe we can get to talk to you later, Marilyn. Okay. Sounds great. We, Thank haven't, we haven't had an opportunity to talk with you for very much for a very long time. So maybe we could, we'll get to do that later. Oh, okay. I'll try. Okay, thank you, Marilyn. About, thank you. I don't know about tonight. Uh, Anytime. Anytime. In the next couple yeah. of weeks, give us a call. Thank you, Marilyn. Take care. Okay, well, I'm glad to have you back, Jim. I am, too. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. If you like to talk to Jim, you're welcome to at 714-545-2071. And here's Jim, back with, with Lucio Ball, Part 3. Well, in 1962, she came back to television in a series called The Lucy Show. Uh, she played a widow with two children, not her own. I mean, not, not her own in real life, I mean. Um, and Vivian Vance appeared on the show as her friend, and plots revolved around Lucy trying to be an astronaut, trying to run a soda fountain, different things like that. That lasted several years, was fairly successful in the ratings. Not all of De- it, it, she goes in. He goes into details about Desilu Productions. In addition to I Love Lucy, the company produced such shows as The Untouchables, which was the most successful, a western called The Texan, one that was not successful called The Greatest Show on Earth about the circus in 1963 and four. Um, there's a brief paragraph devoted to the radio show she did in 1964 and five called Let's Talk to Lucy. Gary Morton produced it. She said, she told friends she did it to give Gary something to do. It was a 10-minute program that ran weekday mornings on CBS radio. I This isn't in the book, but I can tell you the show ran. It replaced the Gary Moore, Dorwood Kirby radio show. It was sandwiched in with Arthur Godfrey and Art Linkletter's house party. It was 10 minutes. It ran from September 7th of 64 to, I believe, July 30th of 65. The theme was, hey, look me over. 
she would interview people like Lauren Green and Robert Culp and Walden Minchin. She did several interviews with Debbie Reynolds. Um, the show was, the author seemed to say that Gary was not successful at producing the show because the show failed to attract sponsors. But in fairness to Gary Morton, network radio in 1964, few shows attracted sponsors. Even good ones like House Party often had trouble getting commercials. As we, and Walter and I have talked about how in the 50s and 60s, advertisers just deserted radio in droves for a supposedly fading audience. Like Gunsmoke and all those shows eventually had to have spot advertising, you know, five or six different commercials. And Lucy encountered that issue. In 1966, on February 10th, CBS chose to air a rerun of I Love Lucy in preference to Senate hearings on the Vietnam War. This so angered CBS News President Fred Friendly, who had been one of Edward R. Merle, you know, Edward R. Merle's producer. He resigned from CBS in protest. Lucy backed Fred Friendly and said CBS was wrong in running reruns. It goes into details about her issues with her children. Her son, Desi, did, with Dean Martin and someone named Billy, form the rock group Dino, Desi, and Billy, who had some a few hits in the late 60s. He, uh, he had drug problems and substance abuse problems, which he eventually overcame. Some of her other ill-fated uh, things were discussed, most notably... She played Mame in the 1974 film based on the Jerry Herman musical that Angela Lansbury had done in 1966. The critics panned her performance in Mame. The audience obviously agreed it was not a box office success. Uh, Many say she was miscast, and I didn't see Mame, so I don't know if she was, but that was what people said. Finally, she did, a, she did a final TV show on ABC in the 1970 or 1986-87 season, once again with Gail Gordon, who had been on all the way back to her radio days, but it did not get good ratings. She died in 1989. The New York Times and others did a big, big obituaries to her. All agree she changed the face of television comedy. Women's groups praised her for her being way ahead of her time in um, giving a feminist perspective. She obviously, even if they were divorced, loved Lucy, uh, loved Ricky, or loved Desi, because, you know, Desi had died a few years earlier. Gary Morton remarked after she died, well, now she's with Desi again. Uh, He would later die of lung cancer, Gary Morton. I give the book three stars. It's, It's... Considering that I wasn't really a I Love Lucy fan, I thought it was a very well-researched book and a very extensive bibliography at the end, dealing with books and articles about Lucy. If anyone is interested in early television and late radio, I would encourage people to read it. I give it three stars. I have a question. Yes, you started out not a fan of I Love Lucy, and I take it that when I say not a fan, that you just weren't enthusiastic about it, and neither was I. What made you pick this particular subject 
considering well, that you were, you were not jumping up and down and saying, oh, goody, goody. Well, I think it just had to do with the subject, and, and since since she also had a radio career, I'm always curious if show business biographies even cover radio. Uh-huh. Because many times they don't. I read right, a well, Jimmy Stewart. A lot of sense. I read a Jimmy Stewart biography on Talking Book years ago. The six shooter wasn't even mentioned, or any radio. So, I'm always curious if celebrity bios include radio, because radio mm-hmm. would. And I was also interested in the play since I knew the song. He looked me over, and it was from Wildcat. If that was going to be mentioned, and <coughs> again, <coughs> she. She was, I suppose, funny in an odd way. It, it just, and again, I'm doing it from an audio standpoint. I guess yeah. a lot of her visual antics were probably very funny looking at them on the screen, right? Oh yeah, especially, especially the candy situation where she's trying to eat the kid, uh, the she and the boxing candies, yeah, the and, apple, yeah. and she's trying yeah, to keep they, up, and so she eating yeah. eating them on the way to keep up with yeah. the speed. And you're right. That that was elected as one of the best scenes or the best episodes yep. of all time in comedy television. And I look at that and I say, what? And <laughs> <laughs> also the one about the vitamin, the vitamin, the vitamin. That one was good. That one was the one good. I did like. One I did like. It wasn't mentioned in the book. Is she, their TV is broken one night and they get out a radio and they listen to a quiz show. And Ricky got all of the answers right on the quiz show. And uh, apparently Ricky had been at the studio that day when the quiz show was taped. (laughs) And he gets the answers right at home. Lucy decides, this guy could win some, my husband could win some money for us. And she calls, right, calls the producer and says that Ricky is the smartest man in the world to try to get him on this quiz show. The funny thing about it, the quiz master was Frank Nelson. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> and, and, of course, they get, when, when Ricky hears he's going to be on the show, he says, Lucy, before I kill you, I want to know why you... <laughs> and they finally go down to the studio. Uh, they get, he gets all... Frank asks him all kinds of questions that are just... You know, things you wouldn't even think of as questions. I don't even remember what they were. And, he, of yeah. course, he gets every yeah. answer wrong. Mm-hmm. And Lucy is real upset. And, and he says, well, we're going to give you your bonus. What did George Washington say as he was crossing the Delaware? And Ricky said something like, hold the horses, I'm sick or something. And, of course, it was the right answer. And they win, they win whatever the prizes were. But, but it was yeah. a, Frank Nelson was just a perfect foil as the host. Yes, and the announcer, by the yeah, for the the announcer gang out there, Frank Nelson was the one you might recall on the Jack Benny show. Jack Benny would come up, and he was sometimes the clerk at Christmas time when Jack Benny was shopping, and he would turn around and say, "Yes, (laughs) that's Frank Nelson." And he would always say something to him like, "Well, he'd say something to to insult Jack Benny, like uh, yes, yes." I suppose I'll have to see you next time, or something like that. Uh, <laughs> or or he'll, he'll say, he'll say, are you the full walker? And he said, who do you think I am? I'm the Poojson? You know, all the... <laughs> right. Yeah. Poojerson, yeah. yeah. 
but it was a fun. It was a fun. Uh, that was a fun episode uh, because of Frank Nelson and the announcer on the quiz show was Roy Rowan, by the way. Ah. Oh. Who you often heard on CBS shows, especially mm-hmm. Gunsmoke Escape, Johnny Dollar. Yeah, but it was a funny episode that I remember. I remember the Ida Lupino Howard Duff show. I don't remember anything about it. I just remember my mother watching it with me. And a couple we had a Ida Lupino historian on a couple of weeks, and just a, there's just a few episodes around, you know, that the general public can see of that series. So, but I just the hour long ones, you mean? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um. Howard Duff wound up in the, what is it, the Red Book? The Red, Red Channels. Channels. Yeah. yeah, the Red Channels, thank you. And with Lucy having had to go through the Un-American Activities exercise, could some of the acrimony that showed up in that show where she didn't get along with Howard Duff stem from an association with someone who was equally beaten up? Actually, I don't know. Well, I know that one thing that did happen was Walter Winchell mentioned that she was being investigated, and when they finally decided to do the Untouchables and pick him as narrator, Lucy wasn't exactly happy about it. But Ricky said it's business. You know, Winchell yeah. knew the twenties; he knew those gangsters. Yeah. Um, he, but Lucy wasn't exactly happy about Walter Winchell being the narrator on the Untouchables. Yeah. I never knew until recently, when I say recently, certainly not for the career of Lucy, but maybe within the last eight or ten years, not even that, that um, Desi Arnaz played such a significant role in the preservation of the shows, in the creation of the shows, in the dialogue, the scenes, the business end of it. I had no idea. I thought he was kind of a tag-along with Uh, Lucy and her career, and that was not true. No, he was really the brains. smart businessman. He was the one. Really that, smart businessman. He, he was the one that convinced. Betty Lou wasn't as successful after he left it, you know, in part yeah. because of some of the projects Lucy picked, some of the others on the board. But but mm-hmm. Desi knew the television business. And and he he was the one that said he 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 worked it up that they he got the he and Lucy got to own the all the rights, and he convinced them to film it. And so that's why that thing remaining syndication for all those years. I mean, the money... They had to do it in Hollywood. They wanted at first him to go to New York and do the show live. And he said no. Jack Webb had a similar situation. They wanted him to... When Dragnet went to TV, Viggett and Myers wanted him to go to New York and do it. And Jack Webb said, no, I'm, I'm in L.A. Uh, we'll, do, we'll do it on film. Um, we'll keep the radio dialogue pat weaver even encouraged jack webb to you know when when it went to tv the nbc president pat weaver jack asked him i said what changes do you think need to be made and pat weaver said change nothing you're successful on radio keep it the way it is and of course it was very successful because as a tv show because he did Mm -hmm. and uh lasted the first season lasted about eight years so, you know, the uh, sometimes the executives don't know as much as the stars. This same author, Stephen Cancer, I'm reading another book by him. If my voice holds next week and I get the book finished, I'll let Walter know. He also wrote a biography of Groucho Marx. Which will be fun, because next month, everybody, at the Rep Monthly Meeting, they're going to have Groucho Marx grandson in person. Uh, up in Seattle, so 
uh, maybe we can have him on the show. Maybe we can talk to him about Groucho, his, his grandfather. Yeah. H- Hello, Carl. You're on. Gonna... You're on with Jim and Patricia. Hello. I uh, maybe I. Somebody hung up. Yeah. yeah. Okay. When you call well, in and you hear Walden continuing, hang on because he will get to you. Yeah. So that's why that's I just put you in the board. Up. Don't hang up. Yeah, I just put you in the board. That way you can listen to the conversation, and I try to be really smooth. Tried to call? I don't know who Tried did. I don't know who did. I just I when they, when the phone the when the phone rang. Well, I'll I get, be here a few more minutes. Yeah. So. so if you want to talk to Jim, the simple number is seven one four five four five two zero seven one. All right, this one will put on live. Hello, you are with Jim and Patricia. I didn't hang up on you guys. You're going to hang up on us? No, I did not hang up. (laughs) Well, well, you know. I was sitting here immediately. Did he fall asleep? No. Oh. (laughs) This is Bob in Wisconsin, our our troublemaker. Our manager. I just wanted to tell Jim I can appreciate his bad cough. Yeah. Because I want him so. And... I couldn't, I couldn't let this go by, but it reminds me of a story <laughs> about, about a funeral procession in San Francisco, in the hills of San Francisco, and the hearse was going up one of the hills, and the door came open, and the casket comes sliding out the back of the hearse, and went tearing down the hill. And it went through a stoplight and went down another hill and then another hill and it continued on until it got to the bottom of the hill and it ran into a pharmacy. And it, <laughs> it crashed right into the pharmacy and all the way back to the pharmacist's desk and it hit the desk and it stopped. And the lid popped open on the casket and the body stood up or set up in there and the pharmacist looked down and he said, can I help you? The guy says, have you got anything to stop this coffin? <laughs> oh. Wow. Oh, Bob. <laughs> Did you really say that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've heard of people, seriously. Huh? I've heard of stories, and I don't know how true they are or how much they're apocryphal, but I've heard stories of but, but anyway, people in a casket. And they were getting ready for the funeral, and someone bumps the casket or something, and they discover the person is still... I mean, I've heard story. I don't yeah. know how much of that is true, but I've heard yeah. that. Yeah. They make for good telling, though. Yes. But anyway, we're glad you're back. All right. Thank you, Bob. Yeah. And uh, I enjoy your, your book reports. How's the, weather, yeah. how's the weather, Bob, in Wisconsin? Here, so we're having a heat wave. It's up in the 40s today. Woo! Wow. Uh, it, oh, it's wow. funny. It rains a bit, but other than that, way it's uh, yeah, we're we're going to be into the uh, into the uh, spring bit here pretty quick, and we'll be long, and the red-winged blackbirds will be back, and uh, yeah, and the robin. It's funny. I was going to do before everything happened in August, the fire and everything. My next book was going to be. It's kind of ironic now, called Ashes to Ashes, about oh uh, smoking and the history of Philip Morris. <laughs> oh. oh, my goodness. That's spooky. Yeah, was, that was going to be my next book review. Uh, whether I'll get to that now, I don't know. I mean, it's just... <laughs> 
Well, I'll let you guys go so that I can cough. Okay. Okay, Bob. <laughs> All right. Join the coffee jingle. You take care and get Thank up. You, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Okay, you have. There was a funny blooper. There was a funny blooper I heard on one of the blooper tapes once where Frank Blair is doing news on the NBC radio network. This is a, must mm-hmm. have been around 1958 or so. And he says, scientists say a successful orbit of the moon is unlikely. This is Frank Blair, <coughs> pardon me, NBC News. Mm-hmm. And the next thing you hear is a recording going, what can super anahis cop syrup do for you that no rubber syrup can do? <laughs> <laughs> oh. the, the timing on that was. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> All right, we'll open the phone line for okay. everybody to call Jim. Um, for anyone who wants to call in and say hi to Jim, do it now, because he said he would only be here for a few minutes. Yeah. 714-545-20. See, the phone ring. Jim gets more calls than Bill and Mike, than Bill Bragg and Mike Handy combined. That's pretty amazing. Hello, Carl. You're on with Jim and Patricia. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Walden. Hi, Jim. It's Virginia. Hi, and Virginia. Everybody in Wisconsin has a cough. It must be the weather. It might be the weather. It's too warm here. <laughs> Hang on. Okay, Jim, I'll wait for you. I think we're wearing Jim out here. No, you're not. I, I can talk a few more minutes. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to say hi to Jim because we've never spoken. Um, but I enjoy all of his uh, knowledge. You know, he's really good with, I'd like to talk with him and Ron and talk music someday. It would be very boring to everybody else, but we'd have a really good time. <laughs> I think well, we Ron could... knows his oldies more than I do. We've, you know, it would be fun, Virginia, sometime if we could do, like you and me and Ron and Rick could all get together on an oldies conference. Yeah, yeah. I think I think Rick would um, would beat all of us, but we'd have a lot of fun. Well, yeah. that's that's what counts. By the way, I enjoy your I enjoy your uh, emails you send him on on the show. Those are always fun. I'm glad he can always find the shows songs you're looking for. It's always fun to hear his opinions of songs too. I know um, he doesn't always like you know everything we all request, but he's. You know, and he's, um, um, but but his shows are always interesting. And of course, you know, I've been there with him to 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 see them and to to be on them. So it's very, it's very, um, it's a lot of fun to do it to play radio once in a while. Last week, I noticed he. Did, it's funny we're talking about Lucy. He doesn't like Hey Look Me Over. He mentioned that last week. I know, and I really like it. I was hoping he was going to play it. I always like the songs you request. Always. Yeah. So We had trouble getting the right version. He did Peggy Lee's version, but the Peking Corral had the hit. Right, um, right. I've and got it. We mentioned it. Like, they used it for commercials. He doesn't like, um, you know, I'd be glad to give it to him, but he doesn't... Um, accept a lot of music, you know, in the Dropbox. So Deb and I, you know, do a lot of Dropbox sharing, but he doesn't. So. But um, I, and I agree with your general assessment on radio shows. Uh, I know you said on this program months ago, and I have to agree with you, that Baby Snooks was really a brat. Oh, oh gosh, yes, she was. She really was. 
Uh-huh. Yep. Not to say that Fanny Bryce didn't give a good performance, but it's just the character just... I always enjoyed Daddy more than maybe Snooks. Yes, yes. But she was a she was a rotten little kid, you know. Um, but yeah, I did I did too. And and Fanny Bryce did a good job acting. But um, it was never one of my favorite shows, even when I would hear it as a child. If if um, you know my parents or my aunt aunt and uncle, you know, would would you know listen or or find it or. We had old-time radio, one station that played it really early. So I was, oh, in the early 1960s, and they would play Baby Snooks sometimes. And to me, it was just never appealing. Never. Well, Virginia, I have to ask you, what do you think of Jim's all-time favorite show, Blondie? Oh, God. <laughs> I agree with him. It's, it's right up there um, uh, on the worst list. Right up there with I saw on Facebook uh, later this year they're going to release a film documentary on the life of Rosemary. Really? Uh, okay. So for people who love the Dick Van Dyke show and things like that, uh, you might want to stay tuned when they release the documentary on, on Rosemary. So it should be, I imagine they'll cover the days. Hang on. Of, no problem, Jim. They'll, they'll cover his day, her days on the Dick Van Dyke show. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. that funny. Well, I always like I always thought, well, I liked it as a child and teenager. Mm -hmm. Looking back on it, wow, the Andy Griffith spinoff, Gomer Pyle, USMC, wasn't as funny as the Andy Griffith show. No, not not at all. But my dad liked Gomer Pyle. I don't know why he did. My dad was in the Marines, and he couldn't stand it. (laughs) (laughs) I think think Gomer Pyle was a good... good second character, you know, a support character, but taking him all at once for half an hour was just over the top. It, 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 it just, yeah, it, it well. A great compliment in Andy Griffith. No, well, I agree with you. And I, I like the Andy Griffith show more than his follow-up show, Matlock. Oh, no. Yeah, I, 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 I love Matlock. But you're... You know, in the beginning, I thought so, but after a while, I thought it was really good. They had some good sticks in there. I love Matlock. We had another show in 1970 that was very short live called Headmaster, you might remember. No, I never. We played a schoolmaster. No. I, was no, I don't know that one. Then. Too busy. It only lasted like 13 weeks, and one of his co-stars was an old 
Crime Radio person, Parker Finley. Try to smoothie. Oh. <coughs> um, well, I won't keep you. I just wanted to say hello and um, and uh, glad to hear that you're back and hope things are slowly getting back to normal and that you're feeling better. I am, and of course I'll be glad when we get, as Rick mentioned, I'll be glad when we get this barium thing settled on Wednesday. I'll oh, gosh. I'm very glad. Swallowing yeah, that is swallowing hard that. for us, hard for anybody, even if you swallow normally. So don't be discouraged. Barium is really hard to swallow. Yeah, but, but at least if it gets the problem resolved and we know that we don't need mm-hmm. the feeding tube anymore, Ab- that'll be nice. Yes. So thank you, Virginia, for calling. Right. Well, thanks, Jim, for all the you know book reviews and all your knowledge that you share with all of us. I'm glad, I noticed you said one time you really you mentioned you really enjoyed the book on breakfast and its history. Oh, I did. I really liked it. Yes, yes. Me too. You finally got to read it, Patricia. No, I'm depending on you for the time taking. <laughs> okay. I'm a, I'm a little wrecked over here. Well, I still hope you can eventually read uh, Letter Perfect, that one on the letters. That was good. You did a great job on that one for us too, Jim. Thank you. Sure thing. Thank you, Virginia. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye, you guys. You too, Virginia. All right. Well, I we'll we'll guess we'll go about another minute. Hey, whatever you want to do, Jim. You, it's, it's 714-545-2071. Well, once Jim decides to bow out, we'll still take calls for a little while. Patricia, both we had questions. We'll see. Well, I want to ask you, Patricia, last night Walden mentioned that you put together a new group of awful shows. And one of the things he mentioned to you that you did was a quiz show from 48. What was that? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on. I'll see if I can find it. I I can. Don't go away. Don't go away. All right. Um, Seven one. Ah, okay. Phone's running. Good. Hello. You are on with Jim. And when Patricia comes back, you're on Yesterday USA. I'm still here. And I'm so glad you're doing better, Jim. I hope you just keep getting better and better. Thank you. This is? This is Shanti. I'm, I'm just... Oh, hi, Shanti. I didn't recognize you. Oh, from San Diego, right? Yeah. <laughs> you're the one, the little lady from San Diego, right? Yes. Yes. And hi. Sending the prayers for you and... Thank you, ma'am. So glad that you're doing better. And I, I enjoyed, I really enjoyed the Lucy review, your Lucy book review. Um, and I was surprised that the book didn't, eat, uh, it didn't seem to mention... Uh, when she did have a show with her son and daughter, the Here's Lucy show, where they were teenagers. Oh, yeah, they may have, he mentioned that show. I just forgot to mention that in the interview. Oh, okay. Yeah. On the the Lucy show, there were different kids that played her kids. Yeah, yeah. I I didn't see that one very much, but I did. Chris and Jerry were their names in the story. Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah, I'm having vague memories of that one. But, yeah, I was, I don't know why, but I was just a major Lucy fan when I was a kid. <laughs> she did some funny things. It just, you know, sometimes shows strike you different ways. And, and, and I guess sometimes listening to a show, particularly a TV show, mm-hmm. gives you a total perspective than watching it. Uh, Ron and I have discussed this many times about television versus radio. Yeah. And okay. getting to the argument, say, of Gunsmoke, 
My parents and I would debate this issue occasionally, comparing the radio and TV versions. My parents maintained, and I know I could never, I could never win this argument with them, and they could never win it with me. <laughs> that if, if Gunsmoke had been done on television with William Conrad, it never would have been a successful show. Okay. And I always thought Conrad was the superior Matt Dillon. Was that well? This is interesting, Jim, because you were basing your judgment on audio only. Yes. And from an audio perspective, yes, I think William Conrad had the heads up. He would have been dreadful as a personality appearing. Riding a horse and all of that. Didn't have exactly. On TV. Look. Exactly. They needed Derek to get him up on the horse, and you know, I mean, he just—he just was not the image of a of a sheriff. Okay, so Jim and Shanti, what was the best TV show all time for a blind person? <laughs> I know. I don't think I would agree on this one. Okay. I'll ask Chauncey oh. first what she thinks. TV shows. Well, yeah. The one frustrating thing about Lucy, of course, was she had these these long sticks that she would be doing yes. would be rolling mm-hmm. on the floor screaming yes <laughs> and then uh, you just kind of had to let it go but i don't know gilligan's island was pretty good <laughs> it had really good dialogue and it was just so ridiculous yeah i loved that as a kid yeah to me to me and, and again i know this wasn't one of patricia's favorites but dragnet to me was one of the few television shows that you could listen to alone and not need someone to interpret things for you. Because, you know, Jack Webb said everything he did. Yep. And and on both television and radio, it was a really high-end superior show. I didn't, I still don't particularly enjoy it. I wouldn't choose it over some of the other detective shows, the campy ones. I love the campy ones. That does not take away at all from... The, the superior quality of it and the ability to know exactly what's going on, even when you're sitting in another room. So, and I suppose Walter Cronkite's, Walter Cronkite's show, The 20th Century, was very listenable. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that show or not, Chauncey. Walter mm-hmm. Cronkite did a show on Sundays called The 20th Century. I don't remember that one. Very good. Uh-huh. And uh, there was a... Um, what I always hated about television and it got worse as time went on, is they would flash something on the screen. Like there, there was a made-for-TV movie my mother and I were watching once, and I don't remember what the name of the movie was, but a woman was accused of murdering her husband, abuse or whatever, and the, she was on trial. And the movie ended with the jury saying, we find the defendant not on a charge of murder in the first degree, not guilty, and the audience in the courtroom is applauding, the judge is beating the gavel for order, and on the screen it flashed, my mom read it to me, though acquitted of murder, Mrs. whatever her name was, did serve three years in prison for manslaughter. Based on listening to it, you would have thought she was acquitted and walked. Oh, yeah. Uh, What movie that was? It was, uh, I think it was a movie that starred... Sarah Fawcett. It was called The Burning was it Bed. The Burning Bed. Was she convicted oh. in that? There were several like that. Oh, uh, yeah, and yeah, that would that yeah that would have really made me mad because the things. And I worked at a woman's shelter, and the things that some of these women go through, and the perpetrator doesn't get what he deserves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so hard. But think, but but listening to the movie, you would think. She was acquitted. Yes. 
and then they flash that on the screen. Another thing I hate when when on the newscast now, when they flash obituaries of the year, mm-hmm. they might be talking about someone famous who died, and they're flashing ten other names that you don't know unless someone reads it to you who those names, you know, the cross-splitting on the screen. Right. Mm-hmm. I noticed in, in terms of ads, remember in the old days they used to give out phone number v- audibly when they gave out an ad. Now they don't even give out the phone. They just flash it on the screen and don't say it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And on newscast now, too, if a senator or a cabinet officer is speaking, a lot of times they won't say the name of the person who's speaking. Right. That's correct. Don't Which makes TV news very unlistenable. Mm-hmm. And I know it sounds like to, to, a, to a lot of seeing people, they might think that we're talking sour grapes, but it is frustrating. I mean, it is frustrating. The television and I, even, is I even got because I was forgetting to insert periodically during our interviews who we were talking with. You know, did it at the beginning, did it at the end, but never m- made reminders along the way. Of course, they know how frustrating it can be. Well, and of course it's, and I don't know what the solution is. I mean, well, that's I suppose they could they could do. Uh, yeah. What they do with hearing impaired, and get, I know they have some movies that have the uh, extra narration. You know, on you have to buy the equipment, I suppose. But but for TV, it's just I don't find TV an enjoyable. I never did find TV for the most part an enjoyable medium. Um, Ron and I are pr- probably two people that never could get into television. I mean, it was I would watch it sometimes. I suppose some soap some soap operas were fairly listenable, because uh, you know there was a lot of dialogue in them. But for the but uh, for the mo- and that's why I don't go to many movies today. I think it's been twelve or thirteen years since I've gone to a movie with my brother, because so many of the movies today, it's special effects and not story dialogue content. Mm-hmm. Right, and the and the special effects are so over the top. The sound is just an assault. Yeah. I, I, in fact, I went to a movie that I actually really liked the movie, but the sound was so bad, loud. it was loud, that I felt like I'd been beaten up. It was just terrible. I thought, geez, yeah. I was all stressed out when I left. Uh, another thing I noticed Thank about- heavens for podcasts. Absolutely. That's why I love podcasts, because it takes care of all that. Another thing I notice about TV panel shows now, or news station show, when they get a panel, they're all arguing all at the same time. They got four or five people talking all at once. I mean, it just, it just drives me nuts. I mean, and you don't hear a thing anyone's saying. Correct. Mm-mm. What's well, like I compare it to? When you can see them either. I compare it to, uh, well, when I hear recordings of shows like America's Town Meeting of the Air or the American Forum of the Air or even Meet the Press in the 40s and 50s, the old Meet the Press recordings, they were civil to each other. You didn't hear yelling. And that's why I don't even like modern talk radio. Modern talk radio is so mean-spirited. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I find it unlistenable. No, I won't even listen to that anymore. Yeah. It's just... Uh, it had nothing to do with the political agenda of the host. It's it's the it's the scream. It's the yeah. And they, they you can this is a talk show. Remember, this is a talk show, and the unspoken message is I do all the talking. Right, 
Right. And I actually heard a talk show host call one of his callers a moron. And I'm thinking, you can disagree with someone, but you don't have to call names. This is very unprofessional. And, at, mm-hmm. you know, at that point, I stopped listening to that show. Well, they would have been calling then behaving very unprofessionally. And if your boss wants to pay you for that, fine, but I'm not listening. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. there's a famous talk. Uh, remember, they used to, when we all kids, there used to be psychology shows were very popular on radio. It seemed like every community had one. And when a certain radio personality who goes by doctor when she really isn't a doctor, I think everybody right. knows mm-hmm. who I'm talking about, insulting her callers, I, I just never, I couldn't believe that. I mean, it's just, uh, when somebody's calling and asking for help, you just don't sit there and bang on their head. I mean, it's just... Well, there's one national doctor, and a lot of people liked her, a lot of people didn't. And people would call, and she would castigate them on the air. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And I thought, well, there are people, there are people that like to be whipped, I suppose. And I talked about that one night, and he said the same thing he just did. And, you know, of course, I was horrified as well when I heard some of the answers she gave out. And then I thought, well, these people know who she is and how she operates. Of course they they must because they're calling the show, so they're inviting it. Yes. You wonder why they they would want to. You wonder why they would want to be castigated, possibly having their neighbors and friends. Exactly. So it's amazing. they wanted, and she kept giving it to them. Yeah, it's amazing she lasted as long as she did. I agree. When she was gone, I said, finally. <laughs> well, I guess she's on XM now, one of the satellite services. Uh, yes. What I, what, what I don't enjoy, one national talk show, by the way, I found out one national host has been dropped in two major cities recently because I guess his temper got out of hand. Uh, Which one was that, Jim? Shall I say the name? Or just... Go ahead. Michael Savage. Michael Savage, yeah. Ah, uh, uh, yes, okay. Yeah. yeah. Chicago and, and Washington, D.C. have dropped him. He yeah, was on tape delay in Chicago. Yeah, those are two biggies. He could be acerbic. He could be out of control. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me that it finally caught up with him, but major outlets like that, wowzers. Yeah. But it, but it reminds me of how good radio could be with town meeting and those types of shows. Mm-hmm. And you wish, uh, Walden, and you say that even a host like <coughs> Ira Pistel couldn't even get on the air today. He doesn't think so. Yeah. You know, some, into a, a very smart, articulate person who uh, welcome counterpoint discussion on a very civil basis right now. It's just not in radio forte. It's just not. And yeah. it's, yeah. Very few. A yep. lot of the stations that I listen to, this one included, mm-hmm. there are just a few, just very few, that where you can listen to people speaking in a with using a civil tongue. Yes. And who can disagree and say, "Okay, I disagree," and I agree to disagree here. Mm-hmm. And we're still friends afterwards. I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, there's no. <clears throat> we disagree on radio shows, for example. There's no right or wrong to this. Exactly. The views are subjective. It's like mm-hmm. books or. Or TV shows. Mm-hmm. Um, you, <clears throat> when you do your awful shows, Patricia, it's an <laughs> yeah. opinion. It's an I'm, opinion. I'm hanging out to dry there, yeah. 
We've had people call in and say, we don't think this is awful, but oh, if you think so, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's right, Jim and Ron in Chicago, and I have had discussions about this, and they say, I think it's okay because, and I'll say, I picked it because, and it, most of the time, we sit there and say, oh, yeah, I never thought about that, <laughs> and, it, and it's on both sides, mm-hmm. and uh, the last time that happened, I think it was the last time it happened, was when Ron called in and said, some of the worst ones that you're picking are from the 1930s when pickings were slim and actors and actresses were just accustoming to radio. You know, and he, and he had some really valid points. And my comeback was <laughs> awful is awful. So, you know, I'm really sorry that that's how it happened, but it happened. So, you know, we were looking Well, my mother told me once that they were just so happy in the 30s to have anything to listen. Uh, Ron and I have speculated about how awful it would have been to have been a person in our condition, say in the 1880s or 1870s. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even imagine living, and I know you probably couldn't either, Chauncey, imagining living in the 1870s or 80s with nothing to listen to except your, your neighbors or your, someone playing the piano maybe at the house. Or, mm-hmm. or if, you, if you played the piano yourself, yeah. which was... Right. A lot of the times, the case. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but it would be bore. You know, radio, radio particularly, just enriched our lives where we got to see the world on the outside. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and in the '30s, people were just so happy to have anything. Yes. Well, My mother yeah. told me how she and her cousin would listen in their bed to the witch's tale. Now we like suspense, maybe, and inner sanctum, and other shows that were quietly, other shows that were more sophisticated. But to a 12-year-old in 1936, it must have been the biggest thrill just to hear a story, however yeah. good or bad it was. And I, I actually like that show. It's campy and it's weird, but, yeah, I really like it. Well, Nancy was kind of fun, wasn't she? <laughs> she was, yes. And in, oh, during the show, she changed her ages at least twice. So she had three different ages. One, she, for example, one that I listened to the other day, she was 110, then 117, and then, I don't know, maybe 124 even. But she would change ages during a particular show. And, and as a teenager, wasn't she a teenager? She was 13. Voices? Yeah. One of them, yeah. yeah she one was of them was. Marion, but, Marion um, Wolf, yeah. Yeah, I wondered if that was uh, a production technique to use because it kept people glued. I wonder how old she's going to be next. Mm, could be. Could be. <laughs> also, we got to point out, if you think about the 30s, if you ever look at a radio log for the day, is how much music, live music, was part of the radio uh, mm-hmm. playlist. So it tells you how important music was and live music was. And so for a lot of people, that was important to have... Uh, that format as, as a, and I think in a lot of cases you look by the 40s and things we didn't have as much live music compared to looking to the early 30s so well, well also when you think about shows like uh, well whether it be on the serious side such as President Roosevelt's fireside chats mm-hmm. how reassuring they were to the American people and even some of the religious programs like I guess the most famous example would be the old fashioned revival hour mm-hmm. That show was so popular, people in jails and hospitals and psychiatric places 
listen to that show because yep. she would read letters, you know, from those type of places. And also, it was important to a lot of rural America who did not have a church in their community. They tuned that in. That was their way they got their spiritual food. Their for Sunday it. service. Mm-hmm. And it was in a, in a rural area. You know, she read a lot of letters from Oklahoma and Mississippi and a lot of places like that. So radio was just such a, a godsend to people. I don't, I can't picture today's radio people being nostalgic about it in 40 years, but of course I could be wrong. It's still amazing to think, like, my great-grandmother, my dad's grandmother, lived on a farm, and they didn't have electricity until 1948. 48. 48. Can you imagine? I mean, the radio they had was running battery power, and she would turn it on just to hear the, the news at noon to find out, but that was it. But think of a community, whole farmland, not having any electricity. And, and it's just amazing to think that here, all of us, on the phone and Skype, we, what are the benefits of electricity, phone, power, mm-hmm. all these things that mm-hmm. we take for granted in so many ways that yeah. our relatives yeah. did not have. It's just incredible yeah. to think about. Well, when you think about because inventions is our theme for tonight. Oh. Well, when you think about Ron talked once, I think it was Ron that said he thought the most important invention of the last 150 years or 200 years, and when you think about it, he's probably right, indoor plumbing. Hmm. I mean, th- I mean, when you think about it, just yeah. how much easier mm-hmm. that made life, not only for going to the washroom, but for bathing and washing and... All of that. Well, think. Uh, and then you had to clean toilets. Wait a minute here. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true too. But. <laughs> well, can you? But I mean, like. I'm only joshing. Well, but I just meant having it indoors, where you didn't have to go out in the winter and. Oh, in the freezing cold. Ooh, ooh. Yeah. 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 Chamber pot. Well, I was thinking about that gun smoke episode, that classic gun smoke episode called The Cabin, where Matt saved this girl who was being assaulted by yes. these two killers. Well, before that, he's writing on a horse through the bl- through a blizzard. And when you think about a Kansas blizzard riding a horse, you know, we have a cars with a roof over our head, but how people had to ride those horses in open air. With the snow hitting your face. Yes. <laughs> yes. Or even in the uh, the covered wagons. Yeah. People, uh, my, my professor told me, my history professor told me, that a lot of people, I didn't realize this, when they were going west, they weren't riding in a wagon. The wagon was for the furniture. They were walking beside the wagon. Yeah. And the mm-hmm. horse were pulling. Wow. That's why they, yeah. a lot of people didn't survive. Yeah. It's a rough... So we live in a good age. You know, in, in many ways, the age is great. I mean, as far as, say, medicine, as far as uh, plumbing, as far as the Internet. Some, but, but, you know, I have mixed opinions about the age we live in. I don't like the quality of our entertainment, but yet we have so many conveniences that we didn't have in the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's six of one and half a dozen of the other, I suppose you could say. Oh, yeah. The um, right is that everybody's stuck on their phones and nobody's talking to each other anymore. <laughs> well, also, but it's nice to be able to have things like call waiting where you can, you know, if someone calls you and you're on the phone, you can... Uh, answer it, or, or it's nice to uh, have a recording that if you're not there, you won't miss a call. True. Um, 
So we have, you know, but but I do think over the air radio has certainly gone downhill in quality. I was so glad to be able to have internet radio because I listen to a classical station pretty much because KCBS, our all news station here, so much of the news is repetition. You know, within mm-hmm. an hour, you they just repeat it over and over again. And the commercials just drive me crazy. The Cars for Kids commercial just drives me insane. Like that song just drives me insane. Can you sing the song for us, Jim? <laughs> uh, I don't have the voice tonight, I don't think. Um, oh. And I know, you know, the kid and the guy, it just, it's just one of those things that just irritate you. Kind of, And another thing that irritates me about commercials today is that enhanced speech at the end of the commercials. Price is not available. Uh-huh. Yes, it goes super fast. Can't they just talk normal? That's all print. That's their version. That's the audio the version. governmental requirements, and the only way they can get them in and satisfy the government is to turn it up to Mickey Mouse speed. Yeah. It's not even Mickey Mouse. Ma- I mean, it's not even no, Chipmunk. It, it, it isn't, no. It's, it's like an irritating... Um, and, like, we can talk normally. I mean, if you have, uh, it's, it's just it's just one of the irritations of life. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I'm sure. also irritated by the fact that most of the CBS stations now don't even carry the full five-minute newscast. They break They're away. They're not going to have any. They, they just sold CBS Radio Network. We won't be having CBS News very soon. They're going to Intercom. Yeah. Will they still use the name? Will Intercom have to pay the name? Use the name CBS, kind of like Westwood One. Well, I read one. They just might just drop the whole CBS logo. Wow. Wow. Well, we've lost Mutual. We've lost NBC. Yeah. We've lost ABC for the most mm-hmm. part. Uh, the old traditional networks, as we knew them, are just you know gone. Yeah. Gone. The uh, iHeart ate up a whole bunch of networks. That's true. Yeah. I heart. It's like, yikes. It's monster. Isn't, isn't that a great name for a network? I heart. I mean, you know. I, I cumulus. I mean, cumulus. I, I still find it amazing that KABC, WABC, WLS, KGO, all these longtime ABC stations are no longer connected even in name with ABC. Mm-hmm. Um, but... It's, you know, the world, I know the world changes, not always for the better, but at least yesterday USA is one network where you know you're going to get stable programming. And good programming. Thank you. And good programming, yes. Yes, we are. Yes. You are the best. In fact, I think, are you going to have Ed to, uh, tomorrow? Uh, no. Perry tomorrow. Oh, okay. okay. Perry tomorrow, and then a week from tomorrow is John Benny. Uh-huh. She'll be live, so we'll take Joe call for John Benny, and then Ed will be on the 26th. Oh, okay. And okay. tonight, uh, as we mentioned earlier, later tonight, th- tune in, everybody. The we butter. sat down and talked to an English butler, so that will be heard. And then ten- a week from tonight, we're going to be talking about the crown jewels of Houdini. Oh, okay. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, Patricia, all you have to do research, basically... Milt Larson is planning to build a second magic castle near his home in Santa Barbara. And the Tsar of Russia um, thought Houdini was wonderful. And so, as a thank you gift to Houdini, 
first of all, we wanted him to be his spiritual advisor. We he turned that that down. And we all know through World War One history who took over for that whole and caused the whole family to go down the drain. But mm-hmm. um, the Bolsheviks and all of that. Yep. Yeah. So at the gift, who didn't we give him the jewels of the Tsar family? And was made into the brooch, and Houdini's widow gave that to Milt Larson's mom. So that's what's gonna go on. That's gonna go on the auction block. So we're gonna talk about the history of that a week from tonight. So it should be. That reminds me. Speaking of Joan Benny, I know when we she was on last year, mm-hmm. she had never heard those three or four suspenses. So I wonder, maybe you might, maybe John and Larry at some point can get those four suspenses that Jack appeared in. Ah, that's a good thing. Okay, her. sure. Uh, one was, of course, called. Murder in G flat, mm-hmm. which was February April fifth of fifty one. Then you had uh, a good and faithful servant, which was fifty two, and then fifty three Plan X, and I think fifty four was the face is familiar. There were four Jack Benny suspenses. As, as I say, Jim, you're the best radio historian there is in the business. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who needs books? Who needs logs? We have Jim. That's right. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Yeah. I will let you guys go, and it was so good to hear you, Jim. And Thank you, Chauncey. You're doing Glad to hear, and by the way, I appreciate your prayers and support. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's great to be home again and on the road to recovery. Absolutely. That's great. Wonderful, wonderful. And everybody, enjoy the evening. All right, Chauncey. And we'll be talking soon. And you'll be seeing John and Lauren. You'll be seeing great weekend. You'll, what's left of it? You'll be seeing John and Lauren two weeks. So we want a yes. full report if they behave when you had lunch with them. Oh, we'll have a great time. I'll, I will fill you in when it happens. Good. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. And we'll get their side of the story and then measure it. <laughs> <laughs> no. I am teasing. That's what um, Walden's mom did. We interviewed. Walden's uncle, Jim, yes. who is the four-star general he talks about, and who is the brother of uh, Walden's mom. <laughs> she listened, and she said, before the, we even had the interview, she demanded equal time on the other side, just in case. I was so, so, that was so funny. Yeah, that's, that's what was in my head, not that either one of you would misrepresent, but you know, I, that was just one of the funnier things that happened in the last couple of months. So so whichever one talks first, we'll give the other one equal opportunity and see how well they match up. Well, the last time we met, uh, we, we had lunch, and we got a free lunch. The guy never came back with our ticket. Wow. And, and the guys are going, well, what are we going to do? And I said, let's just get up and go. And they obviously don't want our money, so let's go. <laughs> we left. <laughs> wow. We had a really good... We're going to hang around you more. Wow. Very strange. I don't know why the guy didn't ever come back. Oh, if we're, when, maybe John and Lori have something going for them. So cause when we went up to Seattle uh, for reps last year, and we sat in the airport. Uh, John really wanted lunch, so we went to the lunch and we ordered a nice meal. From, and the waiter said, "Somebody p- picking up all three of your guys' meal." How <gasps> oh, nice! And they were, they didn't. They said he's already left. He didn't want any thanks at all. How <gasps> oh, nice! Wow! And I said, because Larry said, "You know, somebody's gonna buy. Him. We ought to go over and thank them." But they said, "No, they already left." That is- they already left. Those are the modern day. Angel. Uh, well, yeah, those are the random gifts of kindness. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love yeah, that. I love that to is... do those kinds of things if they're, of course, in the kindness 
frame of mind, but yeah. Remember, so you, you were victims of a random act of, ki- of uh, kindness. Remember, remember the whole phenomenon about five years ago during Christmas time? Mm-hmm. When it was economically it was so hard for many families to buy kids for the toy. And they would, yeah. like, Kmart and places had layaway plans for kids. You know, parents would try to save some money to buy. And you had sure. people actually buying the gifts or paying the layaway yep. plan for other mm-hmm. things without knowing. It was a whole phenomenon hey, going. That was, and that, that is still happening today. That is so nice. Oh. Yeah, it's yes. not getting the visibility that it did, and I wish it would. But people are still doing that, Walden. That's, that's, that's great. good to the heart. Isn't that to think about? Yeah, that gives you a warm fuzzy. <laughs> yeah, and they just kind of sneak in and sneak out, and nobody knows who did it. You know, that might be something for us to try to find, Joanne. There must be a, a, a networking website. It does seem to be like for everything else, you know, little angels that help out little causes. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So maybe we can talk to somebody about how this phenomenon take over. It's, it's, why not? Why not? Ooh, Tallulah Bankhead was on the show there every day. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> this is good. Well, Shanti, it's so good to hear from you. Thank you for calling in and saying hi to Jim and hi to me and hi to Walden and hi to everybody. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yes, thank you, Johnson. Thank you, Johnson. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. All right, family. Well, we'll just stay about, I guess we can stay about another minute or uh-huh. two, and then if people want to call and otherwise... And then next week, hopefully it jumps up to it, we'll have Groucho Marx. So that will be the book topic of the week. That'll be fun. You know? Groucho was a very complex person. Yes, he was. And it's interesting to compare. Right now I'm reading about the Marx Brothers and their movies, but I'll be really interested in the section on You Bet Your Life, how that came about. and mm-hmm. I know the basic story, but the more details about it. And yeah. There were people at the time who thought, that it was a come down for Groucho to do a quiz show. Hello, um, hello, you're on the air with Jim and Patricia. Hello, you guys. Hello, Celeste. Hello, Celeste. How are you? Celeste in Texas. Well, Jim, I'm so glad to hear how you're, you're just recovering wonderfully. And Thank I'm you. going through a bad thing. I fell up my steps. Oh, no. Oh, boy. And I had to have a screw put in my hip, and it's been really, really painful. Yeah. Oh, boy. But I don't know what I'd do without you guys to listen to. Let me tell you what what happened to radio or networks, but mainly radio. Um, There used to be a thing called the Fairness Doctrine Mm -hmm. on radio. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right, fair time. And this meant that if you had a certain opinion, uh, a newscaster that had a certain opinion, then there would have to be a newscaster with the other opinion mm-hmm. so that the audience would get a, a, a clear view of who was, you know, of what the facts were and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, equal time. Yeah. When that fairness doctrine was voted down, the the congressman that I worked for, he worked night and day. He was on the communications committee, and he worked night and day to keep that con- that uh, fairness doctrine in there. 
but unfortunately, the other side won. The fairness doctor, doctrine was done away with, and this is when you have these people like Rush Limbaugh and people that just spew hatred night and day. This, this is what's happened to our newscasts. Yeah, I, I remember the time when a, a host would have one side, and you had to keep track, and you had to have generally uh-huh. the other side on the had to have a certain amount of time yep. and all that for each point of view. Yep. And and it's good to get both points of view. Mm-hmm. That's that's the way we educate ourselves and and so forth and so on. But when that fairness doctrine went out, uh, you know the. The newscast and these people on radio, when you're driving around and you hear them, they just use the most filthy language. Yeah. You, you know, I, I, I hate for my granddaughter to hear that language that they use on on, yeah. on the radio now. It, it's just terrible, terrible, terrible. Celeste, I have a question, Celeste. In, in the arguments for and against the equal time and fair timing, whatever it was. It was in the best best interests of politicians to have the law in place. Oh, gosh, yes. And when somebody came on and said, okay, this is the candidate and this is what we're going to be doing, and and then Uh the opposite side could say, oh, wait a minute, I get my equal time next week. Right. Why did the politicians not want to keep it? Well, because, uh, you know, they, they want to present only their side. And, and radio, these talk shows, uh, you know, people call into and everything like that, uh, that, that, that profits one side only uh, now. It's, it's now, yes. Yes. Don't have a good viewpoint yeah. if you're a voter and you're thinking, well, I'm thinking about health care. So let's see. Let's have one side on to present their side and another side on to present their side. Then when I vote, I can make an educated vote. But now, without the fairness doctrine, you don't hear the balance. If, if, I, if, I, if I remember, Patricia, it was, it was also part of a package deal. And what I seem to remember, it used to be that with radio stations and TV stations were required to give so much time a mm-hmm. year for public service. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I that think... Good thing. Oh, yeah. And I think that sort of got tossed out practically at the same time. Oh, it did. It's the Fairness uh, Doctrine. When the Fairness Doctrine went, and I'll tell you a sad thing that happened here in Texas, when this crazy man took over that place in Waco and had all those children locked in there and everything. Oh, Chris, Chris. Yeah, the Chris, uh, what was his first name? Uh-huh. Chris, yeah. David Chris. There, there you go, Jim. Yeah. There was a radio um, a talk show host that was goading them on to kill the Texas Rangers who were trying to rescue, rescue those poor children and everything. And then that's when those two guys, goaded on by this talk show host, I'm not going to say his name, they went and bombed the Murrah building in Oklahoma City. And that's what evil this this kind of talk can be on the radio. Mm-hmm. 
Well, one comment on that I will say is that people attacked the FBI, they attacked Janet Reno, they attacked people for rescuing, or trying to rescue those people. If they hadn't done anything and, those, and Koresh had killed them, and we'd had, say, another Jonestown, yeah. you know, like Guyana, then the same people would have attacked the government for not intervening. Yeah, of, of course. It's like a, a, the traditional debate teams where you have to hop on one side of the story. Then you've got the what I find funny, too. Always counter the argument, yeah. What I find funny, too, is some of these same talk show hosts were talking about Waco and Ruby Ridge. They were, and again, I wasn't a great Bill Clinton fan, but in fairness to him, he was not president when Ruby Ridge happened. That's right. Mm-hmm. In Idaho, you know, Bush Bush Senior was president, uh-huh. but there were talk show hosts that blamed Bill Clinton for Ruby Ridge. Yeah, yeah, I know that's. I know that's the way it goes, Jim. But see, if you had that fairness doctrine in, uh, you would have heard both sides of that. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't. And then just think of those poor innocent people working in that Murrah building in Oklahoma City. That was so tragic. And it's just spurred on by these spewing of hatred. I. I don't know what else. Well, that was a very tragic situation, and unfortunately, uh, and of course, it's always hard to know where to draw the line. You have you have freedom of thought, you have freedom of religion. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you have the whole issue. I remember the whole issue years ago about one religious group does not allow people to get blood transfusions, or uh, mm-hmm. I won't oh. name the group because I don't yeah, want. Yeah, it's a Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. Right. And the whole issue is when children are involved, mm-hmm. do the parents have the right to keep their children from getting medical treatment if it saved their lives, I or are you interfering with their religious court. freedom? Yeah. yeah. It's a hard line to wind up in a courtroom over that. Yeah. It's a hard line to know when, when where you draw the line. Mm-hmm. Well, here's you, the thing. This crazy man from London put out this thing that if you if you get your inoculations for measles and all these things for polio and all that, that your children will get autism. And it is just a lie. But there are groups of women that go around this country, and I hear them call in, and they won't let their children be inoculated. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? Yes, I can. Can you imagine you wouldn't want to have polio little drop? You know, the little drop. What happened in Disneyland? Uh, How many years ago was it? About two years, Walden? About two years ago, yeah. I think it was from Germany, came to Disneyland. He had the measles and 100 children were affected. That's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And only the children who were not inoculated were the ones who contracted measles. Uh, I find it amazing when you think about. Change anybody's mind. I find it amazing that when I was a child, they didn't have any measles vaccines, and you, did, mm-hmm. you just got chicken pox or measles or whatever. Oh yeah. And you just got them. I can. Huh? I, and I'm, when I read about the polio vaccine, I can imagine. I've heard radio shows where, rely uh, well, on some of the early gun smokes, where they're doing public service ads. George Walsh was telling people to keep 
you know, that you need to keep your Red Cross supplied with blood for the polio epidemic this summer. And how right. my mother told me how you had to have to keep the doors shut a lot of times and people would mm-hmm. stay in in the summertime. Oh, yes. When I was a little girl growing up, they would tell our parents, don't let your... And I was I started swimming when I was three. I took Red Cross classes. But a lot of people wouldn't let their children go swimming or anything like that, you know. It, mm-hmm. it, it, it's a terrible thing when these scientists do these wonderful things to help our children. And then these nuts go around saying, no, I'm not going to let my children be enough. I can't imagine that. Who, what was the first vaccine? Do we know, Patricia, that they were probably successful? Smallpox. Um, was it smallpox? Probably smallpox, I would they, think. Uh, when, are, are you talking about in general or in general. polio? In general. In general. In general. Well, I'm going to guess smallpox. You are? Smallpox in the 1700s, late 1700s, early 1800s. I, I just got thinking. Oh, okay. I thought you said I'm getting smallpox. No. Oh, no, I, I, I said smallpox vaccine. Yeah, because I got thinking, my guess is it was invented after the Civil War. I, well, there was smallpox before, But I think. But I, I, I don't know when we had a vaccine for it, though. Mm, well, let us see. Look it up, Patricia. <laughs> And then you think of tetanus, but that's one of the things, by the way, in the Lucy book, I, I mentioned that he, her father died of typhoid. Mm-hmm. There were no typhoid shots at that time. And that was a major problem. When floods happen in the community, you're always worried about typhoid. That was a, a major health concern for many, many communities over the years. The Internet for me is incredibly slow tonight. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. I will drag my body out to the small computer, which is the only one I can access Hotmail with, because mm. there's a Hotmail issue. Smallpox vaccine. Mm-hmm. Not going to get any help there either. Okay, you keep talking and I'll keep looking. By the way, everybody, we're, we're starting two new shows on Yesterday USA. And we're still waiting for Jim and Ron to deba- debut their show, but we'll wait well, when they're ready. But, you know, that, that we might move them to Wednesday on the Blue when that happens. But tomorrow, there's a new call, show called Saturday Morning for Kids, and it'll be featuring kids' shows. And put together by a gentleman in 20 uh, named Jonathan Reese from New York. And that will be heard starting tomorrow. And then... I don't know if more people saw the news that Imagination Theater is closing the doors. Yeah, I heard about that. It, yeah, and, uh, well, it's been a financial struggle, and Jim and Pat French, Jim and Pat French were getting up to the point, so they had decided, uh, if Pat, with the last live production, they closed the, the doors, and Pat French just passed away Monday. And so they are shutting down in March. So we're going to replace their one-hour show with reps. Reps are starting a new one-hour show. And okay. so you'll start hearing that Saturday. And that will be... And what time is the imagine, is the Saturday, Sunday morning show going to be on? It'll be during... It'll be the old C. Darnell's time slot. 
So at oh, 11 oh, at 10, 10 yeah. Pacific. Right. Yeah. So that's the new time show. But, Jim, when, you, you, when you're on already, I'm just going to put you in part of the Wednesday blue lineup. So, um, so that way there's no rush. And Bill wanted to find a spot. So I knew we had it. That open. Yeah, we're just right, Ron and I are still trying to work out the tech, me, the computer, and Ron, uh-huh. the technical glitch, so, all that stuff. So I, I expect you guys to be ready by next week, but that's okay. <laughs> so, so, um, so, and reps are starting at the end of February? Yeah, probably be end of March, because, uh, uh, imagine, we're going to run all Imagination Theater show until they shut it down. And, yeah. uh, so my guess is it'll be more. And that's hosted by our friend Brian Henderson and Jill Olivier, the Jim's the past president reps. And Brian, of course, is a frequent yesterday USA caller and uh, from Seattle. So they're, they're co-hosting that show. And how's the other Brian doing, the one that used to call you on Hey, Sunday? good. He's doing fine. He's busy. We'll be putting together a showcase in April. <coughs> so we'll be busy. So, so well, as... No like Patricia tonight. Yes, Patricia? No homework for Patricia tonight. No computer? And yeah, my computers are fine. No, um, no it's it, the internet no, no that internet. is giving me fun. Oh. So it's probably CenturyLink, not anything else. But anyway, I can't get Anyway, it. it's the, the main thing is we're just lucky to have the shots and vaccines yeah. and things yes. available now. Yes, Oh, my goodness, yes. So, so, so that's how you're feeling anyway. Is it, you still got a few more months of recovery? Oh, pretty much. I mean, we the big test will be, like I said, the swallow test, mm-hmm. uh, whether we, we need to remove the feeding tube, if I can just stop coughing. Uh, and we still don't know if that's a swallow issue or an issue related to the fire. Because, mm-hmm. you know, there may be some smoke that got into my lungs. You know, I, someone said I inhaled. That it, or I probably breathed in the smoke of I don't know how many cigarettes. You know, I've never smoked cigarettes in my life, but the equivalency of hundreds of cigarettes apparently in those few minutes—that's uh, what they told me. Um, the thing is, I don't even remember breathing. I just remember feeling the heat and uh, waiting for this. As I said, waiting for the sirens is the last thing I remember until I was in the hospital. We didn't know until you told me that you were the one that put in the call to 911. Yeah, they, my housemates were gone. Yeah. They were neck down the street, and she came back and saw the flames. I'm just glad my phone was working. <laughs> and yeah. the other thing I'm glad about, people told me, I'm just glad I wasn't asleep when the alarms went off. Because sometimes I was off. Yeah. I think we lost Celeste's phone. I think see, her phone might have dropped off, so... So well, ask, you can call it back. Wants, yeah. I'll go about one more. I can go about one more minute if anyone wants That's to right. call. That's right. Anybody wants to call, you can talk to Jim. If not, we'll let him get rested up for next week. Our number is 714-545-2071. Patricia got out of work tonight. There's no email, no internet. So good. There's but, no internet. And I, in order to get email, I had to go to the smaller computer in the living room because that's the only one that would let me override the certificate prize. It's a mess. I know. I'm that's having to... Say. It used to be so simple with my yellow pads and pencils. <laughs> well, I want to say it has been oh. a pleasure talking Hello, to all of you tonight. I think Hello? we got a call. Hello, Dale. It's just me calling. I think my phone dropped off. I think it did. It's just me calling Jim back. Jim, I want to tell you... Uh, uh, 
a, uh, a funny joke. One night I was teasing Walden and Larry about uh, not playing good stuff on Memorial Day because they played the Lone Ranger. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and I think you thought I was serious, and I wanted to tell you it was just a joke between all <laughs> Walden and okay. Mary. Well, I, you know, you know, there were. I, I suggest you to Larry that next Memorial Day there was a good Fort Laramie episode about <laughs> a, wi- a widow who wanted her husband buried at Arlington Cemetery, and he had died on the plains, and there was a story that revolved around that on a western. Uh-huh. Okay, well, that's good. That's good. Well, you sound wonderful, honey, and I'm not... Thank you, Celeste. I hope you just keep progressing and progressing. You're going to be okay. Thank you. The the greatest thing is just being home. I know. Well, we love you, and we keep you in our prayers. Thank you very much. Good night, honey. Good night, Celeste. Good night, Celeste. So I will say, I guess, good night to all of you. Okay, it's Kim. It's been a pleasure. Glad. I'm glad, I'm glad to phone you I'm so glad we got to have you spend time with us tonight. I mean, really, we are just so happy that you're here. Well, thank you again, and I thank you and Walden and Virginia and everyone who called and even the, and those that are listening. We will um, talk, try to talk to you. I'll keep Walden advised on the book and... If I'm done, we will review Groucho Show next week. Perfect, Jim. Excellent. Thanks again. Thank you. Good night, Goodbye. Jim. Bye. Goodbye. Do you like to talk to Patricia, the one that has no internet? You know. <laughs> well, that's good. That means no homework. So I'm I'm okay. With so that. Am, am I out? Do I have no quizview questions? Am I free? You are not. <laughs> that does not depend on the internet. That is on my computer, and you know it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, I have to hold on. I have to get back to the other room. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, <laughs> I'm learning to do a lot of stuff that I never had to do before. <laughs> um, keep talking. Twelve more seconds. Okay. This is the this is this is the family show where we do medical updates. We check on. Yes, we do medical <laughs> updates. Oh, oh gosh. Oh my goodness. That's, okay. you know, that, that's the beauty of Doctor Show. In order to be part of it, you have to have something wrong with you. And so that is part of it. <laughs> <laughs> Only the ones who are having problems can call first. <laughs> that means I get to talk first. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Not true. Not true. So I, are we doing your questions? Is that what we're doing? Well, we're doing anything. People want to call in. They got, they got, they got another. When you, you know, it's about. It, the lines it's eight, are open. The lines are open. Is that what you're telling me? Yes. It's 18 okay. after midnight, everybody. We have a two-hour interview, which I think we should get to in the next hour or so. So, Patricia, start doing question. You can call in and say, Patricia, I sent you an email. Why didn't you answer it? And she has a good excuse now. I don't get, I don't Not have it. Not even an excuse. It's a reason. <laughs> so, I think. So... I didn't do anything to it. It's not my fault. Not this time, anyway. No. I've done some strange things to my poor computers, uh. but this is not my responsibility. It just would not go through. And on the older versions of stuff, they've got override 
capability. They'll say, you know, this is why we're not letting you in right away, but you can continue and override it, which I did on the small computer, but the big one, it, which is newer, will not allow me to do that. <laughs> Them the berries. It's the program, it's not the computer. Yeah. I'm having the certificate error like you, you're having. It's so, it's so frustrating to see the thing come up. It is, and nobody's going to correct it if I'm the only one who's having it. So Until the next time they update their certificates, which is probably <laughs> like 10 years from now. Yeah. But anyway, okay, well, I've got a whole bunch of stuff. I do even have a theme. Good. Yeah, because today is National Inventors Day. So what the did, 11th. So, me, it's moved over. But So what have you invented in your lifetime, my dear? In my lifetime? Yep. I've invented an awful lot of chaos. Ah, very good. Yes. Oh, new ways to deliver it, too. <laughs> so, anyway, I want to know, in everyone's opinion, which is the greatest invention of all time. And it could be a carriage, a stagecoach, a printing press, a car, a microwave, bowling ball return apparatus, aerosol can, washing machine, refrigeration, anything at all. I invented, some, I invented something when I was seven. And and, and I'm surprised I kept talking about it, and so we should have gone ahead and patented it, and now it's common use now. So I was what? way ahead of my my time. Yes, I think you still are. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, I think you still are. So, okay, what was it? Well, what is it? Well, remember the days when ketchup came in a glass bottle? Uh-huh. I said when I was, why don't we put these in plastic bottles and we're going to squeeze it? Stand out, everybody gone to plastic squeeze bottles. And I just, you know, I, I, as a little kid at uh, seven, I said, this is what we should be doing. Yes. So I was way ahead of my time. Yes, you were. So there. I agree. I have a wonderful one. Yes. That... I hope somebody listens, picks it up, and patents it for all I care. But when people are out driving at night and a motorcycle is coming toward you, it looks like it's farther away than it actually is because it's only one headlight. You think it's mm -hmm. a car with one headlight out, but you're never sure which side. And, it just, and people pull out in front of them because they think they're much farther away than they are. And I was sitting here thinking one night, what kind of device would let car drivers know that they were looking at a motorcycle and not another automobile? And I thought, we've got these teeny weeny winky LED things, mm -hmm. just, you know, lights that, that will blink or like Christmas tree lights for good. And it doesn't even have to be big, but it has to be bright. And put one of them on the front of every motorcycle. And it will be a signal that it's a motorcycle without being intrusive. Nobody's going to get blinded by a little Christmas tree light. Yeah, it'll be a little bit bigger than that. Mm -hmm. but. And I thought, wouldn't that be fabulous? How many lives would it save for people who want to pull out from a side street and think they've got more room because it's a car coming instead of a motorcycle? And I tried to pass it on to a motorcycle person who had a really big and beautiful Harley. We were talking in the parking lot one time. And he said, gosh, that's a great idea. I'm going to pass it on. But I haven't seen anything yet. 
So if someone is listening, I don't care if you patent it or not, but it's going to save lives if you do something. So do it. So maybe you want to send an email to Harlow. You want to get email connection back. Yeah, I could do that. Well, you know, they typically don't accept things like that because, you know, doing, doing cold from, because they're afraid of, you know, what happens in the writing industry. Uh, people will say, oh, I, I, I did that sentence 38 years ago. He plagiarized. Yeah, but <laughs> I, think, I don't stuff. know. Some, some places like General Mill have a place for people for ideas and inventions. On their website, you can submit it. Really? So, okay, so, so and you know, Harley-Davidson is, they're starting to become unpopular because they, the, the nickname for Harley is a hog. And... You know, they're, they're bigger and not as sleek in general as some of the others that are coming up. But, uh, yeah, that might put them back on the map. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe, so maybe. I, I'm really serious. I don't care if anybody gets there first. It's going to save life. So when you, when you become a multi-millionaire, will you still yeah. do the show with me? Of course. Okay. Of course. Okay. You know, inventions are so fragile. <laughs> 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 I, I must. I must do my collection of zeros before. <laughs> yes, I will, of course, do okay. that. Okay. But I just thought that was a great idea. That's a great idea. I think it's some of the great inventions that were so simple. The concept was so simple, and we don't mm-hmm. use it today, like the safety pin. Yes. Or paper clips. Yes, and, the, and a clothespin. Yeah, nope. I'm not sure everybody uses clothespins anymore. I look for them because I use them as bag closers instead of the big clips for potato chip bags mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I use clothespins. Heck of a lot cheaper. And if they start to wear out, you just toss one and you've got another dozen in the drawer. Paper clip. Think of the paper clip. How, what yes. a simple thing that turned out to be. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, well, I have a lot of inventions for tonight. But anyway, I need to know the greatest invention of all time. What do you think? Great topic. Um, we did this once before, but I think I approached it from a little bit different direction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what, what your grandmothers or great-grandmothers would have appreciated most that we've got today. But now I just want to know what the greatest inventions were. Hmm. How about inventing fire? We didn't invent fire. Hmm. We didn't. Lightning did it and ignited forests. Yeah. So you can't have that one. No, I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. And you can't have electricity either. Okay. You can't have dirt. Okay. Because <laughs> I know you come at these things from some of the most creative directions. How about can I claim water? Well, you can claim the filter that creates clean water. Because we didn't invent water. Okay. No one invented water. Okay. Hmm. It's hard. We mm-hmm. could go back to the wheel. Yeah, but uh, I'm trying to think how. How about like the all the inventions that control fire? That way we use it for oh, cooking sure. oh, and sure. you know. Like all, what? Well, yeah. uh, 
like 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 the ovens and the stoves and and the fire rings, all those things that we use to try to we use fire in in a control element. Mhm. Pretty important. So, yeah. So if you picked one in that category, would you pick an electric oven, electric lights, electric You harnessed electricity. Now, what was the greatest invention that put it to best use? Boy, am I being picky. The oven. I love it. The oven. It, it, you think the oven. Okay, because that's on my list of possibilities. Okay. The electric oven. oven. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. So what about you? What, what do you think of the great inventions of all time? I'm still thinking. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. Now, I started listing out a couple of possibilities, and then I got to the printing press. Mm-hmm. No, you had to know how to read before you got to the printing press. So maybe, you know, and, and I was going through all of these. I don't know yet. I do not know. Will you make an announcement on Yesterday USA, the Saturday Night Show, once you decide? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, and then we have the Internet in there and computers. I can't remember you were watching a TV show that had the top 100 inventions. And I got, yeah. And, 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 and I probably you, did. And yeah, you gave us a, and you like g- an... you gave us the top 10 one time. I remember that. And I think we disagreed with the, the order or something. And well, we probably disagreed with everybody who put together that <laughs> list cuz we're so creative. I know. Yes, we are. I, I copied, uh, let me see, inventions, inventions. Where do we have inventions? I've got um, inventions between 1945 and 1960. I have a list of that. Oh, of course. Well, I think of 1940, I think of frozen food. Oh, that's, a, yes. What, what was that, 1952 Swanson put that out? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, we, we've got some really nifty stuff like this, um, a defibrillator, you know, the, the yeah. electricity that they popped the chest with when the heart had stopped beating? Yeah. That was 1947. Wow. The, what? 1947? Hospitals were just getting them about 40 years ago. Sure. Um, the air sick bag. <laughs> <laughs> this one is good. From 1949, I guess the air sick bag was, is the one on airlines that they're talking about. And they must have had enough problems with that that um, somebody invented the air sick bag in 1949. How about that? Wonderful. I've got one. I got one for women. Okay. Women's inventions. Okay. Created by women. Um, let's see here. The car heater. These are from women. 1893. Monopoly game board, hmm. board game. Oh, the board game. Monopoly board game. My goodness, yes, 1904. It was a woman. The fire escape, 1887. The life raft, 1882. Residential solar heating, 1947. These are all women. Medical syringe, yep. 1899. Um, electric refrigerator, the modern electric refrigerator was 1914, ice cream maker, 1843, computer algorithm, I don't know what that is, somebody has to explain an algorithm to me one night, 
Um, that was in the 1940s. Telecommunications technology. That covers half the world here. But anyway, uh, oh, let's see. It, it included portable fax, touchtone telephones, solar cells, fiber optic cables, and the technology behind caller ID and call waiting. So that was technology that was developed by a woman in a whole lot of years ago. It doesn't say. Isn't that uh, terrible? Okay. What the most? Right. What the best invention that came from the space program? From the space program? Mm -hmm. Well, they put Tang in there. That's what I was thinking. Tang. Yeah. Tang. I think and actually the microwave is probably way up there. I think the microwave is sort of a, a derivative for the space program, I think. Gee, I don't know. I think that was in the 1940s. Hold on. Mm. Do not go. Oh, oh, wait a minute. That's probably over here. When you hear, when you hear that uh, crunch, that, that Patricia eating her carrots, everybody. She's cousin of, of yeah, Bugs Bunny. Very good. She's very talented that way. She does. She does noises. I can purr. I can purr. I okay. Bet you didn't uh, know that. Okay. Give me a purr. Okay. She she does. Oh, this very good. So, anybody, if you're looking to, with the circuit going out of business, and you're looking for a new traveling show, somebody can do voices. <laughs> <laughs> we'll negotiate Patricia's terms of, of making public appearances. Her repertoire is pretty amazing, you know, from rabbit to cats, you know. You do a great horse. Do your horse. <laughs> no, no, your hoof beats. Oh. That's great. That's the best horse I've heard in ages. You could beat Matt Dillon on that one. No kidding. Thank you. I mean, that's really good. Thank you. Oh, it, it is very good, yes. And the microwave was 1945. Ah, pretty much before the space program showed up. Okay. I think before the space program, yeah. Anyway, so those, those are good inventions, everybody. Hairspray. Somebody's got to be happy <laughs> with hairspray. So, okay, you are the electric oven. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I just don't know. Is a Republican invention? A democracy? In it? Nah, it isn't. Of course not. I, uh, I, you know, I, I'm serious. I should have put more thought into this. I was going to beg everyone to come up with something. You'll have a, done it myself. You, you have another another week to decide. Really? The tushy roll. I don't think so. Oh, fruit cake. We've we've got better stuff than tootsie roll. I think <laughs> Tim's indoor plumbing is better than a tootsie roll. <laughs> we have. Uh, I mean, the tootsie roll is really good. But I'd rather have a bathroom than a Tootsie Roll. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. What I was thinking when Jim was talking about indoor plumbing is all the derivative things that have to go be cut, like running water, um, mm -hmm. all those things that we the the get the um, pipe system, all the things yes. that came along with it, and yes. it's, it's so amazing. And, and the curves in the downspout pipes, the it has to be curved, otherwise the backup brings up gases and it will kill you. So there were many fine tunes that had to be done before they were safe and acceptable. 
Hmm. Perfect. We're waiting for somebody to call it with the greatest invention of all time. If not, Patricia will get to my questions. So whatever yes, you decide. Well, we're going to do some Burma shave, some Winnie the Pooh, and some stuff. Perfect. I love stuff. Perfect. Burma shave. Within this veil of toil and sin, your head grows bald, but not your chin. Burma shave. <laughs> that was good. Very good. You know, yeah, they don't have any dates on any of these, mm -hmm. so I can't tell which ones were developed by the son who came up with mm -hmm. this marketing campaign. <laughs> his father, I think, gave him $250 and said, when it's, when it's out, you're finished. <laughs> and, and the sales just exploded. But I don't know which ones were done by him or which ones were done by the shoppers or the, the audience. They, they invited people in mainstream America to submit little sayings that they chose from. I don't know if they got any money for it, but so I don't know who did what, but some of them are good. Some of them are dumpy. <laughs> some of them are good. Okay, Winnie the Pooh. I think we may have done this one before, but it is worth mentioning again. You can't stay in your corner of the forest without waiting for others to come to you. You have to go to them sometimes. I didn't say that correctly, but it, I think you got the message. I did. I, it was very profound. Yeah, sometimes you have to go to them. And yeah. I think that's really nice. Winnie the Pooh had such wisdom. Such wisdom. He okay, was here's very some kind. Stuff. Here's some stuff. Okay. I have to ask you something that I asked you before, probably three or four years ago, maybe longer. General George S. Patton, Jr. I did not know his father was a general and a senior. Did you know that? I seen him not, not, I could not recall that until you just mentioned it. I, once you mentioned it, I remember you telling me that one time, but I never knew that. Yeah, yeah. But after, after, uh, if you've got a senior and a junior, after the senior dies, or the junior, if it, after one of them dies, they just go to George S. Patton. So there was there was not any reason for us to question whether or not there was another one in the family because we got to know him after his father. So, Interesting. George S. Patton. I, w I wonder how many families even skip the junior. Like my, my brother's name is after my dad, but my dad didn't call him junior. So, you know, it's just eventually you get called yeah, Phil. Are their middle names different? Yes. Okay, so my, then they, my, my dad, my dad's yeah. middle name is Leroy. Isn't that wonderful? Well, Leroy. Leroy. Leroy is okay. That's I like that. That's him. Yeah. Okay. But my brother Leroy probably, my brother's middle name probably tops them all. Which is? His, his middle name is Dexter. Dexter. Yes. That would, that would tell, that's a very unusual name. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't mix him up with anybody else either. Well, see, my mom's middle yeah, name, think... my mom's middle name is Lynn, mm -hmm. and I think most people have heard me use mine occasionally is Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T, my middle name. So, wide range of camaraderie of stuff. Yes, yes. My father was a junior. Okay. And. And he swore at the dinner table so many times when he was at the dinner table mm -hmm. and at different times. He said, I would never, 
ever, ever put a tag like that on any of my kids. And kids, I'm telling you, don't do that to any of your kids either. <laughs> and it was terrible because they both lived in the same town. We lived in the same town as my grandfather. And he was senior, and my father was junior. They would get each other's mail. Um, my grandfather, he was smart but didn't have a lot of common sense sometimes. Uh-huh. And he would answer the phone in and, and, and my father's office, and they'd say, Ed, is that you? And he'd say, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it caused all sorts of chaos. Did they share the same male name? Yes, you ha- you have to share the entire name. That's why I was wondering if that if, if, if that really a requirement to become a junior addict. Yes. Ah, okay. Yes, it is. Yes, it, it has to be a duplicate. So, you know, for them, even if people used the middle initial or the middle name, it would have matched. The senior and the junior at the mm-hmm. end were the only things that differentiated the two of them. And how many people call and say, this is John Jones Jr. calling? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> what about your, your mom? Did you, you knew what your mom's middle name was? Was that passed down to either you or Barbara? No. No. Okay. No. So they skipped that one completely. Yeah. Hello there, Carl. Really, okay. Hello, Carl. You're on with Pooh Bear. Hey, Hollywood. Hollywood. How are you? Half asleep. Okay, did we wake you up? <laughs> Do what? Did we wake you up? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I am in the process, as we speak, of loading up your uh, your shows. And um, I'm doing a reasonably good job, but the, the folders would not would not connect, so... It has to be single shows for now. What what exactly is not happening? When I when I try to upload a folder, it will mark it as an error. I have to put the individual shows one at a time. And when we get off the air, I'll talk with Walden and then later Larry because when I get material from them, it arrives in a folder. But I don't. I and it could be because I'm on a Mac. Um, no. So. No, it can't be, because Kevin didn't know how to do the do a folder either, but he did a search on the Internet for it and found out, and he's using a Mac. Now, of course, what comes in here is on the PC. tried it just to see what to do, and I, he didn't explain to me what he did. Yeah. But being yeah. a Mac ain't got nothing to do with it. There's something else wrong. Well, we'll figure it out. I'll talk with Walter. Well, I don't, want you, I don't want you putting them in like that. It's just too time-consuming. For you or for me? For you. Oh, I don't care about that. Well, I do. I, yeah, well, I, I just... I appreciate what you're doing. I, I don't want you running around in circles just to do it. No, I'm not. I'm taking from... I'm just dragging from my folder into Dropbox, and I can do 10 or 15 at a time. And when they go through, I just go back and rake over some more. It really is not a problem for me at all. I was concerned that it might be a problem for you. No. I think, um, I think the problem is, Harwood, she doesn't have any cheese with that Mac. You're probably right. <laughs> you guys picking on me again? <laughs> I'm waiting for that. The, the answer is yes. <laughs> yes. How can you tell? <laughs> because you're out there laughing at me. 
No. He is. Walden is. Oh, well, that might be. <laughs> so how are things going for you out there? Uh, just the same old thing, I guess. We well, most day yesterday and now I'm paying for it. And I just woke up a while ago. Let's see what time it was, because I figured y'all were gone, and I wouldn't oh, know. They shouldn't be now. And I turned on my radio hickey, and there you were. So here I am. And so we really did wake you up. Uh, well. Well, we perked you up. You you okay. you staggered around and grabbed and and said, "Okay, let me check." And then when we were here, you got all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I wouldn't go that far. Oh, no. But I figured I would come give it a try anyway. And, uh, okay. Okay. I never got well, that easy in my life, I don't think. Mm. Uh, well, how was your back doing? Um, I, I forgot to tell people, this is Hartwood from North Carolina. And we don't get to talk to you very often, so I know we have some people out there who need reminders. Okay, so how is your back doing, did you think? Well, um, it, it's not like it has in the past, you know, the years past, but uh, at least this is working more or less. Okay, so it's it's better. It, it, yes, it is better. It's not good, but it's, it, but it's an improvement. It has okay. what it has other years, yeah. this whole deal. Because this was the third time. First time, I might as well have been drinking water for all I get in then. Mm. But anyway. Um, I have a showy question to ask. Well, I probably yeah. have the answer, too. Okay. Uh, Harwood, are you really a Yankee? <gasps> oh, my gosh. I'll be back. I'm leaving. Um, Listen to this. He, he doesn't know how to hurt you. <laughs> He can't, he can't reach that far. <laughs> well, I can't wait for his answer. I'm sorry for interrupting. Yeah, so, well, I'm, wait, I'm waiting to see what Hollywood's going to say. Cause I, have a, I, have a, I have a response to whatever he says. Uh-huh. Oh, no. He, I, I'm awful tempted. <laughs> I'll go for it. It's late. Give it to something I had, an English teacher I had at school. She got mad one day. Nobody was answering questions. <laughs> and she finally said, Ignorance is bliss. And I think everybody in here is blistered. <laughs> okay. May I, so, so may, you, want me, you, you don't have to answer my question, but could I give you my thoughts for the day? Well, I want him. I don't want him to answer your question. Walton asked. You're right. I mean. Yeah, I know I'm right. What? Because it's the location that Harwood lives. He's not part of the South. Oh. He lives in the North. Oh, it is ignorance. I was like. <laughs> I'm beginning to say a few things that maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> I'll to the yeah, Go for it. Go for it. Well, he lives in North. I'll north. tell you, Walden. You know, he lives when in you, North. When you get down to it, there yeah. ain't no, 
there ain't no north, no way, because it's south of Canada. <laughs> and South Dakota is not in the south. So there. No, it's not. I'm on your but Okay. The, the main army of the south yeah. was the Army of Northern Virginia, which included... North and South Carolina, mm -hmm. Virginia, but it was definitely in the South. So I guess I guess have another crazy idea. Why is the only West in the United States is in the East? Why is what? The only West. Like West Virginia. Yes, it's in the East. Well, the it was the western part of Virginia. But I do have a piece of trivia for okay. you. What um, other state, let's, I, I'm trying to think how it was actually worded. I, I can't remember what, what, what the actual, how they said it. But there was another state. Mm-hmm. That was east and west. Do you know what it was anymore? You think, uh, Trish ordered to this. You think you're, like, you're talking about geographic thing, right? Um, no, well, that doesn't matter what it is, but that doesn't matter. It was called. Hmm. And I know there was one. I, I'm out. I, I don't remember. Yes, I, I'm, I'm, I'm having a problem getting the exact wording. I mm -hmm. don't think like I used to, and I'm half asleep. You're doing great. Are, but, are you saying that there was another area of the country at one time that had an east and, and a west, west part of the state? Yeah. It must I just be. can't remember exactly how it was said. Uh -huh. But it wasn't in the south either. Oh, now, the West was West Virginia created after the Civil War or during the Civil War? No. Okay. Before. But I, I don't know what the circumstances are. Right. Because I think originally it was all part of Virginia, right? Uh, it probably was. However, in the beginning, the East Coast states, or I know North Carolina did, extended from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Mm, I never knew that. Yes, in the very beginning. And Virginia was probably the same way. The land grants mm -hmm. at the time went from coast to coast. Hmm. Now, uh, it was a new I know. I know the terminology is going to make a huge difference in here, and it's the terminology that you're grappling with. So, I cannot help. Yes, it wasn't. It wasn't really said as east and west. Well, you don't call East Virginia. It's just called Virginia and in the West. Virginia. Right. But this was said differently, and I cannot, I can't get it to come to me. But the state was New Jersey. My guess is probably maybe when we had territories. You know, we had we, mm. before we can't you call it a state a state that we know as territories. So maybe, and maybe the designation might have happened during that time, or somebody. I don't what know. did New Jersey get chopped into? Who inherited the the west part of New Jersey? 
I do not know. It's just, it's something that's coming to, I know there was some kind of east and west um, division, and I don't remember how it was said, but I know it was New Jersey. Well, uh, I can't even go out and look because my, huh, my internet, let me try again. Let me see, my internet. Well, you know, what can I say about New sorry. Jersey? They can't. New Jersey and New York are fighting over the Statue of Liberty. They both claim it's on their own property. Oh, no, no, it's New Jersey's. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding, it really is. Yeah, but New York, New York, see the claim it all the time as part of the travel package, you know. Oh well, you know, travel package. You go to Arizona, you get travel package to, <laughs> to New Mexico too. No, it it does belong to New Jersey, which is kind of a squirrely thing to think about, but it is. It does belong to New Jersey. I don't know who it belongs to America. Squirrely things, and one of them's on the show here since he asked that stupid question. Say <laughs> what? I, I said there's a lot of squirrely things, and one of them is on the show when he asked that stupid question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Squirrely is such a good word. It's almost as good as stuck. Okay, let me see New Jersey. Notice how she said sure, everybody. She's really working on that. That's very good of you. I I did say. Did I say it well? You said it very well. I'm proud of you. I didn't say sure. Huh? No. Okay. All right. The province of East New Jersey, uh, along with the province of West New Jersey, between 1674 and 1702, in accordance with the Quinta whatever deed, uh, two two distinct political divisions. Whatever they were. But there was an East New Jersey and, uh, I said East Jersey. And um, it actually, how did it become Jersey? That's a well, good anyway, question. It was, it was the ocean side that split out and that grew back into all of New Jersey mm. and the state. Well, I, was some, I couldn't remember exactly how it was. I didn't realize it was that far back. But since you're in the time period, a little before my next statement. What year doesn't exist? What, what year did it exist? Oh, it doesn't exist. What year on the calendar doesn't exist? Oh, does not exist. Um, zero. Zero. No. What? Wait a minute. So, I know the answer. <laughs> I know, but that's not what I'm talking There was no calendar then, anyway. But okay. <laughs> what, what year is not on the calendar? Yes. I did. I guessed zero. I know, but that's not what... Well, well, 2018 right now isn't there, unless we're moving forward. No, I'm talking about 1752. It's not on the calendar? No. It was 52 or 53, but I'm pretty sure it's 52. And why? We are getting edified. They changed calendars and wiped out that year. Who changed calendars? I don't know. I don't know if it was, I guess it was our government. I don't know. But 
and I don't remember the circumstance of this either, but... Well, what, was, didn't they call the calendar, like, like the Julian calendar and something else? Wasn't there... It's, it's involving that. Yeah. And maybe they, they need to reset them or something. I don't remember... I don't remember the circumstances yeah. either, but... Um, well, if we have we have a leap year because almost, not quite, once in a while we have to skip one. But for the most part, we are ahead of ourselves for one year. Yeah, but year. It's had and that's why we have that's why we have to, or we're behind, and we have to give ourselves an extra day. So if they started that's, counting that's backward and said, starting with year one, this is how many days we have accumulated, and let's just put them all together in a year, and that'll eliminate the year because we got more than 365. How do you like that as a possibility? They change types of calendars, and I don't remember why the year was dropped. Um, I just gave you a great explanation. It's because uh, got, yeah, but this is a know, whole year, not two no, by the time you days. Count from year one, by the time you count from year one to year 1702 or 1750, we've accumulated more than a year's worth of days. Yeah, but I suppose I, I I just know they did something. I thought they changed types of calendar, and I can't remember what the circumstances. Were. Well, we went from um, was it the, the Julian calendar right. was after Julius in in um, yeah. Rome. And Gregorian wasn't that another one or something with a G? No, there were there were only two. Uh huh. Um. Well, actually, three if you if you um, talk about the the Jewish calendar, but that's not applicable in this particular set of circumstances. Okay, so what do I have to do? What did you say? It was seventeen fifty-two or fifty-three? Mm -hmm. hmm? Yeah, fifty-two and fifty-three is seventeen. It's the uh, yeah. That's what I said. You're very good. You're very bright. I know. It's a little slow, but it's coming up. Oh my, what an education we get in here. New Style, Act, 1750. Um, Act of the New Parliament of Great Britain. Uh, okay. Implemented across 5152. There's a calendar. Calendar reform in England, 1752. Let's see. They messed us up? Uh, you guys keep talking. I'm looking. She's brilliant. Thank to, thank to Hollywood. <laughs> it is <guiding>. widely known. <laughs> it was the Gregorian calendar, uh, calendar that I was thinking of. Um, <laughs> listen to this. This is the opening of the page that talks about <laughs> omitting a year. And it says, it is widely known that in September 1753, Great Britain switched from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar in order to achieve this change, 11 days were omitted from the cal calendar. Oh, day 11 days. 11 days. Yep. So in England, the day after the 24th of March, 60, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Could we move on to another <laughs> subject? <laughs> this is incredible. Um, we've got something else here from 1750. The New Style Calendar Act. 1750. Oh, Harwood. 
You try, you, you, my brain hurts when you hang up. Mm, calendar, calendar, Chesterfield's act. And it was reasons for what change? Um, Parliament held that after the Julian calendar then in use and the start of the year on the 25th of March. Ah, that's what it was. The Julian calendar started the year on a different date. Okay. And then they switched to the Gregorian, and the beginning date, I guess, was January 1st. So they had a whole bunch of stuff. That's I don't want to read anymore. The type is little, the page is long, and the wording Well, that, that's fine. May I please be excused? I, I kind of understand what happened now. It just would not come to me. I'm, yeah. I'm very slow. Yeah. Well, I think Patricia read enough now we should understand. We skipped 11 days. What do we do? It happened more than that, didn't it? If they changed three months. Ah. Oh, uh, but it, well, it's not a whole year, but still. Still, it's a pretty good a hunk of time. Chunk of it, yeah. yeah. Well, any. Oh well. If I read the rest of it, I might get. Now, to what did I eat for supper yesterday? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I got up this morning and had a an encounter. And after that, everything was fine. <laughs> but no, um, don't make me read any more, please. Not, I'm not. I'm not. I'm. I'm happy. I'm yeah, Walden will let me off the hook too. Well, he don't care. Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> it says some history books say that some of the people rioted after the calendar change. <laughs> Asking that are there 11 days be returned. However, this is very likely a myth based on two primary resources. <laughs> a, satiric, a satirical journal by Lord Chesterfield mm -hmm. and a painting by William Hogarth. Hogarth's name I know, but not any of his work. Okay, page closed. You're Never done. mind. <laughs> You're done. <laughs> Yeah, I'm finished. You're done. Well, I tell you, uh, ride over some of the silliest things anyway. It wasn't surprising. And you keep going. Yeah. You, yeah, you, you find one link that has some really weird stuff, and, gee, they bury a link in there and say, for more information, go here. And then you go there, and you discover that you started out with New Jersey, and you are already up to the celestial skies and wondering how the sun got to... Oh, my. So I'm, Walden and I, I think, are in, in the same boat when we do that. We just keep going, and there's another interesting link buried there, mm -hmm. so we'll take that one. Mm -hmm. And by that time, I forget what I was going <laughs> after the first time. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Yeah, so What's on your calendar? This, hmm? Something occurred to me about the grants where... The states went all the way to the West Coast. Mm -hmm. um, this was a British idea. It just occurred to me that the Spanish had a different idea on the subject. Mm-hmm. And the French probably. Uh, land grants on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. So, uh, who, um, whose choices? ruled, so to speak, and I guess it's whoever had the biggest ships <laughs> at the time. But anyway, yeah. um, I wonder where you would decide who had the priority, so to speak. Mm -hmm. 
English or the, or the Spanish about the grant. You know, the land. Yeah, well, yeah, it depends on what year it happened, too, and whether or not the colonies had declared their independence. Well, they didn't when when these grants were in effect. Because when, the, when these grants, so it would have been England. It happened then because states more or less existed before independence. Mm-hmm. But well, the colonies existed, and they were, yes, they had broken themselves up to into various states. And uh, England carted off the governor of what's Georgia. Because he remained loyal to the Brits, and they weren't very happy with it. And uh, so I don't know if he got rescued by the British or kidnapped by the British. In any event, he disappeared from Georgia. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, I'm all time astounded by trivia anyway. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. Oh, it is. I'll, buy, I'll bypass a lot of good books to get to a new trivia book. You're right. I was looking last weekend, I guess. Well, it always interests me anyway, the, the steam trains. And I, I was looking at the size of some of those things. And I watched, also watched a um, YouTube video on the... I can't remember the railroad line in Canada that rebuilt an engine. The guy made the comment that when engines usually left Canada, they never came back. I assume he was talking about they were sold. But what happened was they were in the process of rebuilding an engine, and he called somebody in the United States for a part for a particular engine. And he said, the guy told him, said, hold on a minute. And he talked to somebody, came back to him. He said, how would you like to have the whole engine? Ooh. And it was engine 2816. It was taken back to Canada under its own steam. And they didn't think they were going to have too much of a rebuilding job. But when they got into it, it was a major rebuild. Wow. The video was, uh, I guess, over an hour long, but it was worth listening to for the facts that came across with it. But they more or less rebuilt the thing from the rails up, and now it is a traveling, um, oh, I don't know how you say it, um, memorial-type thing to... Canadian Railways, um, the the company, I guess, paid for this. What got me was they never said what it cost, and I was really curious. With, with all they did to redo this thing, but, I mean, they totally disassembled it. Um, it, it was something to watch. Uh, another thing that I was not aware of, the... You know, I always thought when I saw them, you were seeing the boiler. You weren't. They had jacket insulation and jackets over the boilers. Oh. I guess to retain the heat. Yeah. But what amazed me was they said that the boilers gave these jackets such a beating and use 
that they had to be replaced, the jackets and insulation had to be replaced every four years. I'm surprised it lasted that long with the heat generated on the engine. So when I, when I get down to really thinking about it, it hadn't occurred to me. Um, I was also um, reading about the big boy engines. You realize these things weighed over 1.5 million pounds. <laughs> I tell you, I knew they were heavy. I never thought they were that heavy. And the fireboxes on those big engines were, I mean, you could walk in them. They were so big, and there was no way a fireman could keep them stoked. And they had to put automatic stokers on them. Mm. I know one I was reading about in a 57-mile run that they didn't have um, the the restored ones. They, of course, they didn't have water stations like they used to, and they had to uh, tow a tanker. Uh, I think it held 2,500 2, gallons of water, and in a 57-mile run, it would use... Uh, it, it it had to be rewatered. Uh, that would only run about half the distance. They didn't say how much coal it took. Um, uh, it, it's, and these things were like a hundred and I think the longest one I saw was a hundred and forty-seven feet long, just for the engine. <laughs> oh my gosh! And they also oh, built gosh. tandem engines. But they built a three-engine uh, locomotive. Uh, it was run in Virginia. Uh, they said they couldn't determine. They didn't think it had ever been paid for. But it was not practical because it wouldn't run more than five miles an hour when they actually got it built. And they finally divided it. They took one off and made a single engine out of it and then left two together as a tandem engine. Mm -hmm. It's just amazing what they have done with trains. Um, these things had drivers. Well, that, that um, triple job had 24 drivers. And I'm talking about big wheels, not engineers. Um <laughs> <laughs> in case you don't know. Okay. But a lot of uh, 16 driver engines were run for a long time, but they apparently really drunk coal and water. But they, the big boys were mainly built for the Rocky Mountains mm. because they were having to put so many engines on a train to get it over the mountains. And they found, and, and curves were another problem. And they built um, on those big engines. They had swivel front wheels. You know, they would rotate left and right to get around curves because they were so long. Mm. Yeah. Um, I just thought it was really amazing. Some of but did, it, did all of the cars that were being pulled were just. The locomotives or the, the engines, did they have the wheels that turned? 
actually own the cars. I don't think they had to because they weren't long enough that it mattered. I mean, they made the oh, I see. Sure. matter. Okay. But see, in the mountains, they couldn't have those real long curves like that. Mm-hmm. There were shorter curves, and as big as the engines were, you know, they, were, they had two problems. One, being able to pull the load, and then the other thing, the tight curves didn't go, to, you know, all of it didn't go together. If you got big enough to pull the loads and then tight curves, you had two problems there. Yeah. yeah. They were, and I couldn't believe this, they were pulling trains even then five miles long. <laughs> you imagine? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. They, you know, um, they had several engines even they had they had the last engine was a pusher and then they had two or more pulling and mm-hmm. that could be at the front in the middle and at the back two in the front one in the middle one at the back just all kind of arrangements to get these things through the mountains and to pull large trains uh, across the midwest yeah, yeah. that's why you don't want to be the one sitting at a crossing, waiting to get your horses over yeah, there. Yeah, can you imagine? Uh, five miles at five miles an hour. Well, now, most of them ran more than that because a lot of engines, uh, especially in the late 1800s and 19, early 1900s, now, um, they were, a lot of them were running more than 100 miles an hour. And when you it's talk, not in the mountains. No, I, w- I wouldn't think so in the mountains. I'm talking about the East Coast and Midwest. And, yeah. But, you know, when you stop and think about it, that's no major speed now, but at the time, that was the fastest means of transportation on Earth. Mm-hmm. Nothing had ever been that fast. I mean, obviously we've got planes and all now that will break the sound barrier, but at the time, uh, that's the fastest thing there ever was. Sure. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I just, I just really thought a lot of that was absolutely amazing. And, and I love trains, so I'm really into this. I, I just you, you really, when you got a little bit of time, you really ought mm-hmm. to look that up. The uh, restoration of engine twenty eight sixteen. Yes, they had, somebody did an excellent job of a video, doing a a, a video on on this whole restoration deal. Uh, There are some others, but that was the one I I looked at. Let us see. Well, it's a YouTube restoration of 2816. I like the way Patricia types. She has a little rhythm to it. Yeah, it does. And only when my fingers work. Tonight they're working. <laughs> tonight a lot of stuff is working. I'm having a very happy camper tonight. Very good. Okay, yeah, there it is up on YouTube and Wikipedia and stuff like that there. So there's a whole page of options. Well, have time. Watch that thing. It, it, it really teaches you things about engines that you hadn't thought about. Yeah. It says it was only, oh no, that's a different one. Um, no, YouTube. It says it was 
uploaded December 11th, 2016. When did you watch it? There might be, there might be a, a second one. Well, I don't know when this one was uploaded. I just looked at it last weekend. So last I don't weekend. Okay, so it might indeed be the one that uh, I have a link to. And it's yeah. 58 minutes long, so sure, that's what you're talking okay, about. Okay, I didn't actually time it. Yeah, I just know it was a long time listening to it. Yeah. So, I, yeah. you know, yeah. when you got time, it, it really tells you things you never thought about about steam engines. Mm-hmm. But it was really, really an interesting thing as far as I was concerned anyway. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so for train lovers out there, Send me an email, and I will send you the link that Harwood is talking about. Good. You've done good. Thank you, Harwood. Well, oh. I'm always smarter when you hang up. I'm serious. I am always smarter than, than I was here's, before when you hang up. Here's two other things that amaze me, especially at the time. Engine 97 that wrecked at Danville in 03. Mm -hmm. It was 1903. That was a new engine, and of course it left the rails at a tr on a trussle, and I do not remember how far it fell down into a, a gully and all off the track. It amazed me. They recovered that engine, and it was in service until, I think, 1937. What kind of repairs did it require? I don't know. I just know that was a what amazes me at the time. How on earth did they get it up and back on the track? Now this one wasn't a million and a half, uh, one and a half million pounds, but still a locomotive's heavy no matter how you cut it. Sure. And they didn't sure. have cranes like we got now. Now I can understand, but in '03 I can't. Also, in 1900, uh, the engine, I think it's 382, that Casey Jones wrecked and killed himself. Mm -hmm. That was a new engine. It was, of course, it left the track, too, and there was a depression inside of a hill, I think, for over 50 years where it hit. Wow. Recovered that engine, and it was in service until sometime in the 30s. And they changed the number on it several times. I think the last number before they retired the thing was 511 or 501 or something like that. Mm -hmm. But it changed I keep, several I, I can understand one retirement, the first one, to take the number off a catastrophe train. But why was why did they I don't know it? why they kept changing the number. That kind of baffled me, too, and what I was reading didn't explain. Also, there is a YouTube, and I really question that it wasn't a, a reenactment because of the quality of the YouTube, but it didn't say that. Um, supposedly, it is Casey Jones' fireman telling what happened about the wreck, a, a YouTube video. Uh -huh. it's, it's so good, I'm really questioning that. Um, I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, last name was Watts or Watson. Uh, I swear it won't come to me. You could search for the description 
of uh, sure. let's see how how would you do? No, I I would just put in Casey Jones train. Uh, no, this was it's a description of the wreck of 382 by the fireman. You might try that. I can't remember how I stumbled on it. Um, I looked at two. One of them was a mess. They had music playing in the background. Uh, whoever was recording it, it sounded like it was something going on in another room. But the good one was excellent. There was nothing in the background. Um, I, that's why I can't understand, because this had to have been done probably in the 40s. And I guess it's possible, but it was so good, it, it was kind of baffling me. Yeah, yeah. Well. But anyway, it was still a good description, but I have read, you know, more detailed descriptions about the entire run, why it was so late, uh, a lot more information than the YouTube did, but his description was excellent of of what actually happened at, at the yeah. end. But they made up. I can't. I, I was trying to think. I thought they were more than an hour and a half behind when they left Memphis, going to Canton, Mississippi, and when they wrecked, they were 12 miles from Canton and one minute behind time. So if he hadn't erect, he would have come in early. But even the firemen said the whole time um, they were running, in most cases, they were running over 90 miles an hour, and he knew some of it was over 100. But I think the other description I read, the, they had, were averaging 70. But I'm sure they were a lot faster. And... I had also read that other engineers didn't want to take the runs, because, that particular run, because their nerves wouldn't stand it, and they quit. This was before all this happened, and the reason was that they had, I can't remember the name of the railroad, they had bought track from another railroad, and a lot of that run was on light rail, and that was a heavy engine, and apparently they were running those anyway. Um, uh, you know, other than Casey Jones' engine, mm -hmm. and they just um, the 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 schedule. I think it was like four and a half hours. The the normal schedule was, I believe, it was four and a half hours from Memphis to Canton. And if they had a choice, most engineers would not take it because they just. The nerves wouldn't take it. So, it on, on in the Mississippi, I think it, it changed back to heavy rail, but there was so much of it on light rail, they just would not take it. So, how long into the trip, you're saying four and a half hours, how long into the trip did he go off the tracks? He was, he was 12 miles from the end of the run. Oh, my. Oh, my gosh. Oh, that's, that's that time. But when he started, he was an hour and a half or more late starting. Yeah. It made up all that time. Mm. Mm -hmm. Of course, 
course, it wasn't his fault because what had happened, there is a term called sawing through. And what they did is where they had a siding that was not long enough to get two trains on it. Now, say you've got, and they had this apparently pretty often, you've got three trains on a single track. Say one north, one going south. And then you had a fast train that was coming through. So now the fast train had to pass these other two. So how do you do it? And you short, your siding is too short. Now where they did the passing, obviously the fast train had to slow down. Um, but what they would do, where they got the term of sawing through, both trains pulled onto the siding, but one of mm -hmm. them still out on the track. Right. So let's say the fast train's going south they, other train that was going south pulled onto the siding, completely off the main line. The south end pulled onto the siding, but he was, the back end was still out on the main line. So when the fast train got there, they pulled past the first train and stopped. The first train would back out onto the main line and the other end pulled the rest of theirs onto the siding, and then the through train moved on past. They, they kind of rocked two of them and to let the other one through. Mm -hmm. And it was called sawing through. Now, of course, if you could get one train onto the siding, which you could, you didn't have this problem, but you understand three trains on one track don't work too well. But anyway, just to think about it. oh, it is. Now, having said that, I don't think that was what actually happened that caused the wreck. Um, I cannot remember the name of the town that was 12 miles from Canton, but it's irrelevant. The, t the name doesn't matter. There was an S-curve there. Mm. And when the the curve, the curve, it curved to the right, so the engineer hanging out the right-hand window, he could see what was ahead of him. But when he curved back to the left, he couldn't see. Mm -hmm. But the fireman could because he was hanging out the left-side window. Mm -hmm. So he because for people who don't know, the engine cab is in the back, not the front. So you got to hang out the window to, to see what's ahead of you because the boiler and everything's in front of you. You can't see out the front. Okay, when he curved back to the left, the fireman saw it. There was a twin flare signal ahead of him. He didn't know what was there, but that was that the line was blocked. And somebody didn't do their job because they should have found out a lot sooner. Um, when there was a case that there was something on the track, um, somebody was to carry flares and torpedoes, 10 rails, um, away from the train and put them out. Mm -hmm. Nobody, nobody did it. Oh. So they had no way to know until the firemen saw it. But what had happened was... I don't know if the train was coming off the track or backed out onto the track. 
but there were four cars on the track, a caboose, two grain cars, and a lumber car, uh, box cars loaded with this stuff. And that was what was on the track. Well, when they tried to move it, uh, one of the air brake lines broke. Now, people don't realize, they think if you put air on air brakes, that's what stops them. That's not the way they work. When you put air on the line, it deactivates the brakes. And this is so that if you have a line failure, the brakes automatically go on. Well, they blew an airline. Well, there's no way they could move those cars. And when they heard the whistle of the train coming, they knew the show was over and everybody ran. There was nothing else they could do. And the fireman yelled at, at Casey Jones and told him that the line was blocked. And of course, he, the engineer still didn't see it, but he slammed on the emergency brakes and he was going over 70 miles an hour when he did this. And he hired the fireman to jump and he climbed down on the ladder on the outside as far as he could before he jumped. But, you know, he jumped at around 70 miles an hour. And it knocked him out for 30 to 45 minutes, but when he came to, everything was over at that point. But that that train went right through those cars before it left the track. Yeah. And Jones wasn't killed in the wreck, but they got him up and carried him to the station, and he died there. I can't remember how many passengers were on that train, but he was the only one killed, and the fireman was the only one injured from jumping, and it wasn't serious. No passenger was hurt in that wreck, which I think was absolutely amazing. So if Casey had stayed on the train, would it have made a difference in the outcome? Would he have still died? Yes, because he was in the engine. The engine totally left the track. Okay. And of course fell over. Um, but there was no way he could get out because of the configuration of the engine. Uh, part of the boiler went through the cap, and the only way he could have gotten out would have been on the side where the fireman jumped, and he could not get over all that stuff. He had no choice but to stay with it. Yeah. That's what killed him. He could not jump. Oh, gosh. What a I, I just thought it was absolutely amazing. Um, and his actual name was John, it's John L. Jones, I think, I can't remember if the L was for Leonard Lacey. Anyway, John L. Jones, Casey Jones was a nickname, but he was a very famous engineer, and I think I told you once before that after that wreck, his wife traveled the country making talks in different places about him until 1955. This happened in 1900. She traveled the country until 1955. She never paid for a ticket. She had a card she would hand to the conductor which said, I'm the wife of Casey Jones. May I ride your train? Wow. It was never refused. I thought that was amazing too. Yeah. But he was that famous. And he wasn't, but 30, I think 
he was 30, yeah, he was 33 years old when he was killed. He was born in 1857. Anyway, uh, sometime there again, when you have nothing better to do, you need to look that up, and they have the entire story of, you know, why he was so late leaving, um, and and how much time he had actually made up when he wrecked. But he would have gone in early, leaving that late if it hadn't been for the wreck. And people really now trains that come by here, they're never on time anymore. But back then. Being on time was a big issue, uh, you know, with passenger trains. Yeah. Um, being one minute late, I mean, that was something serious. You were on time, no matter what. So that did it. You early? Would, what? Would you be looked bad upon if you got in early yes. rather than late? So it had to I don't know about being early. I don't think that was a. Um, Anything that was against you, it was the fact that you were late is where the trouble was. Okay. Yeah. And thank you. That's what I was asking. Anyway. Okay. I guess I'm out of trivia for tonight. Well, I mean, this is really good stuff. Thank you for sharing it. Oh, that, uh, you will find that engine 2816 was a coal-burning engine, but when Okay, and I've, I've got it up here, so I will save it and get to it this week. Am I by myself? No. Okay, we lost Harwood? No, I'm still here. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sitting here waiting for That's somebody to say yes. something. <laughs> well, I showed my spine having pause. No. Um. Oh. How is using the pauses just so perfectly? I, I didn't hear that, Walden, again, please. P how was using pauses just so perfectly? No, I'm, miss I'm missing what she's asking, and I guess I it's on a pause. I didn't ask anything. I said thank you for all the good stuff. Well, anyway, I'm hearing y'all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you spent some time with us tonight. You take yeah. care and have a good week. You too. Take care. Yeah, all right. You bet. Bye. Bye. Hey, Bye -bye. Patricia. Hey, Patricia. Yes. Yeah. On this, on this stuff on uh, Dropbox. Mm -hmm. uh, do you want us to take that off as we get it, or leave it? Take it off. No, take it off. Okay, we will. I know you've got it. Yeah, because yeah. I don't need it. But once you've got it, it can go. Okay, that's fine. That's what I need to know. Yep. Okay, you'll have a hundred. About 110 in a little while. Okay, very good. Thank All you. righty, thanks, Harwood. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, family, we have a... Well, then you have just disappeared on me. How did you notice that? I, I, because I couldn't hear you. Because I, I threw away some A&W root beer can, and I brought back some more A&W root beer can, and I went into the restroom. So I, I, I... No, I just now when you were talking, I had... You're down in the canyon. Oh. But you got all of that done in the middle of a train? Uh-huh. Oh, I just love that. I love trains. I know zero about them, so everything is fun when I learn it. Everything. Anyway, family, just to let you know, we're going to be starting a interview here fairly soon.
So we're going to get into my trivia question, whatever stuff Patricia has. Then we're going to get into our interview. So I just want to uh, let everybody know so we won't take any more calls because we got to get everything in. It's a two-hour interview, and it's well worth it. So. Oh, gosh. Fun, 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 fun. Yeah. So. Fun, 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 fun. All right. Back, um, back to Patricia. Yeah. Say what? Back to Patricia. Okay. I have to find my stuff here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. There it is. Okay. I got it. Um, we had this one before, and I will ask you if you still remember that George S. Patton, Jr., now that we got all of that <laughs> discussion <laughs> over with, he was nicknamed after an old-time radio show following his introduction of a new uniform for his tank troops. What was it? The Green Hornet. Very good. He also had another nickname that was based on his uniforms um, because he... he I mean, he, it was really surrealistic. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it, he had some really good ideas with it, but it had brass buttons like the um, uh, bellboys, the bellboy right. brass buttons, right. and it was in green. Right. So what was what was the other? Flash Gordon. Very good. Uh, oh, you did remember. Actually, no, you probably got... I knew the green, I remember the green horn, but I did not remember the flash gordon. You gave me the flash enough. gordon. Well, that was that was secondary. Yes, secondary. Um, the, apparently, part of the joy of giving him the nickname the Green Hornet was that it was the same time the Green Hornet Strikes Again was playing in the movies, ah. and that might have helped tank his uniform. Sure. <laughs> anyway, Flash Gordon didn't help either. Sure. Okay. Um, one night and it won't be tonight, I'm going to give you some background information on Dizzy Arnaz. Perfect. It's interesting that we were talking or hearing Jim talk mm -hmm. about Dizzy and Lucy. Yeah. But it's got some really good stuff. So, okay, now we have to go to Stump Walden, Brain Teaser, Colonial Question, Presidential Question, Baseball Question, um, Geography Question. Did I miss something in there? First lady? Oh, Walden, I missed the first lady. I'm sorry. Oh, shame on me. Um, so you, you want me to make one up? That way I can try to figure out the <laughs> Sure, what the heck. <laughs> Barbara and I can make up rules for <laughs> travel. Why can't you? Who is married to Franklin Delano Roosevelt? How's that at the first lady question? Oh, Mrs. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Very good, Patricia. Did I do good? You did good. See, so you got the okay. first you got the first lady one figured out. Perfect. All right. <laughs> okay. What would you like first? My geography question, please. Your geography. This one is really good, and and you know maybe you'll do it. But geography question mm -hmm. from end to end, the Golden Gate Bridge ends in San Francisco. What was its starting point, or what is its starting point? Where? Uh, Oakland? No. I don't think. Uh, I don't know anything about California. <laughs> Except where you are, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. You, you got me. The only thing I could find was mm -hmm. Marin County. 
Ah. Are there any cities or towns within the county? Uh -huh, that's, the yeah, that's, it's, it's a county, but because that's Northern California, I could not tell you what cities were in the Marine County. I, I don't know. We have to ask Don, Don from Sacramento, Jim from... Yeah, well, though, and uh, I looked. I looked all yeah. over the place. I'm looking for Marin County cities, mm -hmm. Marin County towns, Marin County. I went to the Marin County website, and it didn't have anything. Huh. Usually an, a, um, a, a county will list, okay. you know, like here in the Fort Myers right. area. I'm in Lee County, and they'll list um, Lehigh Acres, mm -hmm. Fort Myers, you know. And they'll go down a list, and you can choose from. They had no list. So I am guessing that the entire Whoever lives there or whatever is there is considered Marin County address. Okay. Weird. I never knew that, but, you know, we, we Southern California don't think the Northern is really part of the same state anyway. <laughs> but you did know what the Golden Gate Bridge is. That is true. You did. You that did. Is true. So I need someone by next week mm -hmm. to help me figure out whether or not Marin County is the address or if there is a city or a town that says, here we are, here we are. You can email Golden Patricia. Ends here. Hmm? You can email Patricia throughout the week at floridawriter at hotmail.com. That's F-L-O-R-I-D-A-W-R-I-T-E-R. Because she is one. She's a writer. Hi, I are a writer. I are. Yes. And who, who asked about the quiz show? That played last night. Yeah, Jim from. So next week we have to ask. Because Jim doesn't have his Wi Fi to hear your answer at the last okay. thing. And I did have it before he hung up, but we yeah. got to talking in so many different directions. Right. Um, it was the Stanley Telephone Radio Quiz. Okay. And Never heard of it. Sense. Never yeah, heard of it. Yeah. Nobody did. I guess it was the only one that ever survived. That's true. But um, it, it was. it's just one of those. Do you remember the baseball that said it really mm -hmm. simple rules? Yep. You know, if you strike one yep. and you go, it, it took them two-thirds of the show to explain what was going to be happening. This was another one like it. Ah. So, and, and people understood it. I don't know. I don't know. There's got to be somebody out there who understands this. But I thought it was, it, it, it was great fun because it, it, they said really simple rules. And they'd start talking about numbers and letters. And <laughs> but anyway. That was what it was. For anyone else who wanted to know, it, it is Stanley's no, yeah, Stanley's telephone radio quiz. That's what it was. So um, we'll have to play that again. All right. What's your next question? My stump Walden. I'm I'm really sorry about the the first lady. I was straightening out so much junk over here that. <laughs> Okay, you're Stump Walden. Mm -hmm. Now, after I wrote this, I said, oh, Patricia, how silly. But let's see. Anyway, who <laughs> created and wrote the soap opera Helen Trent? Oh, Patricia, that's so silly. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but for those of us who are not initiated, <laughs> please give the answer anyway. Well, I don't know if I really know the answer. Let's give it a shot. Let's go with Ann Hummett. Anne and Frank Hummert, yes. yes. Very excellent. You did good. Um, and I'm surprised you just didn't pop it over you. <laughs> well, then. Well, I was copying oh, your face, that's you so, know. That's so silly. Yeah. And you agreed with me, and yeah. then you told me you weren't sure of the answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't think it was a silly question. I thought it was a fun question. 
yeah, well, I thought it was too, but when I looked at it, I thought, oh my gosh, he knows everything about the Hummers. <laughs> and I still, you know, every once in a while when we have a Hummer answer, mm-hmm. I say, one night we're going to talk about the Hummers because there's no way we can, you know, split them up. Oh, uh, true. You probably have to do it in 18 chapters. That's true. There's so much information about them. That's true. Anyway, one night we will have to do <laughs> Ann and Frank Hummert. Um, okay, what's next? Mm. My colonial question, please. Your colonial question. Who created and published Poor Richard's Almanac? Benjamin Franklin. Very good. And what was in it? Uh, uh, Poor Richard's Life Story. No, it really was an almanac. Yeah, I think it was with them some facts and things like that. Uh huh. That's about what give, I know. It did give some, you know, don't don't plant on this day and <laughs> many others. Yes, sure. poor Richard's almanac. And Richard was a pseudonym. I cannot remember. It's, I think uh, it, after his brother, or, or he named it sort of in honor of his brother, or something like that. I don't remember the, more more or less. Well, poor Richard was uh, part of a pseudonym that he used for much of his writing because mm-hmm. he was so prolific. Right. I can't remember Richard Stewart, Richard, I don't know, mm-hmm. but it, he did have a, a last name in there and he wrote under that uh, that name for several different projects. But, so anyway, there. What's next? You know you know the adjunct to the story, you know why it became so successful at the Poor uh, Richard Almanac, you know why? No. Well, Benjamin Franklin was also the head postmaster. Oh, this is true, yes. And he sent out 10,000 copies a year. He, and I forgot about that. And, and he mailed them out for free, so he, he could get away yes. for doing that. Yes, so, yeah. it was very affordable. Yeah. <laughs> it was very affordable for, for years. For years, it had a selling average of 10,000 copies a year. Which is enormous yeah. when you do think that they all had to go out in the mail, so they all had to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, remarkable. Remarkable. He did good. Okay, what's next? Oh, I love the way you do your sound effects. Um, very good. You're so talented. Yeah. That's one. That, that that's one. That was a champagne cork. That's one of the great. Oh, very good. That's one of the great reasons why I have you as a co-host. You give color. Oh, because because you, I can talk like a rabbit? Yeah, you can give colors. You can give uh, color for the radio show. I am color commentary. Woohoo. Oh. Uh, my brain teaser, please. Your brain teaser. Now, this one is, is a hard one to sort out, so I'm going to read it very slowly, and I will read it again if you want me to. Okay. Your mother's brother's only brother-in-law is asleep on your couch. Who is asleep on your couch? My dad. How did you know that? Okay, I I thought of it logically. I, when you gave me the heads up, be awake, Walden, that I really sat there and analyzed it as you reasoned. I watched it. I did it and got the right answer because I put real people in it. Ah, like, okay. My mother's brother and... That person's only brother-in-law had to be her husband, and yep. therefore it's your father. But I had to put real people ah. in the place of, of the descriptions, 
And you just did it off the top of your head. Well, oh, you did good. Well, you trained me so well. <laughs> yes, right. Uh, Thank you, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what's next? My baseball question. Your baseball question. Okay, these are fun. I've got a list of fun things. <sighs> okay, and this, this is going to be multiple choice type thing. Take Me Out to the Ball Game was written by a songwriter named Jack Norworth in mm-hmm. 1908. Which of the following are true? So I will read four things to you. Okay. He wrote the lyrics in 15 minutes. He wrote it on New York's elevated subway. He had never been to a baseball game when he wrote it. All of the above. Which well, is the correct I, I know for sure number three is correct. C, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, my guess, why don't we just roll the dice and say all the above? That is absolutely correct. Woo-hoo! He wrote it in 15 minutes. He wrote it on the subway, mm-hmm. and he had never been to a baseball game when he wrote it. How about that? I think that's a hoot. That's, that's pretty nice. Re- mm-hmm. he, uh, how come we don't know about this guy? He wrote 2,500 songs in his career, and one of them was Shine on Harvest Moon. Yep, Shine on Harvest he was married to the singer Nora Bays, so that was their big song together. So I had never heard his name before. Was that my shortcoming, or is he just not? Uh, I think because I typically I, hear about. Because I I think he's a name that uh, is he having dove around the song take me and dove dove around uh, Nora Bays in the in the song shine on. I think he's he forgotten, but he, if you know the key element, then you would, could recall him. Yeah. Shine huh. on. Okay, if you had those key elements, you probably wouldn't need to recall. He'd already be there. Yeah, shine on Harvest uh, Moon. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Next. I think we're down to my pilot question. I think so. Okay, who was the first president to own a car? Hmm, let's go with Teddy Roosevelt. No. William McKinley. No. One more. Howard Taft. Yes. All right. Yes. Not only was he was really into progressive stuff. Mm-hmm. He was one who pushed the buttons on everything. <laughs> he was ahead of his time. But he was the first president to own a car, and he was so... Um, so positive, of course, that this was going to be a successful form of transportation. He converted the stables into a garage. Boy, he I don't was know where they put the where did they put the horses? Uh, they must have retired oh, them. They must have retired yeah. them, I guess. They, they they still have to be out in mm-hmm. in the field and in the barn or something. Sure. So maybe maybe they went to a barn because the stables are a little bit different, but. They went to con. Yeah, they went to Congress. <laughs> <laughs> they took the donkey switch. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yes. So anyway, it was William Howard Taft. Isn't that cool? That's very good, Patricia. I like that one. Yeah. 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 And that's the last one we have. Is that correct? That is it. Because we did your geography. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. I think we did them all. We did. 
So, would you like to introduce our interview? I would love to, but he he would do it much better on his own. <laughs> um, we did an interview. Um, yesterday. Is it Thursday? Yeah. Friday. Friday. Yeah, we did Friday. it yesterday because uh-huh. we moved him. Um, Christopher Allen, who in his professional life spent many years as an English butler. And, of course, there are different lifestyles and different um, requirements and needs in England than there are here. But he gave us some wonderful stories about his time in England and how it differs from the United States. He and his wife now own a bed and breakfast on the Hamptons, which is one of the highest exclusive areas in the on the East Coast. I mean, it really is the hottest area. And um, so we talked a little bit about the bed and breakfast, and I just loved talking with him with about various stories and tales and history that he had. And I'm not even going to tell you about the $200,000. No, and he was a speaker at my mom PEO Corps. My mom invited him to speak, and she was so enthralled. So thanks for Mama for arranging the contact. And Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. It was really good. So yeah. anyway, what you will hear next, and that means we have to say goodnight because it's almost two hours interview. It's over, yeah. It's a little over two hours. So A little that, over two hours. So it'll bring us more than four so, hours here. Yep. <laughs> four o'clock. Yes. So you will be listening to Christopher Allen, and he has a book out, or actually his, his wife did the writing. Mm-hmm. He was the source of the information. And it is called The Butler's Life from the Other Side of the Silver Salver. And he, ha- he has a... wants to know what a salver is, it's in the interview. And he does have a website where his better breakfast is, and so... So that's and a f- we'll talk about that at the end. And I'll talk about the end. Maybe we should have a family reunion there, you know? I think so. Yeah. I think, but they've only got five bedrooms. Uh, it, it, it would bust the budget, well, for sure. Well, okay. Or well, maybe maybe we can rent out the place next door. That might be big enough for the family. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> and also, <laughs> $100 million mansion next door, uh, which is peanuts compared to what you've got in California. But... My guess is that the homes that go that rate on the Hamptons are probably comparable to some of the homes that are going for multi-millions of dollars out there. Yeah. Because you've got the higher real estate values. But So anyway, um, Walden and I asked him before the end of the interview if he would consider coming back, not only because we had millions of more questions for him, but also to talk about the bed and breakfast and the exclusiveness of it and who comes to visit and what they do in the summertime on the Hamptons. And he even gave some information about how to get there intact because of the traffic on the weekends. So so that's what you're going to hear. Christopher Allen, and we had a great time. I hope you do, too. Yeah. So with that, Patricia? I have to say good night, everybody. I know. Thank you for being with us. What a fun show tonight. My goodness. It was fun. And to Jim. Thank you. Oh, I'm so grateful that Jim is well enough to do this yeah, with us. Absolutely. He really is making progress. So, good night, everybody. Good night, Walden. Good night, Patricia. Hi, everybody. We're going to get to the interview. So, give me a second.
Soundforge Pro 11.0, Alt-Tab. JAWS Professional, Windows M. Windows M, Desktop M, Microsoft M, My Conference M, My Document Enter. Document 1 Sat C Christmas Scripts Full Christmas Fibber McC Chris Allen edited interview with Patricia 2 unloading job cans. OK Enter Document. Dear Lord, thank you for the wonderful time with the family. Thank you for Jim getting better so that he could join us tonight. Bless this wonderful country, bless the people we love. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Here is Patricia. Two, one. Hi everybody, I'm Wallace Hughes, and on the line in Florida, here she is, Patricia. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Walden. It is I down here in the south, in the warm country, anyway, for our poor people who are snowed in on February 10th. Um, we have a guest, and I am just so excited that, that um, Chris has agreed to be with us and spend some time with us. We have Christopher Allen, and I asked him, Christopher or Chris, and he said Chris is fine. So we are going to be calling him Chris all the way through. He and his wife, Kimberly, um, wrote a book. A Butler's Life Seen from the Other Side of the Silver Salver. Uh, that's a great title. Um, maybe we can talk about having selected the title later. Um, he's just had so many um, professions in life, so I'm going to ask him to help me properly introduce him. Chris, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Uh, would you help me introduce you properly, please? I can do that. Uh, well, my name is Chris Allen, and I currently own a bed and breakfast in the Hamptons in New York, and I divide my time during the year to seven months in uh, New York and five months spending the winter in California. But before that, uh, I spent nearly 20 years working in private service as a butler, and I started working for English aristocracy, and I ended up working for a self-made multimillionaire in, or on the Gold Coast of Long Island. Wow. Uh, <laughs> you want to? You want me to talk about marriage and things? <laughs> because, because uh, yeah. I'm also married to a wonderful lady. And as you mentioned, she helped, well, she, she wrote the entire book uh, called A Butler's Life. And um, I was just the, um, just the subject of the book. And unfortunately, my name had to go on there because apparently we were told by the publisher originally that the uh, Library of Congress rules state that if you write a biography in the first person, and that person is still alive, their name has to go on the book. Um, and that's why my name's on there. But uh, you asked about why it was called A, a Butler's Manor Scenes from the Other Side of the Silver Salver. I originally yes. wanted to call it Born to Buttle. <laughs> but uh, my wife said, no, I don't think so. And uh, so we didn't. And now it's called The Scenes from the Other Side of the Silver Salver. Well, well, I'd like, to, I'd like to ask the most important question. How in the world did you meet your wife? There must be a fun story about that. 
Yeah, there is. Um, on one of my very, very rare half days off, um, working in 1986 in Southern California, um, uh, I was used to be on a dart team. Uh, of course, English pastimes, hard to throw away. And so uh, I walked into my, my Irish bar in Newport Beach, and this lady had the audacity to be actually playing on my dartboard with her sister. <laughs> and so I walked in and said, uh, you're on my dartboard. And she said, oh, you're English. Here's my phone number. It wasn't quite that easy, um, but uh, that was 30-odd years ago, and we've been married for 28 years now. I guess your probationary period is over. <laughs> Well, little did I know that the moment she handed me her phone number, she was already reeling me in. It took 18 months until I realized, and it was, oh, okay, let's get married then. (laughs) And that that is a long-term marriage. Um, I I think it's probably taking. Um, You're you're glued together permanently. Just about. Just about. Just about. Chris, I have um, a list of questions, and we can depart from any of them, and you can say things like, gosh, that's great, but I'd rather talk about X, and that would be wonderful, too. Um, My confession is I had to look up the pronunciation of salver, and I had to to look. I didn't have to. I actually looked up the word buttle, which I thought was pretty cool of me to think about that. Well, could you conjugate the verb to buttle? I buttle, you buttle, he buttle, she buttle, we buttle, they um, buttle. It, sure. It's tough. Is is there a word, such a thing as buttling? Um, I can't say that I've heard too much usage of it, uh, <laughs> despite having been in the business for quite a long time. Um, but it encompasses an awful lot of skill sets and I think that if you're somebody who has um, perhaps a jack of all trades you don't need to be a master at any of them but uh, as long as you have the right attitude and uh, some skills that will um, bode well in a private household then I think you can bottle as long as you want. (laughs) It was a little obscure but I did find it in an urban dictionary I guess there's somewhere out there. There really is a word "buttle." And do you in have the definition it. there? Um, it, it's a slang expression for the work that a butler does. Oh well, there you go. How really appropriate! Did. It's quite true. I, I know. <laughs> it, it, it kind of surprised me that I actually found something out there, but um, it's there. You buttled. Well, well, I, 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 I do it, not. It was have, a great career. I really enjoyed it. Well, we're going to start at the beginning. What was your first exposure to the position of butler or service? Um, I think, well, working in a supermarket when I was 14. I was supposed to be 15, but I lied about my age because I needed work. Um, So I started work at 14 in a supermarket and um, just you know, doing the usual stuff, stacking shelves and filling bags and what have you. Um, But then eventually I 
got to be behind a counter and I actually served somebody. I mean, they came up and said, give me half a pound of Anne. And I'm like, okay, I'll give you half a pound of Anne. <laughs> so I slice up half a pound of ham and I'd hand them over and they'd walk away. Um, but then I became, um, when I was 18, I went to work in a pub as a barman. And, of course, you get to know in England all your regulars and what they drink and you know how many they can drink before they start falling over. And uh, you learn who's going out with whom and who doesn't like whom. And um, my employer was very, very, very good at teaching um, the basics of service. He said, be fast, be accurate and be friendly. And he put it into the concept of uh, being a barman in that you had to wear training shoes or plimsolls, uh, you know, Nike type things um, behind the bar because you had to be fast on your feet. In England, in back in the 70s, you know, people would buy rounds. Um, so there'd be six people in a round and Every 15 minutes or something, they'd be somebody else would go up and get around. They get six drinks, and he said, if that one person, that one group, waits for more than a couple of minutes, they're only going to buy five rounds in the night, not six. So you're costing me money if you're not fast, and if you're not accurate with the prices. In other words, if you're not, we didn't have <laughs> wonderful kills where you just ring them all up and they add them up. In those days, you put the amount in and that was it. Um, mm -hmm. You had to be able to add up in your head what the entire round cost. You know, three gin and tonics, two pints of Guinness and a pint of uh, John Courage or something. And you'd come up with a figure and it would be accurate and you would put it in, you'd get the money and you put it in the till. Um, and you had to be friendly because you can't be a robot. And I think that regardless of whatever business you're in, you have to be friendly. People have to like you. Uh, if they don't, regardless of how good your service is, how regardless of whatever you're doing for them, whatever product you're selling or you're providing, if you're not friendly and they don't like you, it's not going to be good. So that was really my first exposure to what it is to be in service. And then I went from bars to hotels working in very very fancy restaurants and eventually I ended up on a yacht um, an 80-foot private ocean-going yacht um, and there you really got into the personal side of service you know you're making somebody's bed um, you're unpacking for them when they come in on board and uh, you're there with them for maybe two weeks in very, very close quarters, and you have to know how to serve them, what it is they're looking for, what they need, what they want, when they want it. Do they want to be pampered? Do they just want to be left alone? And you have to read people, and I think that makes for good service as well. What signals do you look for or did you look for in the people you were serving that gave you an indication of the lifestyle they wanted, their preferences, privacy, or fun outside and gregarious? How did you read those signals and what were they? Well, basic body language, serious. Um, any sort of 
uh, eye contact, that you're looking for a smile when you say something. If they come in and they're reading a book and they look up and they don't smile at you, then you think, oh, I've interrupted him, I've interrupted him mm. uh, reading his book. But if he smiles and says, hey, Chris, what's up? You know, and then you get that idea. Uh, you don't just go in and say, uh, good afternoon, sir, here's a cup of coffee. Because he may not want a cup of coffee. I mean, mm-hmm. if, unless he has a routine, then your principal is going to be able to, or you, you're going to know that your principal wants a coffee at 6.30 in the morning. It's got to be there, ready for him every day. And you know how he wants it. Um, you don't ask every day, would you like cream and sugar? You should have found that out on the first day. Um, mm-hmm. But all of these things, you're looking for facial expressions, body language, um, basic communicative, communicative signals. Uh, I think some people don't have that. And unfortunately, today's corporate uh, ideology is taking that away from uh, people in service. They want you to be a robot. And they come up to your table and say, hello, my name's Eric, and I'm going to be your server today. It's like, oh, please, you know, really? <laughs> Why? Yeah. And then you have, the other thing is corporations call it customer service, and it's not. It's really customer abuse, if you think about it. You, go, you pick up a phone 20 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, and you got a live person. And you said, hey, um, um, could I ask you about this? And fine, you get an answer. Now you have to wait five minutes on your dime while they go through a number of options that you don't want and they don't tell you until the end, press zero or press nine or press one for a representative. And -hmm. then you have to wait another 20 minutes while they come on the phone. That's not service. Real service is personal. It's polite. It is efficient. And it's a delight to both receive and to give. What are the opportunities for us to return to that? Well, um, I think as long as we concentrate on shareholder value and not customer service, it won't change. Because there's an opportunity, I'm sorry, um, there is an opportunity for people I think some people are finally getting it now, like Costco. They actually give their people health care. They give their their employees a really good package. They give them time off, and they're real people. They, you know, they they're doing a good job, and they have great re- staff retention rates. It makes sense. Even Walmart now are finally, hopefully, getting it. And mm-hmm. I I wouldn't walk in Walmart if, if, if you paid me. <laughs> I would not go in a Walmart, just on principle. Um, yeah. When I, you know, I, I hate the company, everything it stands for. It's a race to the bottom. Um, would it come back? I don't know. Very difficult. What I would like to do is to get uh, a lot more people to understand that private service is not degrading. It's a profession. It is a great profession, and it can be very rewarding. Um, challenging a lot at times but it is rewarding and if we can get more people coming into private service the happier i would be because it's very difficult nowadays to have a good team 
in a house. We're talking on one of my estates, I had over 62 staff. But even with 62 staff, you're managing 62 people. You're only as strong as your weakest link. And unless you're training your housekeepers, um, you're going to have a problem because your housekeeper might decide that they're going to use Windex on everything to okay. clean it. And you can't use Windex on satin, nickel faucets. You know, you can't use Win- Windex on 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 sealed wood. You can't use Windex on a mirror if it's a, an antique mirror with gilt around it. Unless you train somebody from the bottom up, you're always going to have a problem. It is almost impossible nowadays to find really good housekeepers because everybody wants to be the butler or the estate manager. Nobody wants to actually do the work. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it's really tough. And you you sort of have this erosion from the bottom upwards. Um, I hope that we can... Yeah, you know, I hope that we can change that. Um, And I think there's a lot of butler schools out there that do good jobs. Um, I wish there were more housekeeper schools so that somebody who is looking for a decent, full-time, professional job that they could get full-time training. And then that way, after two years or three years maybe, they could move up a step. They find a housekeeper, they train them, they become the butler. But nowadays, everybody wants to be the top dog straight away, and that's not very easy. What do you mean? The president's position isn't available? I'm sorry, are there positions available? What what are you telling me? The president's position is not available for me? I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time hearing that. That was a bit of sarcasm when you said they want to come in and they want to be the butler. They want to be the estate manager. Oh, right. And I'm walking in and saying, what do you mean the president's job isn't open for me? (laughs) Got you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I I ran into that a lot after I uh, stopped being a butler. Uh, A lot of people um, still do call me and ask me to do uh, consultations for them and go into the house and say, well, fix my house. There's something wrong with it. And very often it's because Everybody wants to be top dog. There's been no training. There is no staff roster. There is no staff handbook. Everybody's, you know, half the people are either illegal or off the books. Mm-hmm. And you don't, you know, it, it's just not, not a, good, a, a good situation. You want to start from the bottom and work up. That is the only way. In order to train somebody properly, you have to know their job. And you can't just walk into a um, a 25,000 square foot house with four other buildings on it and expect to run it like that without any management experience at all. Because you have staff, every staff person has a problem. You're an HR manager, you're the payroll manager, you're the trainer, you're you're literally... you have to be able to do all of that. And sometimes it's just not possible. You need support. Chris, this is just remarkable. Um, I, I know I'm not alone when I tell you I had no idea the scope of the position of Butler. Would you tell me the progressions 
that you and others, when you first started, had to go through in order to earn the title butler. Certainly. Paul butler, I guess um, correct term. Yep. Um, I had three years in um, hotels, restaurants, bars, so my knowledge of drinks, fine food, fine service, fine table service, um, that was part of it. And then on the yacht, you learn the basics of crewing a boat, which is um, can-do attitude. There's no such word as can't on a boat, because if you can't, you die. So there is not that word is not allowed. You have to do whatever has to be done. And you have to learn cleaning, because your boat has to be clean. You can't have a dirty boat if you're going to be cruising around in the south of France or somewhere. Um, you don't want your employer to be embarrassed when your boat pulls in. So it's got to shine like it didn't just do 10 days going across the Atlantic in the Bay of Bengal or something. You know, I mean, it has to look perfect when it comes in the, the harbor. Um, you learn self-discipline because at all times your crew members are re relying on you um, and you have to have that teamwork and be disciplined enough to do your job. Um, I mentioned cleaning both outside the boat and inside. Um, those are, were all good mm, training exercises. Um, you have that ability to absorb those basics. Um, admittedly, there's a lot of difference between a marine toilet and a regular toilet, but you need to know how to fix it if it gets stopped up. Um, and that, if somebody didn't have all of that, I think they should at least have the basics down. They, if somebody wants to go into private service, they should start to get a good all-round general knowledge. Um, I'm not saying you have to be a nuclear physicist, but you do have to know the basics. You know, have to how to make a bed properly. Um, look up online how to do it if you if you have to. Uh, if you've never been taught by your parents, um, how to make a um, an old-fashioned. Uh, uh, what is the best wine in the world, or considered the best wine in the world? Anything like that um, would help any person going into private service as a butler. Uh, I was very lucky. I was actually working on a yacht in Italy, and um, an opportunity came up. Uh, another uh, crew member on another boat asked me if, um, she said, what's the matter? You don't look very happy. And I said, well, yeah, I just called my dad and he said he's selling the family house in London. And uh, she said, well, what's wrong with that? I said, well, it's my family home. I don't really have anywhere else. And I've traveled for eight years and um, I might want to go back. And she said, so why the bad, sad face? And I said, well, I said that I buy his house and I have to get a steady job now. So she said, why don't you become a butler? And I looked at her and I said, a butler? But why would I want to be a butler? 
I said, I'm not 60 years old. I, I don't stand six foot tall and I don't have gray hair and I don't wear glasses. And back then I used to talk like a Londoner then because uh, that's where I come from. So um, <laughs> I don't even speak like a butler. So how could I possibly be a butler? Um, and she said, well, you know, you have the basics down. You've got the cleaning, you've got the experience in food, in service. I think you'd be great. And I said, how come you know so much about being a butler? And she said, well, my brother-in-law used to be a butler for this lady who lives in the south of France in Switzerland. And she's looking for a replacement. And I said, okay, I'll go. <laughs> so I did. And uh, I ended up driving down to saint jean cap And I got to the house five minutes before the appointed time. And there's this enormous big wooden gate in front of me. And uh, I'm knocking on the gate. There's no bell. And I'm trying to ring it. And nothing's happening. And so I thought, well, I don't want to be late for the interview. So I opened up the door. And there's this beautiful 10,000-square-foot villa right on Beaulieu Bay. And I'm walking along the pathway through the grass up to the house and I get halfway there and all of a sudden the front door opens and five dogs came screaming out of the front door. <laughs> that was interesting. So I was looking around to see how fast I could climb up a palm tree um, to get away from the dogs. But uh, it turned out that they were quite friendly, fortunately. And um, the lady who came out um, was very nice. She said, could I help you? And I said, yes, madam, I'll come about the job as a butler. And she said, oh, you're English. Well, go around and see the chef. And that was it. That was my interview of how I became a butler. <laughs> was that the first job you tackled was to teach people how to interview prospects? Uh, interview, sorry? I said, it would, was that your first job with them, to teach people how to interview prospects correctly? Oh, good gosh, no, no. Uh, then I was on, I was a, a learning butler. Um, I learned a lot of how to polish silver. There was an awful lot of that. Um, and I was fortunate in that the um, the retiring butler was good enough to um, stay on for a while and give me some hints and pointers uh, and keep me on the straight and narrow, so to speak, uh, for at least a couple of months, which was really handy. Um uh, because I was out of my depth. Um, it was chalk and cheese between working on a yacht for a very down-to-earth, although very rich, uh, gentleman. And this lady and her husband, she was English aristocracy. She was um, domiciled in Switzerland for tax purposes, which I didn't know until about three months after I was working there. And I was told that in three months' time, we're going to be packing up the house and we're moving back to Switzerland. I was like, oh, great. You know, unfortunately, my girlfriend was in Monte Carlo at the time, so it made for a long commute on my day off. <laughs> uh, but no, we never actually taught her anything, believe me. Um, she was the one who taught me. Um, in the book, we give an example about um, my inexperience of how a butler should behave. Uh, and if I may, I'll give you a quick example. Um, 
it was New Year's Eve and my employers wanted to go to um, Monte Carlo, the Hotel de Paris, for the uh, Red Cross Ball, which they do every year, and uh, or the New Year's Eve Ball. And they would go there and we would have a Buick Electra Roadmaster. It was this enormous, great big car and it could seat nine people. Um, that was one of the cars we used. And because she was taking friends um, to the ball, um, we had a full car load. So there were eight guests and myself driving. And when I dropped them off at the um, Hotel de Paris in Monte Carlo, um, I then thought, well, you know, it's eight o'clock. They're not going to be coming out until at least half past 12, one o'clock. So I'll go and have some fun with my friends. And I did. Mm. And I took them, I went and picked them up in the English pub and I took them back to um, the, the villa and in my little quarters. And we had a couple of bottles of champagne. I did not drink because I was driving, but my friends did. And then I took them back to Flashman's, the English pub in Monte Carlo. And um, my friends all got out, slammed the doors and I said, goodbye, happy new year. And I went over to the Monte Carlo, or to the Hotel de Paris. And I was sitting there waiting for my boss to come out. And then they came out and they opened the back door of the station wagon, the rear door. And there is a floor panel that pops up and then you click on a little latch and a back seat pops up and you can get in there. And as I was doing this for my boss, I looked down and one of my friends had vomited in the car. Oh, dear. And hadn't told me. So, of course, my boss gets in and he's like, uh, what's that? And at the at quarter to two on 1st of January, I was out the back cleaning up this car. And my boss came out and said, you have to learn something, Christopher. He said, when we play, you work. And that was something that I have taken to heart completely because you cannot have you can't have a double standard like that. You have to maintain your decorum all the time when you're working. So obviously my friends were never allowed back in my apartment again. Uh, and they, I never took my friends in one of my boss's cars again, ever. So you learn. I'm amazed that with the number of possibilities this incident happened with someone who could come over and say, don't do that again, and not just throw you out on your ear. Well, he, he did preface it by saying, now look here, Christopher, you know, you're extremely young, and you're very inexperienced, and this would never have happened with Edward, but we like you, so please don't do this again. And when <laughs> we play, you work. That was the entire conversation. Um, it was one of the longest conversations I ever had with them. Uh, the entire four years that I worked there, it was very much yes, my lady, no, my lady, yes, sir, no, sir. Very, very little um, interaction because mm -hmm. there was a regime, there was a calendar, and the days just were the same almost every day. They were quite elderly, in, and they were not invalids, but um, they weren't very mobile 75-year-old people, and so they didn't tend to do a lot. 
there was a regime. You, the ladies maid went up at eight o'clock in the morning with breakfast, and I'd iron the newspapers. I mean, really, you iron the newspapers. I never knew anybody did that, but <laughs> I had to do it. That story I did read. <laughs> yeah. So why would you want to? Why? why? You know, nowadays, print doesn't come off in your hands, and you're not wearing white gloves when you're reading the newspaper. It doesn't matter. But she wanted it done, so that was right done. And then, you know, she'd have uh, morning coffee at 10 o'clock. She'd have a sherry or a gin and tonic at 12 o'clock. We'd have lunch at 12.30, put everything away, polish the silver, go walk the dogs, come back, uh, make afternoon tea, come back. And at 6.30, she'd have a gin and tonic or a sherry. And then it would be dinner, and by 8.30, she'd be in bed. And that was the day. And it didn't matter whether we were at the estate in Switzerland or the villas down in the south of France. That was the day. Occasionally, she might, oh, every Friday, she went out and had her hair done. Um, once a month, we went to Ventimiglia, which is a little village just over the Italian border from France. Um, and we go and get booze because it was cheaper in Italy. Even though she had telephone numbers on the back of her bank statements, we still had to go and get cheap booze. <laughs> Amazing. It really was. It was an education. Is, is this the, uh, as, as, I'm, as you're talking to me, I believe this is attached to the story where you got stopped at the border? Oh, yes. Yes. Well, if you can imagine going backwards and forwards to Italy and every time we went, we drove in the Rolls most of the time. Um, not the Rolls or the Mercedes, but there were always at least three other people apart from me. Generally, there were five of us in the car and five people crossing the border were allowed to bring five gallons of alcohol back. And we would do that every month for six months. And they didn't drink a lot, but they did entertain. And she did this because where she was domiciled in Switzerland, it was very, very expensive to buy American alcohol or English alcohol. Um, so unbeknownst to me, we had another butler come in to help us pack the house up. And he packed the car that I was supposed to drive from the south of France to Switzerland. And like an idiot, um, I figured, well, I'm going to be up there two months before, or two weeks before my boss is there. So uh, I'm going to have a vacation with my girlfriend. And she was Irish and we went up through the border and the guard looked at our passports and said, uh, you're English. She's Irish. What's this all about? Uh, get out. <laughs> so we got out of the car and they took the car off and they weighed it. And eventually, to my horror, I find the Swiss guards unloading gallons and gallons and gallons of spirits out of this car from every nook and cranny under the seat, in the back hatch there where you, under the floorboards, where the <laughs> spare tire would be. And they're putting it out on this trailer. And the Swiss are not known for their humor. But I actually heard one of the Swiss guards, he actually turned around to me and he said, so is your boss opening a restaurant? And I looked at him and I said, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> he 
it was only because I was the chauffeur, the innocent chauffeur, I must hasten to add, uh, that I managed to not be thrown in jail immediately. But it did cost my employer 3,000 Swiss francs. And to give you an idea, back in those days, I was earning about 600 Swiss francs a week. So it was uh, the equivalent of a lot of months of salary. And uh, my boss, every time she would ask, oh, I'll have one of those expensive gin and tonics, please. (laughs) And there was a lot of sarcasm being dropped there because of this, because I didn't smuggle correctly. Another trait that every butler should have, not. Um, It was not nice to be asked to do that. Um, And obviously, if I'd have known, I wouldn't have done it. were there was there more than one circumstance that you were asked to do something you knew was either illegal or immoral or wrong for some reason? Well, it didn't occur to me at the time. Um, one of my employers um, had very generously suggested that I take a vacation to Florence in Italy so that I would understand better i would better understand his vision for his house that i was building for him in the hamptons he wanted the italianate villa and in order to recreate that i should go to florence and check out the architecture i thought that was very nice of him and uh, he said of course you'll take your wife and i said oh, thank you very much so we hop on a plane and on the plane my, my wife said chris there's never something for nothing this is going to cost us and we'd been asked to pick up some gifts to bring back to the United States. And one of them were small cigarette boxes that were about six inches long by maybe three inches wide, inch and a half, two inches high. And they were made out of black marble or malachite and just gorgeous pieces. And they must have been, I'm guessing, three or four, maybe $500 a piece. And we had 10 of these. And so my wife, being very clever, she said, "Uh, and you will be giving me a receipt that says that these are going to be $10 each, right? And he said, well, that's what you want. And we said, Kim said, yes, that's what we want. So they wrapped them all very nicely in tissue paper and uh, bubble wrap and uh, put them in a bag. And we got to the English, uh, sorry, to the Italian customs uh, screening and we put the bag on and of course the next thing I know I'm looking at six cabanieres with Uzis and they're pointing at me and I said can I help you and they're like Kekaza, Kekaza, what's this, what's this and they're pointing to the bag and they're holding up what looks like a kilo of cocaine it was wrapped just like and in the size of a kilo of cocaine and I said, no, 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 it's a gift, it's a gift. And I'm like, I'm sure it's a very nice gift. But no, no, I'm saying it's a gift, it's a gift. <laughs> and so eventually they opened one up and they found out there are these little um, marble or malachite boxes. And they're like, oh, well, go on, get out of here. Um, so that was interesting. Um, and we've been asked, we were also asked at the same time to bring across some other stuff, of course, without um, perhaps paying as much duty on it as we should have done. Um, <clears throat> And that was the last time that ever happened. My gosh. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah. The things you have to do. uh, Indeed. I'm just astounded here. Chris, uh, before 
I go to some of the stories that you were starting to share with us before we started this recording. Would you compare the service that you did and were involved in in England, or actually in Europe, um, and compare it to the states today? Of course. Um, in bear in mind also that there's a difference of time here, um, but in Europe. I always thought of myself as a formal butler, um, and I was treated as such. Um, my employer would not um, recognize me. I mean, she wouldn't um, introduce me to her friends, for example. Um, and that was normal for me it was normal for me to be in the background just to be there if she needed anything or he needed anything and yet when i came to america my employer would um come with me to the front door when i'm greeting a guest and he'd say hey joe how are you have you met chris he's my butler he's from england and you don't have to do that. It's okay. You know, I'm, it was very different. And I became very, very good friends with my employers over here in America. And I don't think that would have ever happened in working for former aristocracy, um, perhaps over a much longer time. But um, in the short four years that I was with her, I think the longest conversation I ever had with her was, what do you mean you're leaving? Uh, <laughs> you know, that was, that was a conversation. Uh, and I very rarely had conversations with my employer in Europe. Um, yeah. It was set. It was a routine. But over here, and the position of butler that I took over here was very much more so, more like a, a, a major domo. I did everything. Um, I wasn't just a butler. Uh, I was his chef. I went shopping for him. Uh, I was his chauffeur. I was his valet. Um, I made all his travel arrangements. Um, I had nothing to do with his business except for things like, oh, um, where he had, I think, 80-odd employees. And he'd say, well, it's coming up for Christmas, so find out whether everybody wants a ham or a turkey and make it happen. So all of his employees would get you know, an email or uh, uh, go up and find them and say, okay, tick the box off, which do you want for Christmas? Would you like this or this? And that I would have to do for him. Um, and then he used to go back to his apartment in Monte Carlo during the summer, and he would leave me a honey-do list. <laughs> and the honey-do list would be long. And one of the things on there was oil the shingles, the wooden shingles, on the roof. So I'd be up there spraying linseed oil on top of cedar shakes in Southern California, which is different. <laughs> and then there was the time he wanted his bar. There's a nautical bar on the second floor. Um, and the entire um, interior was wooden paneling. So I would have to oil the wooden paneling when he was gone. Um, the first, uh, second year he went away, he said, oh, here's a check for $100,000. I'd like a 
new master bedroom and a new master bathroom. 16 weeks later, he came back. There's your master bathroom. There's your master bedroom. He's like, oh, that's great. Next year he goes away, he gives me a check for $200,000. He said, the three bedrooms and the three bathrooms, I want you to give me a whole new guest wing. 16 weeks later, he had a whole new guest wing. And then the fourth year, he went away and I said, I need a check for $250,000. And he said, what on earth for? And I said, well, if you think I'm cooking in this avocado green kitchen anymore, I'm done. <laughs> so um, I built him oversaw the construction of and design of this enormously beautiful kitchen. Um, I used to do a lot of flambe tableside work. Uh-huh. So I would cook on a trolley on a guéridon. Um, that's the French word for it. And I had designed that as a rolling cabinet. But when in storage, it was pushed into the wall and it's set into the existing kitchen cabinet. So you just push on it and the latches would pop open and now you'd have a Geridon. When you didn't want it, you pushed it away and it looked like a, uh, just looked like a normal kitchen cabinet. So, but those are the sort of differences that he let me become a much more experienced person. I wasn't really a great chef when I started working for him. Um, I had cooked on the yachts sometimes, and um, I worked with probably one of the best private chefs in the world. He formerly worked for the Aga Khan, uh, and he worked at my little house in Switzerland. And he taught me an awful lot, and I took that knowledge, and I became a pretty good chef. Um, and my boss would challenge me every day. He'd say, I don't want a normal meat and potatoes thing. I want five and six small little courses, like tasting menus. And this goes back to the late 80s we were doing this. So he was far ahead of him in most of the culinary um, uh, styles that were around at that time. And so I engaged him. But I would never have an opportunity to do that, I don't think, in... Europe. I don't think that the employers would feel comfortable with that, but I think that here uh, American principles tend to challenge you in many more ways than Europeans. I think it's harder here. Uh, the more formal butlers, I think, have an easier time because they're very regimented. Their work time is probably um, more structured. But over here, um, you get told to do a lot of different things. <laughs> so I don't know. Does that help you answer it, the question between so what it's like to work in Europe and what it's like to work in America? Very much so. You're talking about okay. um, predictable, it, it, truly predictable, because you're you're working with a family or a couple or even an individual who has particular habits, and you fall right into the routine. And so that schedule is predictable, and the responsibilities are predictable. You get to America, there's no way you can expect oil a roof. No. <laughs> your, your list of responsibilities. No. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yep. So, really, you have worked um, virtually every lifestyle from casual 
and friendly coming to the door with you to the very aristocracy, the aristocracy Aristocratic. with a with a formal um, approach. Yep. Tell me, uh, tell I me. was very lucky. Um, the the formal side was a great uh, training bed. Uh, it was a good place to be in my particular career because it slowed me down. Uh, I was just a bundle and ball of massive teenage energy and you know young twenties energy, and I had to get my brain around being responsible and being a good butler and they they really did a good job i thought you know they taught me pretty well and it led me to a wonderful career so i'm very grateful to them well well, we are very grateful to you we are talking with christopher allen chris allen he said we can call him um he and his wife kimberly had a book published a butler's life as seen or actually a butler's life colon seen from the other side of the silver silver and uh, gosh, it's just, it, it's so much fun to talk with you. Would you tell people what a silver salver is, please? Certainly. Um, it's a tray, a small silver tray that in the old days, a butler would use to uh, carry a calling card from either the houseman who answered the front door, perhaps he answered the front door, and he would take it to his principal and present it to them. It would be a message tray. Um, actually, my wife was um, my wife's book was reviewed um, by a local paper in New York, and they'd never heard of the word salva either. So it became in headlines: Kimberly writes a butler's life seems from the other side of the silver slaver. S L A V E R. And sometimes that's quite appropriate as well, <laughs> depending on which principle you're actually working for. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, that's quite A new fun. flavor of spellcheck failure. I'm sorry, they... I said that's a new version of spellcheck failure. Oh, yes, indeed. Yes, yes. autocorrect. Yes. Damn you, yes. Automatically corrected it. Yes. <laughs> this, this is good. Yeah. This is good. Okay, I want you, please... Um, before I get to the horror stories and the best experiences you ever had, would you talk about the koi you were discussing oh. with us? Yeah. Uh, indeed. Um, I was working for a gentleman um, in my, my last estate, um, and he was a self-made millionaire uh, in the construction business. And he had every toy known to man, um, and one day he said, Hey, Chris, um, let's go build a koi pond. So over the course of the next three weeks, he would go off to work and I would be there supervising where we were going to put the koi and how it was going to be built and what materials we were going to use and how we were going to get the water there and how is it going to stay fresh and were there going to be too many leaves dropping in it? Do we have to take out some trees? Where were we going to position this? How would we get there? What sort of benches we would put next to the pond so that we could look at the koi? And where were we going to get the koi from? And what were we going to feed them? All of these things was my job. So we almost completed the pond. 
And I'd said to my principal before I left for a couple of days uh, on uh, Sunday, and I said, um, so boss, I said, a couple of more days and we'll be um, ready for the koi pond. He said, oh, great, good. Uh, and I went off for two days and I came back after my days off. And my boss is sitting in his office and he's not a happy camper. He is very dejected. And I said, um, hey, boss, what's the matter? He said, it's the koi. I said, what koi? He said, well, I had them FedExed from Japan. I said, wow, that must have been expensive. He said, yeah, they're about 10 grand a piece. And I said, oh, well, what's wrong with them? He said, they're gone. And I said, you put them in the pond? And he said, yeah. I said, but I didn't put the net over the top yet. We weren't finished. He said, yeah, I know that now. <laughs> and that was, that was the problem. Uh, unfortunately, a fish eagle had an osprey had come in to, on the grounds, seen these enormous, fat, colorful white and gold fish against the black background and said, oh, look, dinner, uh, and <laughs> come in and just taken the koi. And my boss's $10,000 investment in each one was no more. So we had to go and buy more. Not a good start to the koi pond. <laughs> but it's still there, and it still works. Uh, Chris, well, I'm glad for that. Chris, yes. $10,000 for a fish. You can buy these in the pet store. Um, but not... Not, quite. not the, the, Okay. Um, some koi... You can buy in a pet store, and then there's like it's like you can buy a car in a second-hand lot, or mm -hmm. you can buy a Rolls Royce, or you it can buy a Maserati. It's it's like anything. If you if you have enough money, you want the best, and a pet store won't do it for you. <laughs> so you have to know who the best koi breeders are in Japan, and you have to have them flown across. Or, that was back in the 80s, but here now we have our own breeders. In fact, there's a koi breeder here in Laguna Beach in Southern California. Uh, it could have been easier to get it from here. But either way, the fish eagle would have got it because the net wasn't over the top of the surface like it's supposed to be, keeping out all those ospreys. So that's a koi story. <laughs> those birds are accustomed to really fishing and battling and making sure that the fish isn't too big for them to fly away with. He gave them dinner on a platter. Yeah, no kidding. He did. Oh, my And gosh. he regrets it, I think, to this day. Still. <laughs> $10,000 a pop for a fish. I think I would be upset, too. Yeah, All right. No I need... kidding. It's... Go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. Oh, okay. I, I need horror stories, and I need wonderful memories. Oof. Um, horror stories. to choose from, huh? Oh, okay. I have All a right. horror story. Um, okay. Uh, things were not going well with my principal, and the reason being was that uh, after four years of working for him, he said, I want you to call me by my first name, because I always call him sir. And I said, <sighs> I call him boss or sir. And I said, boss, you know, I really have a hard time doing that because I, I don't think it's appropriate I'd be stepping over a line and I like you. I think you're the greatest guy. I think you're a wonderful boss, but 
I can't call you by your first name. And he got very upset. So we are at loggerheads on this, and it's going on for a couple of days. And it comes to Sunday, and I am about to leave uh, for two days off. And he walks into my office, and he says, it's about 3.30, 4 o'clock. And he said, uh, I need a favor. I said, sure, whatever you need. And he said, would you go and pick my mother-in-law up and take her to Lake George? And I said, now? And he said, yeah, I know it's your, I know it's your days off, but just call Kim and just you have to go now. It's an urgent thing. You have to go. And so I said, of course, I'll go. So with no clothes, no toiletries, nothing, I'm driving from Long Island to Lake George. It's about eight hours. And I get into the Rolls Royce and I drive to his mother-in-law's house and she's standing at the pavement waiting for me with a couple of bags and a person. And I don't know this person. And she, I start to get out and she says, don't get out. She gets in the car, sits in the back. Her friend sits in the back. They put their boot, their little bags in the back. And we spend eight hours in the car going up to this hotel. So I'm going to be there for three days. So I figured, well, I need a place to stay. I got them to the hotel. Um, they wouldn't let me come around and open the doors for them. They just got out of the hotel and they ran into the room. And I have no idea what this was all about, even to this day. So I'm sitting in the car and the, the uh, valet park is there. And I said, no, 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 you're not touching this car. I said, uh, you tell me where in your car park there is a camera because I'm going to park right underneath it so I can keep my eye on it. He said, okay, go here, go here, put in that bay. So I go in, park in that bay, everything's great. I walk away, I get a room at this hotel. It happens to be the presidential suite in the hotel because that's the only one they have left. I have to be in this hotel because that's where my boss is. My boss's mother-in-law is. So we wake up in the morning, I go downstairs, I've got little toiletries in the hotel, but I said, listen, I need um, a menswear shop. I need uh, a chemist. How do I get there? He said, oh, they're right around the corner. You don't even have to drive. I'm like, great. So I walk around, get my stuff, come back. And I think, you know what? I just go and check on the car. I go down into the car park. One side, my side is perfect. I walk around the other side of the car and the entire side from front to rear is smashed. Oh. And there's this enormous yellow streak right the way down the car like it's been sideswiped. I am freaking out. It's a brand new Rolls Royce. Oh. It's an enormous amount of money. My responsibility. I go up to the manager. I'm almost throttling him, but I'm trying to stay sane and calm. And I say, um the cameras downstairs in your car park. I need the tape. And he said, why is that? And I said, come down, take a look. And he looks at my car and his face went gray. And I said, this is a problem. I need to know which car did that because I don't know who did it. And he said, I hate to tell you, but the camera doesn't work. It's only for show. Oh, oh my God. So I'm there for two days. His mother-in-law says nothing about the car. I'm thinking she must be blind. Who knows? I mean, good God, look at the sight. You can't miss it. You know, half the wing mirror's hanging off. Well, no, not quite, but the wing mirrors was there. 
But um, so after three days, I drive them back to Saint uh, to uh, Long Island, and <laughs> I am on tender hooks because here I am. I'm not on good terms with my boss right now. And now I'm bringing home his brand new Rolls Royce with half the side of it scratched and scraped. And so I drop it off. He's gone to work. I'm waiting for the phone call at six o'clock and it's not coming. And eventually at eight o'clock, I go back up to the estate and I knock on the door and I say, good evening, sir. Um, How are you? And he said, fine, what's up? And I said, "Um, um, I'm really, really sorry. And he said, I don't mind if you don't call me by my first name. I said, no, 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 not that. I said, it's um, the car. He said, what about it? I said, well, the Rolls Royce. It's got that great big yellow scratch right the way down it. He said, oh, you didn't see that. Yeah, that happened to me the day before you took the car up. It got swiped <laughs> by a taxi in the, in the city. I forgot to tell you. I'm like, oh, God. So for eight hours, I've been driving up. I never saw the right-hand side of the car. And I didn't know it was already like that. I was sweating bullets. Anyway, so that's my horror story about Rolls Royces. Apart from the fact that in the 70s, they had very, very flat seats. And they were built for people with large bottoms. And because I'm quite small, I used to slide around. I'd have to hold on to the steering wheel going around corners. Because there was no lumbar support in the old seats. You had a Teflon seat. Anyway, that's a horror story. Um, Let's see. Surprise and delight. Um... Really just the people that I work for. I mean, I was very, very lucky. Um, even to this, oh, how about this? My, uh, my first employer in the United States. Yes. When he was 50 uh, in 19, let's see, 1987, we did a 50th birthday party for him. Uh, he was single at the time, so it was all stag. It was a wonderful party. We had a great time. Um, one quick horror story, always turn off the sprinklers, lawn sprinklers, when you put a tent on it, (laughs) because I forgot. (laughs) And when we were setting up, the sprinklers went off. That was interesting. Um, that was a horror story. So the good thing was, um, I haven't worked for this gentleman now in 25 years, maybe 1992, 25 years. So, um, just before Christmas, I got a phone call from his now wife, and she said, we'd like you and Kim to come and join us for his 80th birthday party. And Aww. there was 20 of his family, and Kim and I, and we were the only guests. The rest were all family. And I said, you know, if it's just family, you know. She said, no, you are family. Come on. That was a wonderful thing to say. Oh, my goodness. My goodness, I can understand that. And, <laughs> Nobody's ever died and left me in their will. You know, that's really? never happened. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's never happened. But uh, I was more than well um, uh, reimbursed. So uh, it, it really is a beautiful career to be in. Uh, yes, it takes a, a little bit of a special person, but if you can find that niche and you are happy in private service, I can highly recommend it. How did you find the different bosses? Did was there an agency that you went to? You know, after the first job in four years, how did you find your next employer? How, was there a networking? Um, how would you do something like that? Yeah. Well, when I explained to you that 
my first employer had a house in Switzerland and a house in the south of France. Um, my girlfriend lived in Monte Carlo. So every day off after dinner, I would drive from Geneva down to Monte Carlo. And then I'd come back the next day and go up and serve breakfast. Um, that got a bit tiring. So eventually I said, you know, I have to leave, blah, blah, blah. And I went back to Monte Carlo and I was living with my girlfriend. And uh, that lasted about two weeks. Long distance relationships were good, but two weeks of togetherness was like, no, this is no. Um, and again, I was working in a, a small English uh, pub in Monte Carlo. And one day, a yacht captain who I knew from my time as a steward and a chef on a yacht uh, in the Mediterranean, he said, uh, hey, Chris, um, do you really like this bartending thing or do you want to go back to being a butler and a chef again? And I said, why? What do you know? And he said, well, I have this American. He's in my gym and he's rented the Maison de Gouverneur's house. Uh, and Monte Carlo, used, Monaco used to be a lot bigger than it is nowadays. Nowadays it's about the size of Disneyland. But it used to be a lot bigger. And the governor's mansion overlooked Monte Carlo. And it went from the bar cornice like, almost up to the Moyen cornice. Phenomenal. It was 54 rooms, beautiful house. Unfortunately, the house came with staff and one of the ladies passed away and she happened to be part of a couple. And the couple, there's generally one who's very strong and one who's very weak. Unfortunately, the housekeeper was a strong person and the gentleman was the weak person in the work side of it. And so my boss is renting this villa and every time he goes to give Pierre, I'll call him, um, a task, he comes running back with a, a note from his doctor that says he can't do it. So he's now got three more months to do in uh, this villa, and he needs somebody just for three months. So I said, well, that sounds like fun. I could do that. So for a three-month contract, um, I was met by this gentleman. We're sitting down in Monte Carlo in an uh, oceanfront uh, little cafe and he bought me an espresso and he said oh you're English and I said yes I am I said, he said uh, do you cook and I said yes I cook he said and you've been a butler I said yes he said great you're hired <laughs> that was it so after three days on the third day he said they, he tried to play let's get the butler drunk and uh, I have a very good tolerance for alcohol um, but he's a lot bigger than I am and I ended up putting him to bed about 2 o'clock in the morning. And about 12 the next day, he gets up and he says, you know what, I really like you. He said, you know, I think you should come and run my estate in California. And I said, Northern California or Southern California? He said, it's Southern California, Laguna Beach. And I said, great, I'll be there. And that was how I came to work for him for, until 1992 when we left looking for a large estate to run because the estate, and I use that term loosely, um, in Laguna Beach, um, land is a lot more expensive than it is over in Europe. He could have bought the enormous 54-room villa and terrace grounds and views and all that stuff for $2 million. Um, his little house, the one-acre 4,500 square foot house with four bedrooms um, was valued at 8 million. But he was never going to get a bigger 
house. So my career was sort of stalling. I was trying to make everything I could out of this one little house, and I wanted a large estate. So I put an advert in the New York Times in the personal columns, and it said, uh, English butler estate manager seeks large estate willing to travel. And I got 15 replies within a week. Wow. Oh, my. That's something. Where did the so replies one of the come replies, from, Everywhere. Um, Dallas, Tennessee, New York, um, Palm Beach, Florida, um, everywhere. It was amazing. But I figured that that was a good place to put it. I mean, it did cost me a lot of money. I mean, it was a big risk on my part. I thought I was pushing. I mean, I put in a big boxed ad. And I think that really got somebody's attention rather than those three little lines that you can buy. Uh, But this was a big ad. And um, one of the gentlemen said, I don't know if you have time for this, but um, the interview process was quite interesting. So I get a call from a gentleman in New York who says, um, you know, you sound perfect. I need someone who can act as my liaison between my house that I'm building in the Hamptons while I live in the city in New York. And you seem to have construction experience. And I said, well, yes, I've done these three major remodels on my last estate. Great, he says, good. Um, Okay, Uh, uh, oh, how old are you? And I said, I'm sorry? I didn't think you could ask that. He said, well, I don't know. Well, he said, all right, just give give me a birth date. And I'm thinking... Okay, well, in for a penny, in for a pound, so I gave him my birthday. He said, I'll call you back. An hour later, phone rings. Can I help you? Hi, is this Chris? Yes. You're perfect. You're hired. I said, well, uh, thank you, but wouldn't you like to see my resume? Or do, do you, what, just like that? And he said, yes. Um, I use the same numerologist as the Queen of England, and she says you're perfect. And that was it. I got the job. Oh, my word. I'm not kidding. <laughs> so I, I came. This is, I've got to tell one more story. A yeah. couple more stories. Please. Oh, yeah. So I get on a plane in New York. Uh, sorry, in Los Angeles. I get off in New York. I arrive after a two-hour limo ride. And I get out of the limo. It's pitch black. There's not a street light anywhere and there's a little light on the front door and so i go to the front door and this housekeeper opens the door and she says hi you must be chris i said yes i am i said uh, hello how are you she says i'm cora I'm like, hey cora how's it going she says, i'm the housekeeper I'm like, oh great so i said uh what time do we start tomorrow cora she says oh seven o'clock i said great so at six o'clock i'm up i'm showering trying to deal with a three-hour time difference and I put my tuxedo on, and I start hearing all these cars arriving. Now, bear in mind, I have not seen anything of this estate that I'm going to run. But I know that I'm in a pretty good-sized house. It's about 6,000 square feet. And he said he was putting an, an addition on. So at 7 o'clock, I walk outside, and I see 14 carpenters lined up. And they're saying, where do you want me to bang this nail? And I said, no, no, wait. I'm the butler. And they said, no, 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 you're the builder. I said, I beg your pardon? They said, no, 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 you're the builder. You've got building experience. I said, for what? I turn around and there's a 15,000 square foot addition being built on the house 
with no architect and no general contractor. <laughs> the roof is on, the walls are up, the foundation's in, and I'm like, uh, I'll be back in a minute. So I go back in and put my jeans on, put my boots on, put my lumberjack shirt on, freezing in the middle of winter. And I said, so what's the deal? And they said, well, they fired the architect because he was an idiot. And the boss is the uh, contractor, but he doesn't know anything about construction. So where do you want me to bang this nail? I said, well, wait, well, hold on. Well, it was great experience for me because I'm now actually listed on the CFO of that building as being the builder. <laughs> and since then, I have built seven houses. But that's another point. Okay, so you asked me how I got my jobs. The next job I got, after I completed this 15,000 square foot addition to the house, because he actually lived next door on another five acres or something. And this was actually going to be his guest house. And oh he'd sold me on this job because he said, it'd be just like running a B&B, except you won't have to buy the house. I'm going to bring my friends down. You're going to look after them. And I won't have to see them until I want to see them. I'm like, that sounds like a plan to me, whatever you want to do. So... We get over, we do all this, we get the house done, blah, blah, blah. So we then move on, and I'm um, in between jobs, and I'm building this house. That's another story. So I'm building another house. And um, one of the domestic agents called me and said, Chris, I've got this perfect job for you. And I said, well, you know, I don't really want to go into private service again. And she said, oh, Chris, you wanted a large estate, this is a large estate. I said, well, how big is it? And she said, well, the main house is 34,000 square feet. I said, that's nice. So I go for the interview and I'm wandering around this house and there's servants quarters on the third floor, there's servants quarters in the basement and it's on an enormous piece of property. And I said, uh, so, so, well, where will my wife and I be uh, living? Will we be living upstairs on the third floor? And he went, Good God, no. I like my privacy. I'm thinking four people in 34,000 square feet and I can't live here? I said, well, where am I going to live? He said, hey, no problem. Hop in the car. So we jump in the car. We go off on the tour and we're driving up this lane and we get to this carriage house. It's 10,000 square feet. Oh, my word. It's got stables. It's got... Uh, Jockey's quarters, it's got, it's got a 25-foot-high open loja as you walk in these big open wooden doors. It's got a 50-foot-high clock tower above the front door. Oh, my word. I said, wow, it's a bit big. And he said, yeah, it is a bit, isn't it? And he said, come on, get back in the car. So we get back in the car, we drive along, we go out on the, on the main road of the, around the estate, and we go back on the estate, and there's this little tiny two-bedroom, one-bathroom cottage right next to Oyster Bay. I was like, oh, man, this is just like my house in Beaulieu that I lived in. This is great. And I open the front door, and there's no floor. It's dirt. <laughs> and I said, well, um, it needs a bit of work. And he said, yeah, but I'm in construction. I can fix that. And I said, yes, I'm sure you can, but uh, I start working six days. Where am I going to live? And he said, oh, you know, this is too small anyway. Come with me. So we get back in the car, drive around again, get back on the estate, and we come to the gardener's, quote, cottage, unquote, six bedrooms, 4,600 square feet. 
a three-car garage and a hundred-foot-long greenhouse attached to this gardener's cottage. And he said, this will do you, won't it? I said, yes, thank you very much, sir. This is perfect. He said, great, okay, I'll see you on Saturday. So on Saturday, I arrive, and uh, I walk in the door of my 4,600-square-foot cottage, and there's an envelope on the kitchen table. And it says, Chris. Oh, look at that, there's an envelope. So I open it up, and inside I pull out a Visa card with my name on it, an American Express card with my name on it, and a MasterCard with my name on it, and about $10,000 in cash. And there's a little note that says with it, and it says, Dear Chris, sorry we weren't here to greet you. We went skiing for the weekend. Make yourself comfortable. Buy anything you need. See you Monday. And that was it. How oh, did my you, word. How do you negotiate your salary? I mean, it, 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 I mean, everybody, I imagine every employer is different. Do you, you go mm-hmm. in, you go, you have a dollar number in your head when you do the interview, or do like a standard rate? How in the world do you make sure that you're, you know, you work out the right deal for for yourself doing something like that? I mean, it it got to be... It is, it's dependent on a couple of factors. And I think that regardless of the job you do, unless it has a structured salary base. Um, I mean, at one stage in my long career, I was um, a... Uh, lab technician and you started as an E1 and after 20 years you're going to be an E5 and there was no way to go anywhere but from E1 to E5 so it was structured but with private service it's very very different if you live in then obviously your salary isn't going to be as much as if you were to live out and let's face it the location where you might be has a lot to do with it for example, a friend of mine runs a 400-acre estate in New Jersey. And it, it, just because he has to be on the estate, they're giving him a very nice cottage and everything else. But he has a phenomenal, um, a very good salary package because he has 15, 20 years' experience. If he was just going into that job, yes, he'd get the same accommodation, but he wouldn't get near the same salary. You have to know, um, let me give you an example, perhaps. Let's supposing that you work or you went to uh, the Culinary Institute in uh, Poughkeepsie, and you came out as a trained chef after two years. If you combined, no, let's start with that. So now you're a chef, but you've never been in a private house, you've never been in a restaurant, you might have done a little internship or something during your coursework, but you've never actually worked. Now, you may go into a, a restaurant and you're probably going to earn thirty-five, maybe $35,000 right. um, as a starting sous chef or a commie or not, whatever. If you were to combine that experience or that knowledge of chefing, cooking, with having eight weeks of training so you could become a butler, mm-hmm. you could probably start at around sixty to $70,000. But you'd also be living in with everything all found. 
So you can add maybe another thirty-five or 40000 in actual money to your salary. Do you understand that? Yep, got it. Mm-hmm. Because not only are they paying you the seventy, they're also paying for everything else. If you had to pay for it in after-tax dollars, that would probably be closer to everything you were going to earn anyway. So they're giving you all that after taxes. Your wages go straight into the bank, or they should. It should. But if, now, you, if you're living there, um, if you're living there though, it, it's almost like twenty-four-seven. Even though you negotiate, you know, your your time off or whatever. It, it to me, it, it, you know, it can be okay. okay. That is where the interview process comes in. Got and it. again, I think before this interview, we actually spoke very briefly about defining the job right. and I'll, I'll give you an example one of my employers I won't say which one I worked five and a half days a week but my half days I used to work from 7.30 in the morning until 5.30 in the afternoon plus doing five regular days. Uh-huh. And the days were all from seven in the morning until eight or nine at night. That was excessive. But I was very green and I didn't have as much experience as I did after that. But I took that experience in that time and I tripled my salary living for the next one. And basically grows up when you do a job and you're living in you have to have time off if your employer doesn't understand that you're going to burn out and your career is not going to go well it's not in your interest and it's not in their interest to work anybody like that unfortunately i had the i have one position which i didn't even put on my resume because i only worked there for five months i did a summer season for them and it was literally 18 hours a day and it's ridiculous. And I said, you know, I'm only doing it now because we're going into the season. I understand that, you know, this is not uh, tenable. It's not sustainable. We have to change this. We need a decent staffing roster. Um, I can't keep covering for two other people. And after five months, I realized, you know what, it's just not worth it. This guy's not going to change. And he has been going through staff like a knife through hot butter. He's one of the worst employers you could ever work for, um, in my opinion. Right. And unfortunately, uh, there are people like that. But there are people who you sit down with and they say, listen, on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I want you to do this. On Saturday, I want you to do this. Sunday and Monday, those are your days off. I worked for one gentleman for five years, and they called me twice outside of regular working hours. The first time was because I had not refiled a manila folder in the drawer where it was supposed to be and my principal needed it. And so she called me and she said, hey, Chris, where's your file? I said, oh, it's on my desk under the blotter. So she picked it up, took it, said, thanks very much, have a good night, bye. The second time she called me, she said, it was uh, 5.30 in the morning. And she called me. She said, Christopher, do you think you could come up to the house? And I said, why is that, madam? She said, well, could you bring a chainsaw? A train, a tree's fallen down over the driveway and we can't get out and the bus has to go to work in an hour. 
I think I can do that for you. No problem. Now, how many times have I used a chainsaw? <laughs> um, there's a story there. Um, okay. So my boss, a boss that I work for, owned a piece of property. And um, he had rented it to a municipality for 20 years. And it was supposed to be used as a car park, and it was going to be replaced as a car park, returned to the owner as a car park. Well, unfortunately, they had put all of these trees in there, and um, the town that they were in was quite green. And they said, um, oh, you can't chop the trees down. So my boss came up to me one day, and he said, this is a chainsaw. You start it like this. Don't go near that end. This is how you take a tree down. Zing, zing. He said, tomorrow we're going to go take some trees down. Oh, okay. So we went at 6 o'clock in the morning. We fired up these chainsaws and we took down the trees. And uh, that was my first experience using a chainsaw. Since then, I've actually, I actually now own three sets of chainsaws. <laughs> Why do I own three sets of chainsaws? Well, I have a lot of property in New York and they have trees on them. And uh, you never want to be without a chainsaw in case there's a hurricane. So there you go. It's amazing the things you learn if you're a butler. <laughs> you're, you're right. I am amazed here. <laughs> this is just so great. Oh, my gosh. Chris, in this country today, with current standards and social, I don't know, social culture, I guess, how would someone go about finding a butler or a person of service in today's environment here in the States? Um, the number one route to go is generally with a domestic agency. Um, there are some good ones out there. There are some bad. Um, but most people get recommendations from their friends. Um, that's the most logical and ethical way to do it. Um, as a bit of a joke, we used to say that when guests came to the house, you had to count the silver because your guests would steal it. Now they tend to steal staff instead because a good, a good member of staff, a good butler is really worth their weight in gold. Uh, they can save you a lot of time, a lot of hassle, make your life so much more comfortable. Um, and using domestic agents, um, they do the preliminary interviews for you. Um, they have a knowledge, hopefully, of what goes into the position. The more open you are with your agent and the more truthful you are with the agent of exactly what it is you want, they should be able to tell you what sort of person you need, whether you do need a chef and a butler or a butler and a, a lady's maid or a housekeeper and a butler or any combination of all of the above. Um, they will help you set up your house. Um, there are ex-butlers like myself uh, who have side businesses. What we do is we go into uh, a private house and we'll do a consultation with the principal and they will tell us what it is they're looking for. Um, we will lay out a uh, comprehensive staffing plan, maybe do... Uh, staff handbook for them in association with their company lawyers. Uh, we'll set up pay schedules. We'll set up um, regular work schedules. We'll help design houses for staff um, because a lot of our, and a lot of architects don't understand 
the difference between a house with staff and a house without. If you want to design a house to be efficient, it should have staff in mind when they do that. For example, you might decide, well, I'm going to have staff um, and uh, that's the end of it. Well, it's not the end of it because you have to think about things like where are the staff going to walk? How are they going to get from point A to point B? Is there a way that they can move from floor to floor, perhaps a separate staircase, um, without being seen by all the guests and without being heard? Perhaps we should put an an in-house vac system in because that way they can vacuum the hallways without disturbing anybody in the guest bedrooms rather than use a vacuum cleaner where it's it's the, uh, not a good thing. They, you have to know what type of service they're going to be serving dinner on. How many different sets of china does the principal have? Where are you going to store them? Are they going to be used every day or are some set aside for seasons? If it's a, um, if it's a Jewish household and they are observing um, and it's a kosher house, then I'm sure they know to put in preferably two kitchens. But there are so many more things that you have to think about when you go to employ staff. And having somebody who is um, experienced in something like that, it's ideal if you can find um, somebody who's not trying to sell you anything because a domestic agent obviously is going to sell you a person and they're going to make money through that. A consultant is a good way to go. Um, You can do it on your own if you're comfortable with that. You can put an advert in the paper. There's one called the Caretaker's Gazette. Um, You might use an organization like DEMA, which is Domestic Estate Managers Association. Um, Let's see. You may steal a person from your friends. Uh, You may ask them if they know anybody in the business. There's a few ways to do it. But there are Does ways. that answer the question? Yes, it certainly did more than I expected. Thank okay. you. Indeed. You're welcome. Chris, one of the things that really struck me in the book is that you had wonderful recipes in there that clearly you created. Um, I, 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 I would put it down and say, oh, I'm so hungry. <laughs> I needed to have something <laughs> to eat. You, you, put, yep. you had um, pages of tips for people coming into service. You had instructions. You had dress codes. These are things that you put together. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, a lot of the recipes are from um, their variations of things that are standard, um, tried and true um, gourmet meals. Mm-hmm. Um, bear in mind that those that book was written quite a while ago, so they're pretty dated by today's uh, standards. I don't think I've ever seen avocado Mary Rose sauce on a menu now for maybe 20 <laughs> years. But there's, there's a lot of uh, advice in there, like how to clean a car. Um, mm-hmm. You know, most people, they send their car into a car wash. It's the worst thing you can do, uh, especially if you have a, a classic car. Um, if it's a very expensive car, you wouldn't be putting it through the car wash. Um, but there again... You wouldn't be taking a bucket and a sponge that you just happen to find somewhere and start washing the car. There are a lot of different techniques that you have to use 
again, I'm not um, uh, a professional valet for a, a car wash. I'm, I'm, I'm not. But there are certain things that you should know about before you go to wash an expensive car. The worst thing you can do is just lean up against the car and start wiping the top off um, because you're probably wearing a belt buckle. And if you are moving and your hips are moving while you're moving your arms, the chances are you might scratch the car with your belt buckle. So take your belt buckle off. Um, never leave the keys in the car when you're washing it because if you hit the lock button, your keys are in the car, you're listening to the music, everything's great, you go to open the car and the car's locked. Happened to me with the Rolls Royce. It's amazing. Uh, <laughs> took me two minutes to get into the Rolls Royce. I found out how to do that. Um, <clears throat> that's the other side of my bringing up. But anyway, um, there's a lot of tips and things in there. There's a lot of tips in the book. Um, at one stage, um, I had this crazy idea that I was going to start a butler school. Uh, we were going to do our bed and breakfast during the summer and a butler school in the winter. And I decided against that eventually, but I did start to write a curriculum. And though I say so myself, it is a great curriculum. I don't know anybody who wouldn't want to become a butler just to do this curriculum. It is uh, a lot of fun. It has everything in there from... Uh, Let's see, um, how to choose a cigar, um, how to store cigars, um, how to clean shotguns. It's got all sorts of information in here, as well as the more formal, uh, how to look after silver, uh, how you properly store china, how you, clean, how you make a bed, how you hang a wardrobe, how you unpack a suitcase, how you pack a suitcase how you deal with antique books, uh, how you deal with antique furniture and rugs and throw rugs and overs on carpets and how you deal with uh, marble and granite countertops and how to clean windows and how to clean any room. This course, this is what they teach you when you go to a butler school. And um, I created this curriculum for that. Um, and hopefully the butler schools that are out there now are doing that or a better job uh, of it because they've been doing it for a while now. Um, and hopefully it's, um, it's still a career that's very appropriate, needed, and wanted. Uh, it is a phenomenal position to hold. Uh, I mean, you're unique. How many other butlers do you guys know? You know, yeah. um, I only know of <laughs> um, I only know about 600, but that's because I've been in the business for 20 years and we're all on a, a, a website where we can talk and connect and sort of chat about our lives, which is great. So this is on an international basis when you talk about 600. Yeah. You're not all in the States. You're, that's worldwide. Yeah. Yeah, that's worldwide. So There's worldwide, a lot of, that's um, not a huge number. Well, I mean, that's only the number that are on this particular board. Um, mm -hmm. There are a lot more than that in the world, um, I'm sure, because if you look in any domestic agents' um, wanted help wanted ads, 
Mm-hmm. Um, there are positions for butlers every day, every day. Hmm. That's amazing. Thank that, you. I mean, that, that really is amazing. Chris, when you were talking earlier about the employer or principal, you, you call them, this is the first time I, I heard mm-hmm. that term used in, in this context. When you were talking about how dreadful it was, that um, he, he just could not keep people. Is there not an underground where information is shared? It sounds so nefarious to say underground, but an underground where members of your group share information with each other and tell them, well, if you, if you want to go, this is what you can expect, and they oh, yeah. think it's a more intelligent decision. But this guy apparently kept attracting people. How did he keep that up? By paying over $200,000 a year, live-in, all found, everything paid for. Uh, do they take women? <laughs> oh, yeah, I can, absolutely. I can tolerate an awful lot for $200,000 a oh, year. No, no, no. Today, today, there's no stereotyping with butlers. I mean, women or men. I mean, some great butlers I know, um, actually know one who works for, well, I can't say who she works for, but um, she works for an extremely prominent very, very rich person, and uh-huh. she's been doing so for uh, about ten years now. Um, I did and she's not know that. Absolutely, gr- she's perfect at it. I did so, not yeah, there know are female that butlers too. Absolutely. Again, yeah. please. Mm. What did uh, I? I stepped sorry. right on there a are, comment you made. I'm sorry. There are. I, I stepped a lot there. I did it again. Female butlers. Yeah. Uh huh. That is really amazing. Um, how long have the women been in service in this capacity? How many years? Well, I don't mean individuals, uh, but when did they break into the... From, I can't say really. I mean, I'm not an expert. Uh, I've not been a domestic agent for a long time um, mm-hmm. or in that capacity, but um, I'm guessing late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember doing a consultation for a couple here in Los Angeles, and they had female butlers back in the early 90s. Hmm. So at least from then, and I'm sure since before that. It it has been very much a male-dominated area, but um, it's changing now. And if you can do the job, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, really. My goodness. Well, I, I would like to showcase the creativity that I picked up as I went through the book, the, the many things that you instantly responded to and created a success with. And you used the name Reynolds, Mr. Reynolds, in there. I'm not sure that um, all of the names in there are real names. Oh, no, or, they're, all, you know, they're all pseudonyms. They're all fake. Yeah, to protect yeah. the innocent, as they say in Dragnet. Yes, exactly. Um, but Mr. But, Reynolds or Mr. Carstairs? Oh, Mr. Reynolds. Yeah. Oh, yes, I think I know him. <laughs> yes, Are you talking right. about the gentleman on the boat? On the boat, on the beach, yes. Oh, At yes. the beach. Yes. Um, well, that was quite fun because um, we were on an 80-foot yacht, and uh-huh. it was a small beach in the south of England, and we had this very laid-back guest. Um, he was not at all um, a man of means. 
Uh, he had won this competition in the company that the boss, whose boss, who was our boss, who owned the yacht, and he was staying on the yacht and for a small vacation. And uh, he said, hey, just give me some sandwiches and a bottle of Coke or something for lunch. And so, sure enough, we gave him a sandwiches and a bottle of Coke and put them in a little cooler and um, we put him in the, the little Boston whaler and we drove him to this private beach and we drove him to the private beach and dropped him off and we came back for him at five o'clock that afternoon and he's a bit red and sunburnt and we said, how was your day? And he said, oh, not bad, but, you know, I felt a bit embarrassed and I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, there were this other couple next to us and boy, you know, we went out on the beach and maybe I was sitting there with our sandwiches and our can of Coke and these guys, man, they opened a hamper. They had a picnic. And I said, oh, well, we can fix that. No problem. We're going back tomorrow. So we took him in the dory and we beached the dory right up on the beach and we made a big procession for three crew members and we unloaded the passengers and then we unloaded the dory and we took out tables and chairs <laughs> and white linen tablecloths and we took out the packing and out of the packing came these beautiful water for crystal glasses that we laid on the table and we had a little flower display and then we left them with, we put their blankets down for them and brought them beach loungers and laid them in those. And then we went off back to the boat and we made sure that we parked, we moored the boat no more than like 80 feet from the shore. It was about 100 feet off of shore. So everybody on the beach knew that these two people were from our boat and we were the biggest boat in the harbour. <laughs> and come around lunchtime, we have all this stuff and we would just bring in course after course for these two poor people who are sitting on the beach and everybody's literally standing around with their mouths dropping on the floor because we're bringing out souffles and um, just oysters and we're popping bottles of champagne and then um, one of the uh, crew members, by arrangement, had a very loud walkie-talkie and um, he the we had planned this with the guest beforehand and he said oh may i have a bottle of the 1961 cheval blanc and um in a very loud voice over the receiver it came back and said i'm terribly sorry sir but we drank that case yesterday so uh would you be settling for the 82 chateau margot would that be okay and he's like no i don't really think i want that it's too heavy for this lunch just bring me some Mouton Rothschild or something. And that was the only <laughs> wine that we carried on board the yacht anyway, but nobody else knew that, of course. So afterwards, um, we'd had a good laugh. And in order to break the ice and help the people who this very timid couple were, um, who were our guests on board the yacht, we then took everything back to the boat but left them on the beach. And then afterwards... We got back into the yacht in uh, just swimming trunks and we piled up on the beach and we brought over this enormous tin bucket which was filled with Coronas and 
beer and all this stuff and it was in a mess of ice and we just brought it out and said to everybody on the beach hey guys come on over let's start have a party and we had this great party and they ended up having a wonderful time and they um met everybody on the beach and everybody met them and uh we made it a really nice vacation for it uh, that is just one of the nicest stories i have ever heard not only did you take above and beyond to a whole new level, you made a comfortable situation for people who were in an uncomfortable situation for themselves, and you did it so creatively and so playfully. I just loved that story, and thank you for repeating it thank here. You. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. It was Great. a fun time on board that boat. Um, we had a lot of good times like that, um, and it was a great grounding for private service. Uh, uh-huh. I think we touched on that. So it was fun to do and to be in the element or to be able to um, do things like surprise and delight. We, I carry that into my B&B even today. Um, we make sure that when people come for an anniversary or a birthday, we always do something for them. We never tell you that we're going to do it so you're not expecting it. But when mm-hmm. you get there, then it's not only what we would have given you, but now it's a surprise and a delight. So um, that's something that we try and bring through into the uh, into the bed and breakfast. Uh, we don't want people to feel like they are um, in some stuffy environment. Yes, we serve all of our breakfasts on uh, proper china and water for crystal, but um, it's a very relaxed atmosphere. It's not stuffy at all. How so can we try and bring you, that. How can people find your bed and breakfast? Is there a website we can give out for it, or are there oh, absolutely, to, yeah. And we're on, yeah. Mm-hmm. We, um, of course, now everybody has these review sites, uh, and we've been number one for Southampton for, I think, at least eight or ten years. So you can go to TripAdvisor, you can book direct from there. You can go to our website, which is www.a butler's manor um originally i wanted to call it uh salty towers instead of faulty towers um but my wife said no so uh it's called a butler's manor now and we've been doing this for 15 years and this is uh coming up for our uh yeah 15th year this year so 15th year we still enjoy it how does bed and breakfast compare to individual private service it's a cakewalk an absolute cakewalk. Really? So easy. Oh, so easy. Uh, being a butler, you are under a tremendous amount of pressure to have everything perfect to an extremely high standard. Um, we keep our bed and breakfast maintained 100% of the time. If there's a light bulb out, it gets fixed. Um, but nobody ever turns around and says, hey, the light bulb's because <laughs> they don't get a chance. And it's, yes, it's the same thing with being a butler, but with a butler, you're with the same person day after day after day. And you, yes, you do get to know their foibles and their wants and their needs and that sort of stuff. But it can be a little bit demanding because if they are, um, if they are demanding, then the job can be demanding um one of the great things about owning a b&b 
is that there's a constant turnover of new people. Um, so, uh, can you hold on for just one second? Can we cut sure. that there? You bet. Okay, hold on a second. All right, we're talking to Chris Allen, and he has a, a book out on his life as a butler. He has a bed and breakfast. And Patricia, you want to give us the title of the book for people who want to look for it on Amazon? You picked it up on Amazon, I believe. So I did. I found it on Amazon. And uh, it is not a brand new book, as Chris has mentioned several times. Um, but it's a delightful book. Absolutely wonderful. It's called A Butler's Sorry, Life. Sorry, guys. No problem. Okay. We're, 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 we're plugging just, your book. We're giving information <laughs> about you and your book. Um, You're writing a book? Well, well, we're plugging your book. We're telling the audience how they can find your book. So I, go ahead, Patricia. Yeah, we're, we're giving you a new profile here, Chris. <laughs> 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 and you can add us to your resume. A butler's life seen from the other side of the silver salver. And here you are back. I know we, we have more than extended our welcome here, and I, I do apologize for that. But I did want to make sure that we heard about your bed and breakfast. Now, you spend seven months in New York, and that's with the bed and mm-hmm. breakfast, and five yep. months in California. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep, that's oh. right. All right. So we and spend the just... summers. We do the summers from April until the 1st of November in New York. And uh-huh. then we come over here back to Cal- back to Laguna, and we have a place in Laguna, but we don't do bed and breakfast here. Uh, we just relax here. So that is your home for all intents and purposes, and um, uh, New York is, yeah. is your work and home. Exactly, yep. All right. Chris, yeah. what should I have asked you that I didn't? I can't imagine there's anything we've had. We've uh, kept you for the night. Well, how about the fact that my wife is quite prolific as an author? Please. Um, her pen name is Kimberly Burton Allen, and she's written a cookbook, which is a compilation of breakfast recipes from the B&B, and they are really, really good. Um, got a great index in it, so if you're gluten-free or you have some allergies, um, you can sort the recipes through the index using those criteria. Mm-hmm. Most of the recipes are easy to do and to make in advance. So if you're having people over for brunch, you can just make this the night before, put it in the oven, and it comes out in the morning, or you put it in in the morning and it's ready to go. It's really easy. Um, she also wrote a book on wedding wonders. It's called Wedding Wonders, but it's about wedding traditions. Uh, that one was published some time ago. And it's like a chicken soul for the soup size book, a little <laughs> flip book. Uh, so if you have anybody who's getting married, it's a great gift. It only costs maybe $8, something like that. Uh, then she has, of course, A Butler's Life. And then she wrote three novels. One is called Choice. And it's a, um, I'm not going to give away the plots, but they're novels. And then there's one called Net Stalker, which is a little bit dark. Don't know who wrote that, but it certainly wasn't my wife. And uh, <laughs> um, what was the other one she wrote? Gosh, I'm having a brain fade here. Let's see, Choice, Net Stalker, and oh, Blood Exposure. And that's a book about uh, local families in a uh, story about local families in East Hampton, in the Hampton. Uh-huh. So she has all these books, they're all available on Amazon. And uh, what else? 
I think you covered the butler side pretty good. I, I think it's been great we, questions. I, I think we, we have probably a thousand more great questions. <laughs> we will have to keep you until next week. But I hope this means that you might consider coming back with us down the line. I'd be more than happy to. If, if your audience would like to hear more tales from the butler's side, maybe we could even do one about the B&B. You bet. That could be her next book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're, you're so be careful it. if you come as a guest. You <laughs> might be in her next book. <laughs> well, that's okay. You know, we've, <laughs> we keep telling people this is an international radio station because it is on the Internet. We have listeners in, oh, goodness gracious, countries all over the place. So, yes, we, yeah. we can do that, oh. and we will attract people from London to the bed and breakfast. There you go. Thank you. Yeah, we, <laughs> have, uh, we have people from all over the world, from Asia, Australia, uh, Papua New Guinea. We have people from um, China, India, you name it. The oh, my Europe. Goodness. Everywhere from Norway to Argentina. It's, it's a great business because you meet so many different people. Everybody's looking to come and experience the Hamptons. And uh, we feel like we're pretty good ambassadors for our town. And we like to show off uh, what they have there. Uh, and using the B&Bs as a, as a base for your travels mm-hmm. is uh, ideal. It's a well-located uh, B&B. What size is the B&B? Well, we only have five rooms. Uh-huh. So, um, Very intimate. We, yep. We tend to, we have a really good guest ratio because uh, we can only do 10 people at a time. And between Kim and I and our housekeepers, uh, and we have a garden which is just gorgeous. I mean, we can grow things that uh, Californians can't because it's too hot here, you know. Yeah. But in New York, oh boy, the uh, the plant varieties are beautiful, and we try and have flowers in the garden. Actually, we have flowers in the garden from the snowdrops in in uh, in March, right the way through to dahlias in November to the first frost, and we always put fresh flowers in the room. It's really nice. It's a great place. It's uh, got a saltwater pool, beautiful garden, nice relaxing place, convenient. 16 restaurants in less than a mile, easy walking, beautiful beaches. I mean, and even on July 4th, I know here because in Laguna, I've seen pictures and I remember people on the beach on July 4th here. Um, Even on July 4th in Cooper's Beach, you can go 50 yards from the entrance to the beach and there's nobody there. Hmm. And the houses, I mean, are, the real estate is just incredible. It really is. And beautiful $100 million estates oh, that you goodness. can walk past. Um, <laughs> you get to, you know, they do block the views with hedges and it does look a little bit like a rat maze from above because they have all these big thick hedges so you can't see the houses. But if you come in the off-season, then uh, you can look through the hedges or you can go out <laughs> onto the beach. And, of course, they're never going to block that view of the ocean, so you get to see the houses. <laughs> we have one house binocular. there that's about, yeah, we have one house there 66,000 square feet, and it has a 30,000 square foot garage. 
How much? 66,000 square feet and yeah. a 30,000 square foot garage. A I gay garage. That's what you had said. This is scary. <laughs> <laughs> it's on about 60 acres and uh, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, well, it's it's a, a very unique house, very unique house. It, it sure sounds but, like it. Um, yeah, there's each time you a say lot of beautiful I, houses. There. Yeah. Sorry. Each time you say something, I have another question, and I promise this will be my last one, Chris. <laughs> and then we'll wait for you to come back, and we can do the the whole bed and breakfast. Okay. What is the average length of stay of your guests? About two to three days. Very short. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, we do have people who stay for a week. We've had people stay for a couple of weeks. But uh-huh. the vast majority of our guests that come out for weekends, uh, they'll do, if you're sensible, I think, personally, uh, mm-hmm. if you want to do the Northeast, then when you get to New York, you spend Saturday and Sunday or Friday night and Saturday night in New York City. And then Sunday morning, you drive out to the Hamptons and you wave at everybody as they're leaving the Hamptons. <laughs> and you come in on a Sunday night and you stay right the way through until Thursday or even mm-hmm. Friday. And then you leave on Friday and you go off on your travels. But that way, the Hamptons are very much more peaceful on the weekdays. Mm-hmm. Weekends, it's crazy. The traffic, it can take five hours to do a two-hour journey to get from the city to the Hamptons in the middle of summer on a Friday night. Mm-hmm. It can be about five hours. But if you come out on Sunday, generally it's about an hour and a half, two hours, and the restaurants are only half as full. Uh, the beaches are the, exactly the same, but there's less people on them. And the... Um, the weather's the same, the pool's the same. Everybody's got time for you. And it's not that mad, frantic, oh, I've got to get my Hamptons vacation in. And that most people <laughs> only have two days. And they take Friday, Saturday. So, um, you know, we have a three night minimum during the weekends in the summer. Mm-hmm. and But during the week, it's only two days. I mean, it's even one day sometimes. Uh, so there's plenty of opportunities to see the Hamptons, but you need at least two or three days, yeah. I think, because there's a lot of wineries out there on the North Fork. I think we have um, 53 now, 54 mm-hmm. wineries. And we have three wineries on the South Fork, which are beautiful. You've got Montauk, Hampton Bays. You can go out fishing. There's all sorts of water sports, horseback riding. We've got the best golf courses in the world. We've got Shinnecock coming up next year where they're going to do the U.S. Open again. Uh, that's at Shinnecock. Then mm-hmm. we have Sabonic Golf Club. We've got Maidstone Club, um, National, and Cherry. We've got so many beautiful golf courses. It's uh, in such a small area. You know, and Blacks, we've got that too. Uh, Beth Page, beautiful courses. Easy to get to too. So that's the average day. There's lots of things to do in the Hamptons. Uh, come and see us. <laughs> you may be talking to the right people here. Walden and there I said, go. Yeah, Walden said, let's talk about the B&B, and maybe we can go up there. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, you take a look that, online Walden? at W. Yeah, 
take a look online at www.abutlersmanor.com and uh, our availability is online, our pricing is online, calendars there, there's a list of things to do. We've got videos, you can see videos of Kim and I, we've got videos of the rooms, what you see is what you get, uh, we don't hide anything, uh, it's all there. So take a peek and I think you'll like it. Come and see us. I, I think we would too. I'm a, new, a former okay. New Yorker. So some of the things that you're talking about are at least on a cursory basis familiar to me. There you and, go. Um, it, it, it is not an easy thing to keep flowers that bloom for two-thirds of the year. So that, yep. that takes a lot of patience well, and understanding. And there's, always, there's always something different in the garden. I mean, because mm. we've got the daffodils that go all the way until the end of May because we have late bloomers. And then mm-hmm. you've got the iris that come out, then the roses, and then the dahlias, the shrubs come out, and you know, we've got Japanese maples and mm. massive lelands, and I've got a 150-year-old uh, sycamore maple in my oh back my garden, goodness. which is like the centerpiece. And the, the trunk must be three feet across easily maybe more that's a big tree it's a big tree we look after it very big tree well we have been talking with christopher allen he and his wife kimberly um have a book a butler's life seen from the other side of the silver silver and i made my admission that i had to go out and find out how to pronounce silver um, because I am among the people who were so eager eager to hear um, what what you've got inside the book and it's just great um, I don't know what else to say Chris we were just so grateful that you spent time with us and I'm grateful that you think you might be able to join us again I'd be more than happy to you just give us a call come see us at the B&B make sure you read the books and uh, we'll talk about them when you get there. Okay, that's great. Thank you, Christopher. You You have a great weekend. You're welcome. Nice. And with that, we'll take it back to the automation system, everybody. May the good Lord Jesus Christ bless each one of you out there here on Just Today, USA. JAWS Professional Documents Documents Explorer Pane Folder Layout Pane Shell Folder View Items View Alt Tab Sound Forge Pro 11.0 Escape 0.0 Enter 0.0 Menu A Leaving Menus Data Window Sound 1 Star Save as Dialog File Name Colon Sound 1 Edit A Set the Value Use the Arrow Keys or Type the Value Alt Plus N S A T U R D A Y N I G A T two dash one one dash one seven double I T eight P A T R I C I A R U N N I N G C H R I A L L E N I N T E R V I E W S E C O N D P C 
Save us. Save button. Enter. Data window. Type in text. Selection length is selected. 0.027 seconds. Jaws Professional. Patricia from FL Home. Bill Brown. Tab. Skype trademark. Left bracket. Windows M. Desktop. Folder view. List view. Skype S. Seagate expansion. S. Sound 4. Enter. User account Y. Sound 4.